Good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program through True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. It is the 29th of May, and this month has sped by. I wish you a most blessed and miracle-filled Memorial Day. As always, we will open with our meditation. So please take this time to go into your heart center and join me in calling forth your soul, the full emergence with your soul at this time, the full emergence with your higher self, your monad, your muddy I am presence, fully integrated within your being as we call forth all of our multidimensional selves through to our God, goddess presence. Be yourself in a magnificent pillar of light. bringing in the sapphire blue of divine will and divine government, divine leadership, divine perfection. With it comes the ruby red of divine love and the white light of purity. See, sense, and feel your pillar expanding to the maximum breadth that you can experience and feel it anchored, truly anchored deep into the heart of Mother Gaia. At the same time, it is anchored to the source and cosmic heart of all that is. It is at the level of our I Am Presence that we have the unity consciousness to be able to call in everyone across the planet, and we do that now. Please join me. Please join me in and repeat after me in calling forth everyone to do this work with us, this work of bringing heaven to earth. As we say, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. 
take a nice deep breath and feel that unity consciousness. We call forth for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, to receive the benefits of all that we do. We call in all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul family, our soul pods. We welcome for ourselves and for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome all of the ascended master realms, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all of the Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all of their healing teams. We welcome our sacred friends from the Galactic Federation, especially those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus. We welcome all of their healing teams and all the many cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service here today. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking that our Mother, Father, God, overlight all that we do. And magnify, magnify, magnify it 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, in alignment with divine will and divine law for both our personal and planetary ascension. We recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor of the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. We call in all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves to work with us. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. Within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our orc field, multidimensionally, including through all 12 layers of the cells, We ask that all that we receive be received by Mother Gaia in divine order for her and all upon her. If we ask for it to be received in her chakras, meridians, and layers of her auric field multidimensionally through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all the multidimensional grid system, 
for every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light, that every location across the planet turn into pure light as we continue this amazing journey upon the spiral of evolution with Gaia and all upon her as Gaia takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We call forth every man, woman, and child to join us as their I Am Presence and as we allow the I Am Presence to take full command of our being. And we say, Beloved, I Am Presence, I know and accept that you have taken command of my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional body. These vehicles are being raised in vibration as we speak. And they are integrating with my solar light bodies. My awareness is increasing. And I clearly hear your still small voice within. I know that you respond to my every call for assistance. I'm experiencing your exquisite vibrations. And my entire being is flooded with light. My consciousness is opening to the influx of your pure spiritual energy. I now know you are in me and I am in thee. I know you are me. I am that I am. I am a being of radiant light. I am one with the energy and vibration that is the all-encompassing presence of God, Goddess. I am one with the divine love that fills the universe with its glory of itself. I am one with every particle of life I am one with the divine plan for the new earth. I am one with the infinite flow of God's abundance and eternal peace. So let us call on that frequency, the beautiful golden light of infinite abundance and eternal peace. As it floods through us, it floods through the planet. It floods through each and every person on every level of beingness. And we say, I that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. 
mighty I am presence. Charge me to full to overflowing forever with inexhaustible strength and energy, indestructible health, invincible protection, irresistible divine love, inescapable prosperity, ascended master consciousness, illumination, freedom, and use of thy full power instantly and eternally manifest. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Working with the sapphire blue, we now call in the lords of the blue ray. Lords of the flame, the sacred fire, the great ray, great ray of blue. Blood forth over our America. Earth's atmosphere is stepped through. From thy great heart of love so pure, of wisdom and all power, blaze forth thy dazzling cosmic light. Protect her every hour. Through angel hosts of being bright, send forth the great blue flame to fill our loved America with victory through I am that mighty, glorious, sacred name for all eternity shall ever now, more, shall ever more now fill the earth till all mankind is free. I am says life to all that is. I am love's gift to all. I am the mighty flame of blue. I am its cosmic call. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We call forth someone else that is important to our work here today. The goddess of liberty. The goddess of justice the goddess of freedom and the other goddesses the goddess of victory truth and glory as we say in the name of the almighty presence of God goddess I am through the creative fire pulsating in every heart I invoke the goddess of liberty, the goddess of justice, the goddess of freedom, the goddess of victory, the goddess of truth, the goddess of glory, the silent watcher for Washington, D.C., beloved Columbia, and all of the mighty guardians and cosmic beings who dwell in the etheric complex over Washington, D.C., 
blessed ones, come forth now and assist me with the most powerful cleansing activity humanity and the earth are capable of receiving during this cosmic moment. As one unified heart, I now invoke the fifth dimensional frequencies of the violet transmuting flame of forgiveness and forgetfulness. Blaze, blaze, blaze this sacred fire in through and around all inharmonious actions, all lower human consciousness, and all obstructions of the light that I or any part of life have ever placed into the pathway of life's perfection. Through the power, the divine power of forgiveness and forgetfulness, transmute this discordant energy, cause, core, effect, record, and memory, now and forever. Blaze and sustain the violet light of a thousand suns in the cosmic blue lightning of divine will, power, faith, and authority from the great, great central sun in through and around the President of the United States of America, all of his cabinet, all of the executive branch, all of, all of the Department of Justice, all of the staff members of the executive branch, as well as all the other flames, rays, universal laws, and ascension ways we call forth for each group. We call this forth around the Senate and the House of Representatives for the United States of America, all of the legislative branch and its staff, now and forever. We call all of these frequencies around the Supreme Court, all of the judicial branch, all of the courts of law, all legal procedures, all of their staff members now and forever. We call it forward through all of the United Nations and all of its members, all of its representatives and staff now and forever. And through all world leaders and those associated with the governments of Earth at national, state, and local levels, now and forever. We call this forth to be ongoing, to be maintained and sustained in divine order. And I accept this victoriously accomplished the power of God, Goddess I Am. Take a nice deep breath as we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And we're asking for special blessings as we do on Memorial Weekend for divine government as well as for every other aspect. Every aspect of heaven on earth. In the name of love and liberty, we invoke the total empowerment of a governmental body that supports the highest good of every living thing in in this nation, in the United States and throughout every government of every nation.
uh, national, state, local levels. May the collective presence of the celestial realms come forth. Come forth now to support the best possible outcomes as we call for this deeply transformational work by and through universal law. Purify the governing soul of this nation, of Washington, D.C., of all aspects of federal, state, local, city, county governments here in the United States and in every nation. Purify them of all corrupting influences, instantly requalifying every device of thought, polarized emotion and discordant deed through the revolutionary power of love's intelligence. Saturate all the leaders, politicians, candidates, decision makers, and all voters in the United States, in every city, in every county, in every state, and in every government across the world, along with all of the people they serve with the divine light of divine understanding. Motivate the government of this nation and all nations on every level of government to take much greater action toward the cultivation of lasting peace and goodwill both locally and internationally. Inspire the economic leaders of the United States and every nation across the planet to work together in harmony to ensure the health and prosperity of all citizens, wildlife, and the environment in this and every forthcoming generation. Empower the true spirit of democracy in the United States and each state, city, and locality and in every nation across the planet. Great presence, please open and augment the pathways of light over every governmental building and office in the United States, in every state and city, and in every nation. Send wave after wave of transforming love into the entire political consciousness of the United States and each nation, including on a state and local level, to support the highest levels of purification possible. Let divine governance emerge quickly to serve as a potent catalyst for positive societal and systemic change. May this divine intervention and its containing matrix be made imperishable, eternally sustained, all-powerfully active and ever-expanding until the evolutionary plan is fulfilled for the United States, for each state and city, 
for every nation and for planet Earth herself. As we decree it, so it is, with profound gratitude, it is done. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. We're going to call forth Archangel Sandalphon. Asking for the assistance of Mother Gaia. To do all of this transformation easily and effortlessly. For the highest and best of all concerned. To easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor. And integrate and embody these frequencies individually and collectively for our planetary and cosmic ascension with the greatest of ease and grace and joy, peace and bliss and harmony, tranquility and serenity, balance and equilibrium, in love, in light, in laughter. And we say in the name of the mighty I am presence, I call the light and love of the ascended masters into the White House, into the National Capitol, into every state in the Union, and into the hearts and minds of all politicians and government officials and employees to produce perfection now and bring everything into life's victory of divine love. In the name of the muddy I am presence, I charge the minds and feelings of everybody in America with St. Germain's Ascended Master of Consciousness and Perfection. God bless, illumine, perfect, and set them free in the service of the light forever. Mighty I am presence, shatter and consume all activity of the sinister force in America, its cause and effect, replacing it forever by the eternal perfection of the Ascended Master's light of God that never, never, never fails. Mighty Ascended Masters and great legions of light fill America with that light, love, protection, and power as of a thousand suns and keep her forever invincible to all but thy mighty perfection. So be it, and so it is. So we're calling in continuous blessings as we celebrate this national holiday. Mighty, infinite, I am presence, thou mighty guardian presence for America. Come forth in thy cosmic action of the unfed flame of divine love and the eternal quenchless light. Blaze forth everywhere in and through our beloved Americas, thy light as of a thousand suns. Charge with Ascended Master consciousness and fulfillment of the divine plan for their freedom and perfection. We say to the consciousness of everyone in the Americas, awake, awake, awake. 
to the truth of this mighty I Am Presence and the full perfection meant for the Americas. Great Ones, release throughout them that activity of thy light, which takes possession everywhere of the Americas, the governments, and the people. Control their resources, direct their activities, fill them with thy lavish abundance of all good things, and release that ascended master consciousness which compels divine justice to come forth for everyone within their borders. Surround them with thy invincible protection. Blaze forth thy mighty activity of the light and love of the ascended masters and the angelic host that once and forever brings all into divine order through divine love. Charge forth thy full perfection everywhere forever. In the name of the mighty I am presence, we decree that the Americas shall be manifest as nations of ascended masters to lead the rest of the earth into their eternal glory and the victory of the ascension. America, we love you. America, we love you. America, we love you. And our love and call to the mighty I am presence is great enough to bring forth your perfection now and keep it forever sustained. We charge you, our beloved America, with the Ascended Master's eternal victory of the light of God that never fails and the mighty mastery of the I Am Presence expanding its perfection everywhere within your borders. So long as the stars remain and the heavens send down dew, so long shall our beloved, beloved America carry the grail of light high and feed the rest of, feed the, rest of the earth with the Ascended Masters outpouring of freedom and perfection of the mighty I Am Presence. America, we enfold you in our mantle of light and love. Within it is all power. We hold you sealed within our hearts and your mighty glory, your mighty victory, shall manifest every hour to the glory of the I Am and the Ascended Ones forever. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this, we give thanks for this. We call in the violet flame of divine justice. See it in through and around yourself and in through and around the planet. Working with all, with working with that sapphire blue flame. They're both flames of divine government, rays of divine government. And we call them in to work with us in divine order. Call forth the goddess of justice. As we say, O thou, thou mighty, infinite, just, thou mighty, infinite, I am presence, thou supreme justice of the universe. By the power of the unfed flame, the three times three and the cosmic light, let thy judgment descend into the physical octave of earth and compel divine justice to be released this instant into every government activity, every business activity, 
every economic activity, every financial activity, every aspect of activity in this nation and this world and be forever sustained. Let divine judgment descend on all destructive forces at this very moment and annihilate them, their cause and effect from the earth and humankind forever. Thou who art supreme justice, the supreme owner of all that is, the supreme giver of all that is, the supreme perfection of all that is, the supreme doer of all that is good, descend into the brain and body of every human being on earth this moment and all who come here in the future. Take possession of that which is already yours and once again compel everything in humankind and its outer activity to come into divine order through divine love and be eternally sustained. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call. So that flame of sapphire blue is the divine order. The flame of divine love is the pink, the ruby, and together they form that violet flame, which we know that, again, throughout these, this month, but utilize it often in these next three days. It is continually magnified by St. Germain during this sacred month of May. So we blaze it forth now, for it is the flame of justice. As we say, mighty I am presence, great host of ascended masters and great cosmic beings, come forth into your full cosmic power and authority of the unfed flame, the three times three, the cosmic light, and the blue lightning of divine love. Blast this instrument instant by the power of the blue ray, all legal procedure from existence within the United States of America and throughout the world. That is not the eternal divine law of right and justice of the mighty I am presence and the ascended masters for every human being on earth forever. Annihilate all that does not guarantee and give divine justice to every human being on earth forever. Blast the cause and effect of all that binds humanity by wrong legal activity and replace it with the ascended masters, eternal divine justice to all forever. Replace all legal procedure throughout the world with the ascended masters, eternal divine law of the mighty I am presence that gives divine justice to every human being on earth forever. We thank thee, thou dost always answer our every call instantly forever. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And finally, we call forth once again that golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance for ourselves, for all humanity. We accept this now. See it flooding across the planet. See it filling every molecule and fiber of each person's being. 
filling every transaction, bringing it, each transaction to its highest perfection. As we say in the name of my beloved I am presence and my beloved Holy Christ self. I call to the words of manifestation, angels of prosperity, Fortuna, goddess of supply, and lord of gold to assist me now in mastering all outer conditions of my life in God's perfect way, including my true abundance. Charge, charge, charge into my life and use today all the blessings that are mine to receive. Infuse me with ascended master wisdom and purity that I may never again experience lack or limitation. Blaze your heart flame through my four body systems and expand it without limit, a great flow of divine abundance. Saturate me with enough violet flame and emerald healing light to keep my life in perfect balance and harmony at all times. I demand God's invincible protection and wisdom in all my financial endeavors. I demand to become a magnet of attraction, drawing to me all the wealth I require to fulfill my divine plan on earth, to make my ascension and to assist all of humanity to do likewise. I give thanks that it is done according to God Goddess's most holy will. I accept my abundance now with great love and gratitude. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And so, my friends, that concludes our decree work and our anchoring of heaven here on earth at this time. We ask that it be sealed and maintained and sustained in divine order individually and collectively for all. We ask to see more and more manifestations of heaven on earth in our daily lives. We ask for our commitment to be strengthened to manifest this fully for one and all. And we give thanks for this. And so, my friends, I want to take this time to thank you for your divine service. Thank you for your service to this nation and to this planet and to all the people upon her. I ask you to join us for further divine service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. Each of the calls is unique, unique combination of prayer work, decree work, visualization, meditation, activations. And I truly believe that There is no work that has been done more consistently, more frequently than our ascension work. Please join our family of light in divine service each and every Sunday and Monday. With one exception, July 4th will be off. And so 
the calls begin. They're all teleconference calls, so they begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We start with about 20, 25 minutes of greetings. Tarn Rama, give a 20-minute update. We start our work in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time, where the activations and the work of bringing heaven to earth begins. If you haven't joined us, please say hello. Let us know that you found out about the calls through this Saturday afternoon program. I'm going to give you the phone number. Please grab your pen and paper. This is the main number, area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. Again, that's 946-7441-POUND. Please say hello and become a part of our regular pattern, our regular group, and put it on your calendar. I have additional phone numbers. I have a way to get on through the Internet. Some people are happily doing that these days. And so I have international numbers. I can send you all of that extra information. Just contact me at Cheryl Croce at AOL.com. That's C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. We'd love to have you join us. The benefits are beyond measure. If we do this for everyone, the power of it magnifies and we get amazing blessings in return. So again, thank you for your service here today. We want to thank Tara and Rama, as always, for their amazing service. Thank, we wish to thank Rainbird for her service here all the time as well. So it is with, with much love and gratitude that I extend to you Wishes for a very safe and peaceful and joyful and harmonious Memorial Weekend. It was interesting in a session this week, I was told that the memorial included the remembrance of who you are. So let's make it a Memorial Weekend for every man, woman, and child to remember their divinity, their divine presence, and bring it forth. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Rainbow, this talking stick is glowing with the white, the red, the blue, with the violet, with the gold, with the emerald, and every frequency we could possibly need to create heaven on earth and remember who we are. So it has amazing, amazing frequencies, and it is with love that I pass it to you at this time. Thank you, dear. Have a beautiful weekend, everyone.
Oh, well, thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for your divine service as well. And I love that talking stick as we, to remind us to remember who we are. <laughs> so thank you for your divine service. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program here. Uh, it's all of us that make it happen. We need $300 each week for our services with BBS radio. And we do that um, by accessing our account our account with BBS. And so here's how we do it. Go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2 or scroll down. You'll see the menu for Radio Station 2. And um, you'll find on Thursdays at the 6 o'clock hour, as these are all times in Pacific time zone, it's the 6 o'clock hour on Thursdays, a night at the round table with the panel. You click on that icon there, and that'll take you to our account. And as you click on the one on Friday, the Friday show, it's at the 6 o'clock hour, the hard news program with Tar and Rama. And that, as you click on that icon, it'll take you to our account, as was this program, The True History, History of the Stare, Our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama, on Saturdays at the 1.30 hour. So we need each week $300, and so we're even this week, which means that we're keeping up and moving on, and that's good. <laughs> so as you go to, uh, click on that icon, it'll take you to directly to our account with CBS Radio where you can make a contribution in any amount. So thank you for taking that action and thank you for your generosity. We're so grateful. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs and this the rent is due in a day or two and it has been taken care of. It's, we got it. So thank you, thank you, thank you for making sure that happens in a good and beautiful way. And so what's left is some bills from um, last week uh, or a week, a week, yeah, from last month, this month. The ones that occur at the end of the month and the ones that occur at the beginning of the month are due. And um, $750 will cover those bills and their living expenses that occur in the week as well. So um, that's that's our goal, 750 and here's how you can make a a payment to Rama's PayPal account. First, you go to uh, the the website, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And then on the website, you'll click on the menu, and a, a window will drop down, and the donate link is near the end of that menu, next to the bottom. <laughs> so click on that. That takes you to Rama's. PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount. So thanks for taking that action. And then if you want to access the friends option, you go to, into your own PayPal account and um, put in Rama's email with PayPal to get to, <clears throat> to, to give to him. And that email address at PayPal for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com 
in there is you enter the amount that you're gifting, a window will drop down with the word change, click on that, and that leads you to the friends option. So that's perfect. And either way you do it is perfect. And what happens with the friends option is you just eliminate the commercial charges. And so it goes a little further. Uh, anyway, we are so grateful for your contributions, however they show up. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you. And so after you have sent a contribution, please email Raman and let him know what you sent and when you sent it. So that email address for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939 at comcast.net. And, um, and then as you might need it, the mailing address for Tara and Rama is um, post office box, uh, well, Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz. B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Berkowitz, and then the address, post office box 280-280. If that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip code of Santa Cruz, New Mexico is 87567, and I'll repeat that, zip, 87567. Okay, so there you have it. All all the wonderful ways <laughs> how to send money to Rama and Tara, and so much gratitude for all the ways that you uh, contribute that way, pay it forward, and all the ways that you show up in your lives. So much gratitude. And then also, um, as you're interested in joining the Fremart program, the the place to join is https colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. And that's account number 7000. And it's the 2013 Rainbow Roundtable account. So there you have it. Uh, all of the information you need. So again, so much gratitude for all the ways that you show up in your lives. And I'm passing this beautiful talking stick that will uh, help us remember who we are this Memorial Day. <laughs> and it's got all that, all the red, white, blue, green, gold, and yellow uh, rays, platinum rays. And it's gorgeous. And it's got all the fairies and and little people on it and all that stuff, as Caroline says. <laughs> so greetings, Tara and Roma. Here comes the talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. Everyone. Oh, my goodness. Rama's just getting started on telling me his story. We didn't get very far. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a pretty astounding for as far as we got. So I'll start and Rama will have to finish. Yes. And I know that it's just... We're at the end of this... It's insane what's going on. Saga of the... 13 families trying to hide their, um, you know, 
descendants from the gods, meaning the Anunnaki fallen angels, and it's all coming out. In the context of all kinds of folks are beginning to tell the stories about the um, strange stones, like Freddie Silva talks about, and um, Graham Hancock and other folks that go and interact with the ley lines, grid lines, song lines. Um, okay, so... Um, yes? So I'll just start here. Everybody, you know, keep your heart, you know, right where your um, presence is focused on. Uh, this can make you really half mad to listen to this, what's going on between Republican and Democrat. and They give everybody a bit of a bitter taste in their mouth. I don't care which one it is or who it is. Unless you're going to have a little chat with a real awake progressive. There it is. I could play that too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I talked to a character at Whole Foods today who works there in the deli. He is new and his name is, not his real name, but he goes by Slick O'Rourke. <laughs> He definitely has an Irish brogue. He is about six foot two inches tall and, and, and his hair is bright carrot top color, long, halfway down his back in a ponytail. He also has a long beard with reddish and whitish mix. And as we are knowing, he's 68 and doesn't look a day over where? 40? Yeah. My goodness. Well, you know, Leonardo doesn't look a day over 40 either. No. She happens to be 20,000 years old, so something's different about all of this. But anyway, this gentleman, you got, you want to tell about, he knows the King of Swords, right? He knows the King of Swords and, this guy calls himself an Irish Indiana Jones and a cross between Gandalf and Dr. Strange. And he's been studying the arts, mystic arts, and the wisdom of the Tuatha de Danon of Ireland, Scotland, Princess Scotia. All these people were part of the great watchers that came at the very beginning that Matthias talks about. Some of them came from Pleiades and Sirius and Orion, and not all of them were bad. Okay, a cross between 
Indiana Jones. Gandalf and Doctor Strange. <laughs> Holy cow. He knows about the multiverses. You know, they play with that in the comics and in the movies, but multiverses are real. They overlap each other. And this is part of going through portals and waking up that we are not alone in this local galaxy or solar system. It's teeming with life. And we've been kind of, um, let's say, fed the blue pill and you've taken the red pill and waking up and all kinds of folks are waking up. I mean, how this guy knows the king of swords is he... And landed in the deli at Whole Foods. That's really wild. He, Where like, did he come he, from? He came from Ireland. He was part of the IRA, and he lost his brother in Belfast, Ireland, bombing. And um, no, So did he recently come from there to here? No, he's been traveling the world, going to all the you know ancient sites connected with the song line, grid lines. Driving. So he, he came from Ireland via traveling to all the different megalithic sites around the world. He woke up after he lost his brother, let's say, in the IRA. He was, you know, defending that concept about, you know, um, Irish Catholic versus Protestant Catholic. And well, not, what is the isn't the IRA, the IRA was the Protestant, at right? the I at the time the IRA was considered a domestic terrorist group in Ireland and, and Protestant. Yeah, right. I I don't I don't know enough about the the, okay, the so uh, conflict. To, we're we're kind of handicapped because um, our maintenance box broke. And wore out. Oh, I gotta call up the folks and have them walk me through how to install Which means it. that Rama hasn't been all able to print for a couple of days and, oh boy. So. But essentially this guy was, you know, part of a domestic terrorist group because they had differences of opinion about religion, which he woke up that all the religions are just part of the matrix. And it took losing his brother in a bombing for him to wake up. And he went on his journey, like you could say, the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell speaks about. And he's seen all kinds of stuff across this planet. He knows about Sam Brown and the 78 programs. And let's just say these guys have lost because the money it's not about money it's about in service to this planet when you can create with your thoughts this is what we're being taught by yoda and everybody else when we create with our thoughts money is not an issue and at the same time it's learning how to walk on water walk on air but I'm just saying, and it's about changing our thought patterns and working with the sacred sounds and the energies. And this guy kind of has gone on, you know, a magical, mystical journey 
to end up at Whole Foods. <laughs> and I asked him, what's the real reason you're here? And he said, I'm undercover for an agency. I'm not going to tell you the agency's name, but we are investigating Jeffrey Epstein's ranch because there are tunnels that go deep into the earth under there in New Mexico. Uh, so. And it is huge. When this story breaks about Jeffrey Epstein, Shelley Adelson. Is it uh, part of the Bruton tunnels? There, there are tunnels that go from his ranch down into the main underground tunnels where you get on a mag level train and you can literally levitate on this magnetic level train and go from here to Washington, D.C. in 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how brilliant. They have those under Taos Mountain, too. That's right. This guy knows about this stuff. He's coming forward to, you know, expose the crime family connected with Jeffrey Epstein, Shelley Adelson, Netanyahu, the 13 families. I mean, uh, we don't... So, let me just back up a second. Uh, Mr. O'Rourke, he was using a gun and fighting in the uh, with the IRA? Yeah. What yeah. can I say? I don't know enough about that. Blades of violent fire. I'm sure he did things he's not proud of, like we all have. Yet, you know, forgiveness is a great thing. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want to stand in his shoes, you know, um, place of violent fire. But that's kind of my story today, out of the blue. I wasn't expecting that. But all the folks that represent the forces of light are coming out so to speak, as things open up and the economies kind of get going in the midst of this fiasco that I only know how to describe as Koyana Scotsy, life out of balance. And what happens is, like, all the prophecies talk about, this is the time of the sixth sun, and Quetzalcoatl returns. Lord Katumi with all the rest of the folks. Yeah, it doesn't show yet. No, we kind of have to look at... Um, yeah, yeah. we got to look at. And today rep also represents Greenwood and what happened there. And it's you know, not taught too much. And they're trying to hide this stuff about this country economy was built on slavery. And I mean, it brings me back because the only way I know how to conceive of it in a way for to comprehend it is when you enslave entire solar systems and planets like Vader did. Something's got to give. And right now, these guys want to enslave the planet. 
but they don't get to. It's waking up. We're waking up. They can't go past. Well, right now, they're still doing it. They're still doing it. And January 6th is a really big deal. You can't sweep that under the Yeah, and the GOP defeated the uh, commission to investigate. Murder is murder, right? That's the talking stick. Yeah, well... Um, yeah. What? Is there a report from him about the big story besides <laughs> describing who he is and what he's done? I mean, what, what does he's he ha- saying what? is that essentially all the whistleblowers are coming forward to tell the story about how this planet is much older than it's ever been told to us and the giants, the, uh, Sophir, Asir, and the Memnir, all these beings, they're real. We're going to get to meet them. And it's not just fairy tales. This is part of the Rainbow Nation that all the prophecies talk about. And I... Don't know how to, you know, describe what a nanosecond is, yet every single day there is so much that is being brought forth about how deep this story goes, and it's only about love. I pass the talking stick. Hmm. Well, so what was his core message? Hmm? All the stories are coming out now. Okay. I'm watching. You ain't going to see it on MSNBC, I'll tell you that. No, I mean, it's got to be where the whole world gets to see them. Where do you suppose that's going to be? At a certain point, like I keep saying, ad nauseum, MSNBC is going to be gone and there's going to be a transmission. And Mr. Commander Lord Vrillon or Lord Astor is going to be speaking. Well, they'd have to take off all the networks Uh, and just have one, one... Attention, please. Situation. Keep going looking on. up. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> well, um, Toriana had all her friends come along with her, and they saw twenty to thirty starships last night. It ain't a joke. Or when was that? Maybe the night before or something. I don't think it'd be cool for somebody to land in our backyard. The weeds might. Uh, <laughs> They need to be burnt, uh, <laughs> chopped down. What about the weeds? They're pretty high in our backyard. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can no. fix that. It's like between things. It is. Yeah, but there's a flatter area out in the back. That's between the house and that little shed, and yeah. Then there's the water part on the other side. Well, ever whatever. 
so he's just a breath of fresh air, knowing the King of Swords and hanging out now at the deli and yeah, can't be missed. No, sixty-eight going on forty with an Irish brogue. Wow. <laughs> So how many years did he travel before he settled here? Maybe 10 years. Oh, boy, a long yeah. time. Because uh, he must have had a little stash to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not going there. I don't know nothing. So he's here for a new place to live. Yeah. Okay, so did you hear anything from anybody? Or did the King of Swords give you any kind of heads up when you asked him about this gentle spirit? He just said that all the woodworks, all all the woodwork is disappearing and folks are stepping out of the woods and telling their stories because it is about our ancient story where we all come from, the Rainbow Nation, all the different beings that are coming forth to help restore this planet. And some of them are in the legends and fairy tales. Yet, how do you describe, you know, a starship to a people that haven't yet uh, learned about Interstellar travel, letting alone um, how to start a fire. And I'm just trying to say it has to do with the war in heaven that affected this entire um, solar system and parts of our galaxy with the fallen angels and getting the memories back as part of this discovery that we're all on this adventure and I mean it is an adventure of a lifetime to wake up and realize you don't have to die mm-hmm. I passed the talking stick no you don't have to die okay so do you want to play Freddie Silva first and then we'll go to Cryon yeah because this story kind of relates to Mr. O'Rourke. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, there's ten dead now in San Jose from that shooting. <coughs> and it's hard news in the sense that he lined however many people up, many more than he shot. And, and this uh, was mind control stuff, right? Yeah, well, yeah, well, you you know, everybody's susceptible. This is why you do your your good, good red road walk, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, invoke that beautiful ruby gold color of of uh, Lady Nada, yeah, that's a nice. That was a nice image that our sister gave on Thursday. Um, but the uh, the situation is that 
one more person died in in, in the hospital. So there's 10 now that aren't here. And he lined people up and he just said, I'm going to shoot you, bam, and I'm not going to shoot you, and I'm going to shoot this one, and I'm not going to shoot you. He did it like that. That must have been hard. Oh, my God. Yes. And Representative Barbara Lee was on Al Sharpton today, and she was saying that she and some of her colleagues are calling for a new poverty legislation. You, you might want to call it the third reconstruction. Yes. Resolution. And uh, this kind of getting people with the mindset of shifting from the old system again to the new one. And Richard Louie is the director of a new film that's out tonight. It's on MSNBC, and it starts at uh, 9 o'clock Eastern. It's called Sky Blossom. Mm. It highlights the struggles of young people caring for military vets and people with dis- with disabilities. PTSD and losing an arm or an eye or two legs. Right. And the the, it's the whole thing, you know. And, uh, yeah, uh, I'll just say that they went into some details about breaking down the infrastructure monies. And, uh, the Senate GOP took it down even more from, you know, Joe Biden took it down from 2.3 trillion to 1.7 trillion, and these ones just want 928 billion, and divvied up between roads and bridges and water infrastructure and airports and broadband and freight and passenger rail, uh, and water shortage in the West uh, and how to deal with that, and uh, you know the best uh, thing that's suggested right now is to fund it through corporate tax hikes. Of the very, 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 very rich. At least 400 million and more. Oh my god. Ain't gonna, ain't nobody gonna turn me around. <laughs> well, then Sarah makes, just moves over and takes, yes. takes, you can't fix what's broken as the Native American. Uh, divine feminine would teach. You, know, you got to start with sound foundation. You might say discipline. Discipline with a capital D, where you think before you act, and you think before you speak, and you think with your heart for everything. It's a challenge, and yet this is what time it is. Mm, yes. Tensions are still high in the Middle East. The, the truce is holding generally, except for evictions going on by Israel on the Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem. I saw somewhere on Twitter they uh, arrested Palestinian journalists, and they were just ruthless with these people, treating them like they were you know, 
bags of garbage. I mean, that's how they just threw them around, the IDF. Because they were exposing the truth about what's going on on the ground, right? Yeah. Nobody sees this on the TV. And a few weeks from now, Biden and Putin are going to meet. Uh, and um, the Colonial Pipeline restores its network after temporary disruption on Friday. Um, okay. Uh, hmm. There's just many things going on. Uh, it was discovered that 200 children's burned bodies, they found them buried uh, beside an indigenous people's, indigenous children's school uh, at Kamloops School in Canada. Actually, up to 6,000 kids died. They were forced to join the Catholic religion and they fought against it. And up to 6,000 kids died. I just went, oh my God. That comes from Canada. Um, something called Solar Winds Hackers. Microsoft SolarWinds hackers targeted 3,000 accounts in 24 countries in the last 24 hours. Don't know it. Massive cyber attack. And that happened, yeah, in a couple of weeks they're supposed to be meeting with Biden and Putin are supposed to be meeting and that's got something to do with what they're going to have to chat about. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the division of the $6 trillion that's in the budget plan. $2.3 trillion toward the infrastructure we were talking about. $1.8 trillion toward education and family plans. And $1.5 trillion in proposed um, discretionary spending. Whatever that might mean. Um, and, you know, Lindsey Graham said, that's dead on arrival. Forget it, everybody, you know. Uh, $1.9 million airline passengers passed through the checkpoints yesterday. That's crazy. No masks, no nothing. Um mm. 96% of moviegoers will see multiple uh, films in the theaters this summer. It's going to be opened wide up across the whole nation. Blockbusters returning to the big screen as cities across the nation reopen. What can I say? Um, mm. Yeah. America's starting to return to the theater. I think we can 
let it all go. Let's let's play this. It's just ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, that uh, what's it called, Rob? Um, uncovering Earth's pre-flood civilization, and Freddie Silva with Regina Meredith kind of talks about what I'm talking about. Here we go. Ten minutes. Okay, here we go, yeah. Orion isn't just a dominant constellation in the night sky. It's recognized by most ancient cultures as the home of the gods, and in some cases, as the origin of civilization itself. Drawn from his book, The Missing Lands, Freddie Silva is here to talk with us about some of the most ancient and anomalous people on Earth. And look at all of the knowledge you've gained through the years, all the research you've done, the amazing books you've put out, the whole journey through the Templars, which I thought was just the most amazing book on Templars ever. But first of all, we're going into this anomalous and ancient civilization, and we brought this up before, and going back to New Zealand, and tell me the name of the indigenous people there, because I'll mispronounce it. <laughs> There'll be a test on this, Persian <laughs> girls. Um, the Waitaha, uh, one of the oldest people on earth that you've never heard of, uh, who also were interacting with a group of gods around the time of the flood. So putting the story of 12,000 years in the, in the distant past in one stroke, uh, they were called the Urukeu. Uh, literally the red-haired uh, tall people. And this was even back in the time before they even got to New Zealand. They were still in Easter Island at the time when they said they were calling Easter Island the lands and outer islands of Easter Island. So this is the time when the sea level was considerably low yes. uh, during the Ice Age, the Younger Dryers. And they said that they interacted with a group of traveling I was about to say salesman, but that's not quite right. A mm. group of traveling gods who moved across the Atlantic as easily as you and I go shopping for groceries. And uh, they had these massive canoes. And uh, they went from um, a, a big With exotic man, propulsion. With exotic <laughs> propulsion uh, called wind. <laughs> um, and they went from Kainganunui, this big land in the east, which sank during the, uh, the global flood, and then the east of a light on Easter Island. And whenever the Urukeu landed there, they would divulge knowledge to the, to, to the Waitaha, and that's where the Waitaha said, you know, we learn our wisdom from them. Every every year they would come here, they would dump a little bit more wisdom into these baskets of knowledge that they call the kete, and uh, each one of them was di- directed into three different groups. So you had the group which was meant of knowledge for the leaders and thinkers of the tribe, then you had the uh, people who did all the ex- exceptional work in terms of putting it Architecture, into... agriculture, all of that. Exactly. Yeah. And the third one was the interesting people, the knowledge bearers, the shaman people. And they, uh, these three baskets literally were in the mirror image of the three bell stars of Orion, from which the Urukeu allegedly would, would have come from. And they are said to have mated with humans. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to get to that in a moment. Now, uh, and we have a picture that we'll show, which is interesting. Absolutely. The one I showed you a little bit earlier, which you're already aware of, right? Yeah. Okay. In fact, even when the first Europeans were appearing in the Pacific around the 17th century, they were amazed by how many blonde uh, people, red-haired people, there were in the Pacific Islands. And they were saying, well, they were the ones basically part of the lineage of the gods because they eventually had to interact with humans because there weren't many of them and there were more of us. So. Right. 
going to, but let's, before we even go into all of that, let's go back to Orion because when a lot of people listening to this hear of Orion, they think, Orion, those are where the rep, that's where the reptilians are from. That's the first thing that's going to come up in a lot of people's minds. What do you mean Orion advanced beings help settle this place, right? I know where that comes from. Uh, and it's let's, actually a bit of a misnomer. It. It's a bit let's of a misnomer. It. It's the fact that you take things too literally. The, uh, the thing to, to understand about ancient uh, information is that a lot of it's metaphorical and symbolic. You have to understand the metaphor. And a lot of these people, a lot of these gods from the flood, are from the badge of office. Uh, they were called the people of the serpent. And that happens in South America, Central America, in Portugal, where right. I was born, uh, and also in the Middle East, all the way. Right. Uh, there's a band of uh, people, and of course through India, they're the Naga people, the Nagi, uh, and consequently the Anunnaki as they were called in India. And I always wondered, well, uh, were they literally reptilians or was this metaphoric? And the more I've asked ancient people who are still around, I'll say, well, actually, is it a metaphor? Because the serpent, as you know, is a symbol of the invisible currents that flow through the universe and the earth. So it flows of consciousness. Yes, and they behave like serpents. So exactly. if you're a master of the natural laws, which the gods were, which is what made you a god, it wasn't the fact that there was a guy sitting on a throne with a white beard. Yeah. Uh, that's not what it meant. That God was any person, any mortal being that had control of the laws of nature becomes a God. Because yes. a God is a force of nature. And therefore, the euphemism that we used was a person of the serpent because it handled the serpent energy. So it doesn't mean that they were reptilians. It means that they were harnessed to the serpent energy. So they understood the laws of physics and how to manipulate it. So that was the whole complexion. So in a matter of speaking, yes, they were kind of reptilians uh, coming, coming from Orion. Okay, not but not that, not that type that are also referred to as having come from Draco or Draco, however you say it. Draco. Yes, from Draco, <laughs> um, which people have drawn and they've they've uh, shared their experiences with, which are the ones that we've come to know as the reptilian species. But it's always uh, pegged back to Orion in almost every conversation that the reptilians are from Orion. But in fact, this isn't. The, the reptilians in physical form that I'm talking about, would that be more representative of having come from Dracos? It comes from somewhere else. It's somewhere a completely else. different story altogether because the people, these gods that came from Orion, were represented in human form. In fact, the euphemism that I hear all the time is they were human-like but not quite human. And they were very comfortable with them, yes. whereas many cultures, including people in North America, like the, uh, the Wichita of Oklahoma, they say um, that... After the uh, the flood, and there was few groups of gods that were remaining. The children of the gods beget children from the women with whom they intermarried, and the women ch- died during childbirth. And these were the Nephilah, which means the right. children of Orion, and they're the ones who were very deformed, and they're the ones that caused all the problems in the world. And it was because of them that the flood was initiated in the first place. Otherwise, if that hadn't happened, we'd be Actually, we wouldn't be living on, a, on the planet Earth right now. Planet Earth would be governed by a race of red-haired, tall people, actually giant people, covered with red hair, uh, which were giants. So that's where it all comes from. It's a very different thing altogether. Um, but they're all conflated. But they're all today. kind of conflated together because no one has the time, unless you're me, uh, way of you looking at things all the because time. you have to yeah. take this thing apart and don't look at it from our point of view or from a researcher's point of view. Exactly. Go back and ask the indigenous people what they mean and, you take and the then sit back. Yeah. And that's what I like doing. Let's hear what they have to say. And what they have to say is, no, you're confusing a symbol with an actual reality. And the fact is that the giants 
drove the humans crazy and said, no, these people are really quite unpleasant people. But the gods, <clears throat> the tall people, they were very much like us. They were just much taller, elongated heads, red hair, sometimes blonde with blue eyes. But they were very comfortable with them. So they were the kind of reptilian kind of people, which were very different, almost like a genetic experiment that went wrong. Mm-hmm. And then there were the gods who were much more uh, likable. In fact, the Hopi, for one, people say that actually without them, we would never would have made it to Arizona and the southwest of America because they're the ones that guided us from stepping stone to stepping stone as the land was sinking into islands. We were managed by them, and they actually referred to them as lookers or watchers, which was the cross people that surrounded the uh, the main group of gods called the Anu, and it was because of them that we ended up where we are today. And we honor their houses uh, in the place in the sky called Orion, specifically the belt stars, always. And we have this image here of these two people of much darker skin and then mm. this very pale offspring. Let's talk about that. And it was only photographed, what, 140 years ago? Yes. Uh, in New Zealand, yeah, there's two, these two children of the gods. Children and, uh, of the gods. They're not even and white. And they were known as that in their tribe in that day. Oh, absolutely, yes. absolutely. They were the offspring of the gods uh, yes. because they intermarried and they intermarried successfully. Yes. And in fact, they're not even the people in the picture, not even Waitaha, they're Nati Hotu, uh, another uh, culture in New Zealand. In fact, there's 15 tribes in New Zealand that all claim to have been there before the Maori would show up very late in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a huge political la- uh, minefield, by the way, that I walked into when I put that in. Uh, but they were saying, yes, uh, these were the, um, the the fairy people, as they called them, because they were fair-skinned. Yes. And that's what the uh, people like uh, James Cook found when they went to Fiji and all the islands of the Polynesia. And they said, well, we're expecting dark-skinned people in Polynesia. And behold, 60% of the people in Tahiti were blonde and blue-eyed. Yeah. Where did that come from? Yeah. So they frightened the hell out of the Europeans when they got there uh, to find these Scandinavian-type-looking people in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, but they still have those special powers. Uh, they were and the- talk about the special powers a little bit. It was literally to do with the forces of nature again. These mm-hmm. people had a certain connection. Again, it was in the blood, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, power, their power was in the blood. They gave them a special ability that you and I have to develop uh, you mm-hmm. know, using certain techniques. But for them, it was natural. It was second nature. And they could heal uh, with touch. They could see far. They could channel very easily between worlds. So their communication channel was very clear. So they were held to be the uh, spirit leaders of each tribe. And they were given dominion over the knowledge that they had acquired over many thousands of years. And they were guarding this information. So for them, they were given special status within the tribe. Because through them, the tribe learned from the information that they were getting from the gods who are now not coming in physical form. They're now only downloading information through the wisdom keeper of the tribe. Because, and I asked this once in one of my uh, meditation, actually it's a channeling group in England, I said, what happened to all these gods? And they said, well, we stopped coming uh, because, you know, we had to come in physical form to be on earth. We could take on physical form whenever we wanted to. And I've heard that many times in many cultures around the world. And um, they said, from now on, we just communicate with the shaman of the tribe or someone who is an open channel that can receive information because, you know what, being in human form, it hurts. And we're getting tired of being crucified. And that was the exact words that they used. Okay, we're all tired of being crucified. That's a, uh, we can all have that one as the common ground for that. Yeah. So, Cryon's got a few things to say about this. Yeah, let me get to And him. you can get yourself settled because this is an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. And I'm sure there'll be commercials. Yeah. Yeah. 
I see that in the center there. Yeah, I just... The electrons are a little slow. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks for watching this. I wanted to tell you this is a little time-sensitive. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Healing Wednesday's Circle of Twelve. I'm Lee Carroll. And I'm Monica Morani. And together we bring this program every single week. However, this is our once a month free program. And this one is, is open for everyone to watch. And I want to welcome you, especially if you've never seen us before in this mm -hmm. particular venue and doing this. Yeah. And we have memberships as well. Now the members, they, well, they get a little more. They get this every single week. And those of you who are watching uh, on YouTube, especially, realize this is once a month. I just want to take a moment to uh, tell the members welcome. And, and for those of you who are not members, uh, to uh, let you know that membership includes three more of these programs than you're getting uh, the free. And also, you get free replays basically forever. In other words, there's no limit on the number of replays that you can watch um, if you're a member. And there's also some specials. You get some audios. Perhaps in the future we'll even have some discounts on some of the other things that, that Monica and I do and some of the shows we have. Easy to subscribe. Just go to cryonmasters.com and it's just right in front of you because this is a, I would say our flagship show. Now, I say this every time. If it's your first time, I'll say it again. Streaming, it's different. It's different than watching a video on YouTube. And because of the stream, it requires just a little more browser um, energy and all these things. Just bottom line is this. If it stutters, if it starts and stops, if the sound isn't right, it could be happening from our side, from your side. It doesn't matter. We've designed this to be a good program and easy to watch. But in some parts of the world, there are issues. So here's the instructions. Just turn it off. Um, here we have this large pyramidal structure, and the witnesses, they can't believe they're on. Um, if you're on YouTube and you're having trouble right now, I will say that within a day or so, the replay will be there for free for you. You can see it again. If you're a member, you know it's going to be in your member portal. So don't be frustrated. Just turn it off and uh, come back and watch the replay in smooth in its entirety. All right. Hi. <laughs> we that's you know that's just what I call that is housekeeping is is when we say the same thing every week. I'm happy for you to do it, Lee. You do a really good job. This is our first of the month program. Mm -hmm. We've got a great guest uh, coming up in Absolutely. just a little bit. I mean, terrific. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to talk about that yet. We will in a minute. Uh, however, this is the point where we do some questions and answers. I know what I love about the Circle of Twelve is the the beautiful community that it has created so if this is your first time it's not just welcome to us but welcome to the community and it's filled with so many beautiful old souls and let's get to the questions that these beautiful old souls have been asking us I've chosen three questions that all have a similar theme so here we have Ulf Roger from Sweden. His question is asking, I've been listening to the Circle of Twelve since the beginning, 
but I feel that I am not progressing at all with any kind of healing to the point of giving up. Any advice? Then we have Shiwaya or Shiwaya, I hope I say your name correctly, She uh, from Texas in the US. How do you keep from being discouraged when you intend to heal and you just keep getting worse and worse. And then finally, in this group of three questions, we have Christine from Washington State in the US. Some people report mystical experiences in the Facebook group and Cryon talks about how different that feeling is on the other side of the mist. This is not occurring for me. I'm starting to feel resistance to coming to the meditations as I'm not able to feel different on the other side of the mist. What advice can you give me? Lee, I think you realise the importance of why I've chosen those three questions. Yes, and thank you for that. We have um, several things I want to say right away. Mm-hmm. We tend to group these questions and look for similar questions. So this is an answer to three questions. That's three different people with actually three different experiences, but they're they're related to basically why isn't it working or why am I not feeling certain kinds of things. Um, in our selections of our questions, not only are we going to group them so you get a lot of answers for a lot of people with one, you know, with, with one session, but also so I can take the time to answer it succinctly and correctly the best I can. When we set up the Healing Wednesdays, we knew from the outset that there would be some who are healed and are feeling this, and the healing is from is from uh, lack of peace and uh, it, it's it's uh, all manner of things besides the body. Uh, the healing Wednesday is an experience. It's not just for the healing of certain kinds of things that you would have wrong with you. It's for full body experience. When we set it up, what Cryan said to me very early on, he said this will be a very different experience for very many people. But the fact is it's been extremely successful. And when I say successful, I mean the people are receiving what we are trying to give. It's changing lives. And yet there are always those, like these questions, who are not actually feeling or getting or actually having the healing. So this is what I want to tell you. I hope this truly helps you because... The Healing Wednesday is not for a body part. (laughs) It's not for a disease. It is a full body experience. I want to give you the ABC of this. We had a facilitator on our show, um, and I'm sorry I didn't remember the exactly one one it was, but several now have said this, and was profound. Let me tell you what was said. Healing of the body is a byproduct of the compassion and high consciousness thinking that you'll receive on a regular basis as you get used to the healing of 12 experience. You have to start with love and compassion, and it seems like the rest simply comes along. There is something else, and I don't want to get into this uh, deeply right now, but parts of your subconscious do not want you to be here. 
uh, I, I've experienced this. It's an actual, uh, when you start dropping into your heart and you start going here, part of your sub, subconscious uh, says, oh, this isn't going to work, <laughs> you know? And so you already have the seeds of doubt being planted. And they say, well, it's not logical that you're going to feel this. I think you know this. So you're going to have to, like, um, get used to these kinds of, of feelings and and I'm going to go there in just a moment because you're not battling necessarily the dark side. We're battling all of the things that we've learned from from the time we grew up of why this shouldn't work. So that's also part of it. Now, how do you get through that? The answer, I'll give it yet again. Don't concentrate intellectually on what's wrong with you. You have something you've been working on. So you go to the healing of 12 and you cross the bridge and, and right away you're thinking, well, I'm hoping this is going to work now and, and, and doing all of those things that you've done before. But you're concentrating intellectually on that. Instead, the idea of crossing the bridge is that you drop into your heart. You, you gotta drop the, the, the idea of, of, you know, why you're there specifically for the disease or for the, or for the uncomfort that you're, you're having. And instead, the overview is more important than anything else. Concentrate on the love and the compassion. You deserve to be here. You're loved by the creator. You start concentrating on that and let that be the first thing you do. And quite often, the rest is the byproduct. I want to tell you a story. I told you this, uh, I try to answer these completely. I want to tell you a story. Not only did I personally have this experience, and I've talked about this. I think I had a, um, a, a Facebook Live where I talked about this, where I had the healing from multiple surgeries of my eyes. And, and I just kept looking and saying, when is it going to work? When is it going to work? And when I finally surrendered to this, this concept of the violet flame with St. Germain, it all straightened out. And that, <laughs> that was the, a byproduct. I um, had a wonderful experience with a man named Gary Liljegren. Now, he is the Marshmallow Message Man. He's been my friend now for, for many, many years. He holds the record on how many times he's hosted Cryon, uh, both in Georgia and Florida, over 21 times, I think. And we've done a, a, a blurb on him, but I don't expect you to know him, but I want to tell you the story. When I first met Gary in Florida, and this was the, the first time, um, Gary has a cane, he walks with it, and we went to, um, I, if, I think it was Denny's or something like that. It wasn't very extravagant. And we're sitting at the table and we started talking and he discussed his life with me. And, and, and we started going back and forth and we, we talked about crying and the changes that were made. And he talked about the changes that he experienced. And he, and, and I could tell we almost like choked up because we were talking, you know, guy to guy about some very compassionate, loving life changes that he'd gone through at this point in his life. It was a great meeting. This is where I, where I fell in love with Gary, and he's been my um, long-term friend. So we leave the restaurant. We're going to the parking lot, and we're still talking. And I look at Gary, and I said, did you forget something? And he then, it dawned on him, he left his cane in the restaurant. I even forget whether he went back for it. But he cleared completely and totally. The reason for the cane was gone. All we did was drop into the heart, talk about compassionate things, changes of life, and the healing came with it. This is what I'm talking about. And so more than just a, a place that you hurt or perhaps a disease, even a big one, these are the things that come also with the bigger package. 
So I'm encouraging all of you to understand that this is the thrust. It's not going for the individual healing of a certain thing or you're, you're, you're giving affirmations for a thing. It's more of the bigger package. And it comes with love and compassion and understanding that you are part of a much, much larger picture. You deserve to be here. You're loved by this, the creative source. And all of that, when you start to, to put it together in the bigger, I would say, scheme of things, then starts to work with your cells. Then these things that you do, like talking to your cells and all, is part of many things that you are doing instead of the one thing you think you came for. Such a beautiful, heartfelt answer, Lee. I want to encourage everyone who has been feeling discouraged or feeling that they haven't had that healing Listen to what Lee said again and again because your efforts are so valiant. They are seen by spirit, by God. And keep going, keep going, keep going. You are doing a fantastic job. Just by even making the attempt, it is so recognized and so seen by spirit. So please don't give up. Don't give up. Just keep on going and be open to whatever experience that it's going to be. So with that in mind, let's move into a meditation and hear more from Cryon. Perhaps there's some wisdom that's going to be shared to help those who are feeling discouraged. So Particularly now, if that is you and you are feeling a little discouraged or you are feeling on the point of giving up, let's just suspend time right now. Suspend the thought of giving up on anything and just place your hands on your heart and close your eyes and take a deep breath. Allow your body to relax. Feel all the tension drain away. And I want to remind you that there is nothing to do. All you are being asked in this moment is to surrender yourself into the arms of spirit. Feel yourself being wrapped in a bubble of benevolence, love, support and allow yourself to accept and receive this loving support that is here for you. Allow yourself to feel connected with every other soul on the planet who has tuned in to this message. They too are supporting you and cheering you on. You can do it. You can do this. You can accept the love of God. You can do that.
So just relax a little deeper. There's nothing to do. Simply sit and receive the message from Cryon and the unconditional love that is being poured forth on you now. Greetings, dear ones. I am Cryon of Magnetic Service. We come yet again with a message that is broken into four parts, hearable by all. This will be part one of four, and the subject is different for each part. The subject for this month, for these four meetings, will be spectacular, controversial truths. Spectacular, controversial truths. Things have changed in this last year or so for the messages of crime. And the things that have changed the most is that more are receiving them in a different way than ever before. Whereas in an older time, the media was written. Today, it is less that way. And more of the media that you are seeing and hearing at the moment. Therefore, there are so many who have not heard or read the messages that have been absolutely the foundation of everything that I've wanted to give you. So to some, this is going to be a profound review of truths that have been given now for 30 years. And some will hear this for the first time. Others will hear it again, but differently. Every truth I wish to give you in these four meetings is spectacular. It is spectacular because it changes the very, I would say, foundation of who you think you are, of what you've been told. The second part is controversial to the max because what we are going to say in these truths are not necessarily what you are taught in your culture. And so it becomes controversial to so many. In fact, most. And the third is, it's a truth. Dripping with love, compassion, reality, it's a truth. The first one I wish to give you is the one that we have given you over and over. But this time, in this truth, in this message, I want you to cognize it completely. If you wish to, if you can. This spectacular truth is this. The creative source of your soul, that which you call God or spirit, whatever name you have given, this this planet of yours believes in this creative source, this God, universally almost. 80% or more of humanity believes in the afterlife. They understand 
that there is a soul, that there had to be a creative source of that soul. And then here come all of the doctrines that talk about how this works, how to worship it. What does God think about all these things? And there becomes a setup for a relationship or not, or knowledge, perhaps, of the creative source. Here's what I want to tell you. The spectacular, controversial truth of all time is this. This creator of your soul, this God, spirit, this beautiful, compassionate, spectacular energy does not judge you and does not punish you. Did you hear that? Listen to that again. Beautiful creative source filled with love, all that is, that created your soul and put you in the image of itself, this creative source does not judge you, does not punish you. And yet, the majority of the doctrines of this planet have ignored the fact that God does not think like a human. God does not think at all. Thinking itself is a process that you do. God simply is an energy that is overwhelmingly forgiving and loving beyond anything that you can imagine. And what you have done instead, you being the collective you on this planet, is made God into literally a dysfunctional father. Dysfunctional? I'll tell you why in a moment. Because it is much less logical or functional than you are. Listen. You've had this beautiful source creator, according to the doctrines of the planet, so many of them, put you on this planet almost as babes in the woods, give you instructions, back away. And then according to your doctrine, humanity has done something wrong. It did not obey the instructions. And so immediately, this this free choice you've had (laughs) has been judged according to your doctrine. Not only has that free choice been judged, but punished. So therefore, because of a dysfunction, you might say, of one or two humans in your doctrine, in the front of your story, all humanity is then going to be sent and punished to bad places. Unless, of course, you do something. And that something is then hooked to what you call the belief in masters or the belief in processes or things. So if you do certain kinds of things You can escape the punishment. This is what you're being told and what you've always been told. Not only that, if you don't do these things, this beautiful creator of your soul built in your image is going to then take you to a horrible place, give you over to a a devilish idea of being tortured every day, burned alive, skinned. You think that I'm making this up? Just, Just take a look at the paintings in some of your churches. Depicting this. How do you make that? How do do you think that makes the children feel who go into the chapels and, and see these paintings of the horror if they don't behave? 
I'm going to ask you yet again. Do you think this came from God or do you think this came from men? And the answer is obvious. It's not even spiritually logical that God would set you up to punish you. Controversial? Oh yes, because it flies in the face of almost all of the doctrines that you've ever had. Almost all of them. You better behave. It almost equates to a dysfunctional father, and that is this. As parents, mom, let me ask you, how much do you love your children? The love of a parent for a child is the greatest love that is on the planet. It just is. Mom, if, you're, if your child makes a mistake, what do you do? You pick them up, you wipe their tears, they try again, you give them the instructions again and again. Even a wayward child, even one who, who hasn't listened and goes off to do things that, that, that are awful for their lives, you love them anyway. You don't take them and look them in the eye and say, well, you failed. And because of that, I'm going to torture you now. I told you. You don't do it. Did you think the creator of the universe would do it? <laughs> there are even so many stories and so many scriptures and so many allegories trying to give you the information. The, the prodigal son, the story, the, the parable where you have one son does everything right, one son does everything wrong, and then when they get home, the father gives both of them the same party, basically. What does that tell you about that creator? Loved beyond measure, no matter what. There are those humans who say, wait a minute, there's got to be a price to pay if you're a bad person. I will tell you this, in this 3D world, as human beings, in your societies, there is. And then you handle it the way you do. But there is a grander plan that has nothing to do with what you do with free choice on the consciousness of this planet. There is a plan. There are other experiences to come in some of the other channels I'm going to give you that show you that there's a cycle here. There are ways of working the puzzle between dark and light without punishing and torturing every soul who's here who doesn't do something right. I say it again. The biggest spectacular truth. You are loved beyond measure. You deserve to be here. Did you hear that? And you will not be punished if you don't toe the line with some kind of process or climb certain stairs or say certain words or worship some prophet. Controversial, very, very much. Do you understand the logic, the spiritual logic, that God loves you enough that when he gives you free choice, you really do have free choice? Free choice to develop this planet in any way you see without intervention at the moment of some of these choices. There are Many who ask crying, why don't you tell us who to vote for? Why don't you tell us uh, about this or that? And, and, and I will say yet again that these particular choices shape your humanity. They shape your culture. This is what free choice is all about. What are you going to do? 
And since 2012, you've made such a spectacular choice to stay and start the light coming up. You are loved even more than before. There is no hell, dear ones. There is no punishment, dear ones. Only love, only compassion. Controversial enough? Think about it. Spectacular. And so it is. And very gently, in your own time, you may slowly open your eyes if you've had them closed. And just bring your awareness back into your body, back into the room. Relax your shoulders, relax all the parts of your body. And we are so delighted to welcome to this next section an, an amazing speaker. Lee, I know you've been really excited for this. Ever since she said yes, I was jumping up and down because uh-huh. I know she's very, very busy. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping a lot of people don't know about Lynn McTaggart because this will then be a revelation for them. And uh, it's, it's just exciting. Absolutely. So let's just check. Lynn, are you there? I am here. Thank you. Wonderful. Yes, and we're speaking to you, I know, all the way from from the UK. I'll just start this now. Lynn McTaggart is one of the central voices in the new consciousness movement, an award-winning journalist, author of seven books, including worldwide international bestsellers. You might have heard of some of these. I hope you have. Power of Eight. The Field, big one, The Intention Experiment, The Bond, all considered what they call seminal books of the new science and are now translated into some 30 languages. Now, I just want to stop there before we go any more in a bio. Lynn is, I I consider her the pioneer of something that today is literally bursting out. Mm -hmm. It's not just the rage. It's not just the, the subject something that has now been started to be proven with experiments, and she started it, as far as I'm concerned, the idea of coherence group to group. She was doing experiments with large groups of people in different countries. Uh, now we're starting to measure this. So when we talk about the field, when we talk about coherence and heart math and all the things that have happened in these last, I say, decades or so, uh, Lynn is the one that I think of who literally was first. And so this makes us very excited to have her. I know. And because of all of that, Lynn has got so many names that people have called her. And here, here are just a few, which I love. Metaphysical rock star, the Madonna of the quantum world, the Malcolm Gladwell of new science, and my favorite is the Dalai Mama. And now she's been consistently voted one of the world's top 100 spiritual leaders for groundbreaking work with consciousness and the power of intention. Lynn is known for the quality of her writing and in-depth research, her inspirational speaking style, and her uncompromising role as new thought leader and spiritual change agent. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, this, that really puts it mildly. Lynn, I want to, and welcome to our program. I'm going to turn, turn it over to you. And I'm gonna, one of the first things I'm going to ask is like, wow, how, how did all this start with you and happen? And then 
and then I know we don't have much time, and then you can go on to some of the, the more current things that are, you're, you're in. Thank you. Thank you so much, Monica and Lee, for that wonderful introduction. Um, I got hijacked into this work. That's the only thing I can really say. I am an investigative reporter by training, and it really started, my work in this area started in the mid-90s. Um, I am also co-editor and co-founder of a magazine called What Doctors Don't Tell You. And there I was in the mid-90s looking at medicine and what works and what doesn't work in conventional and alternative medicine. And that required looking through a lot of scientific studies. And when I was doing that, I kept coming across these really good studies of a spiritual healing. And I kept thinking to myself, well, how can that be? Um, how can you take a thought and send it to someone else and make them better? That in itself undermines everything we think about how the world works. So, you know, journalists are curious. And I was curious about this, but I really didn't even know what I was looking for. So I, I convinced my publishers to let me go on a journey, you know, a, a journey without a compass. And I thought, you know, I'll find out that there is such a thing as human energy fields or something like that. If I talk to all of these researchers, these pioneers in consciousness and in quantum physics. So I talked to many of them and from one to the other to the other. You know, being a journalist is like pulling on a long uh, ball of string. And as I did, I quickly realized that I'd stumbled onto a new science in the making, a completely new view of us, and a new view of the world. So I kept following that, and I talked to many of these scientists, and the weird thing about quantum physicists and consciousness researchers are two things. One, they talk in kind of a code. They talk in math. And so they need to be decoded. And also, they don't like to uh, extend beyond their own experiential work, their own experimental work. They don't want to speculate about what this all means. So I realized that was going to have to fall to me. So I was patiently tutored in quantum physics by these guys and, and women, and that became my book, The Field. But there was a lot of unfinished business as far as I was concerned, which was a lot of experimental evidence showing that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. So the journalist in me, the skeptic in me, the doubting Thomas in me, was basically saying, yeah, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a tiny subtle effect like moving a quantum particle, or are we talking about curing cancer with your thoughts? And it started out really as a correction, this work, the intention experiment, because there have been a lot of things written about, you know, in the movie The Secret and lots of things that were presenting this in a very simple way, which was wonderful to acquaint people to the whole idea about the law of attraction. But I felt there was there needed to be more. So I decided to set up a thing called the intention experiment. And it was a it was a kind of a crazy whim. I, I thought I'll do a book which will also be an invitation to my audiences to take part in these ongoing experiments. 
because I figured, well, I, the field was in 30 languages by then, so I thought, well, I've got some readers out there, and I also know a lot of scientists working in consciousness research. So if I put them together, I'll have the biggest global laboratory in the world. So that's what we did. And they, uh, you know, we started off really small with seeds and leaves and, uh, you know, trying to shift water and make it more pure. And, you know, I didn't think it was going to work, but it really worked. I mean, we've done everything from those kinds of experiments to lowering violence in war-torn areas to trying to heal someone of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, to trying to end polarization in areas. And of our 36 experiments we've done to date, 32 have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. I mean, there's no drug out there with that kind of consistent track record. So that was pretty interesting. But what was starting to shock me, particularly when we started doing these peace intention experiments, trying to lower violence, I decided to survey the participants just to see what kind of experience they had and if there were any after effects. And I was stunned to find out they were writing back extraordinary things. They were talking about making up with estranged relatives. They were saying that since the experiment, they were getting along better with their coworkers or their bosses, or they had forgiven their children. You know, their lives were becoming more peaceful. But the biggest result was really weird. About 40% said they were getting along better with everyone they came in contact with. They were more in love with strangers, basically. You know, I was just bowled over by this. I didn't know what to think of it, but I kept studying it because I kept surveying people whenever we would run an experiment to see if it was, as I thought, this bizarre mirror effect. So it was around, the intention experiments started around 2007. And I decided about a year later, well, maybe we should scale this down to a workshop. But I wasn't really sure what to do. You know, I'm a journalist. I never, never put forward that I'm a healer. So I wasn't really sure what to do. So I was kicking it around with my husband one day. And I turned to him and said, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll just put people in groups of eight or so and have them send healing intention to a member of the group with a health challenge. And he is a, also a journalist and a very good headline writer. And he said, I love it, the power of eight. And that's how we started. We had this first workshop, put people in groups of eight or so. We didn't expect it to be anything more than a nice little feel-good effect. And lo and behold, when we had people come back the next day after this group situation, they came back and reported all of the recipients, you know, I have migraines every day of my life and they're clear today. I'm walking with a terrible limp. I have terrible arthritis in one knee and it's feeling normal. I'm walking normally down. I'm skipping down the steps. Somebody else had terrible gut problems and they were gone. Somebody else had cataracts and they were 80% better. So I'm thinking to myself, what on earth is going on here? And I also was very skeptical about it. I thought, oh, well, this is just a placebo effect. Um, but the more I ran it, the more I found, 
people who had never done this before, even the senders themselves were getting healed. And I'll tell you both about an amazing thing that happened last summer, just last summer, um, when I think uh, the last summer we were able to do a talk in person, which I guess is about is about a year and a half ago. So <clears throat> I was speaking in front of a group of about 700. And there I had everybody put into groups, as I always do. After I finished talking, I say, okay, let's experience this. So I put people into groups of eight or so, had them send healing intention to a member of the group of the health challenge. And after this kind of experience, I always ask people to raise their hand and tell us if they've experienced any kind of change. So we had some amazing stories of people with terrible pain being, you know, the pain being relieved and uh, people with other conditions feeling that they were better, headache gone, those kinds of things. So the last, when I asked for one more, there were a group sitting in the front and they were all pointing to one woman. And there she was. Um, and she was in, her name is Maya, I later learned, and she was sitting in a wheelchair. She was paralyzed from the neck down. And they said, you've got to have her talk. And they wanted to try to help her to stand because people were standing to do their talk. And she said, I don't need you. And she got up out of her wheelchair. Oh, my God. And I know. It was amazing. And we have it on film because the whole conference was being filmed. Um, and I was so blown away by this that I actually called her afterward and had a Zoom conversation with her to say, Maya, what was that? How did that feel? And are you still, you know, okay? Are you still walking, et cetera? And she had had this really weird idiopathic uh, paralysis that would come and go and had mostly come in the time before she had this intention. But she said there was something really weird that happened. She felt more love than she'd ever felt in her life from this group of strangers sending her intention. So she said it was almost too much for me. So she sent it on to a relative of hers who had cancer. And it was that moment, she said, and this was so interesting to me, that moment when she passed it on, that altruistic moment that she felt the wheels of her wheelchair going through the floor as she described it. And I think that was a really key piece. Two things that she said that are really key in the work that I've done to try to understand this phenomenon. Because, you know, the journalist in me, the skeptic in me, it keeps saying, what's going on here? Exactly why can we heal people in an instant like this? Because I've seen it now thousands of times. And I think she hit on a really key piece, which is that feeling of overwhelming love. And I think it's something even beyond that. You know, we may feel love in our life, but number one, these are a group of strangers she's never seen before. Number two, she's experiencing love, but she's also experiencing a state of oneness. And I think, you know, as the work I've done uh, and researched, uh, demonstrates, you know, we have a perception of ourselves 
as a separate entity in a lonely planet, in a lonely universe. That is our understanding of what it is to be human. But when you look at the new science, it's very, very different. What we see is that we're actually all connected. Now, lots of people go, yeah, we're all connected, man. But <laughs> what we're talking about is actually we are connected. We are connected through our subatomic particles. You know, we are at our most elemental, not a lot of electrical signaling and chemistry. We are subatomic particles that are pure energy. They're vibrating packets of energy. And they trade energy with other subatomic particles, like an ongoing game of tennis. And what this gives rise to is an enormous energy-dense field. Now, this is so energy-dense that the energy between me and you, if you were sitting about one yard away from me, would be enough to boil all the oceans of the world. That's how much energy is going on here, out there in empty space, like some supercharged backdrop. So what we understand is we are really all connected. And subatomic particles are a very interesting phenomenon because, number one, they go on to infinity. And they also can take on an infinite amount of information. You know, if you wanted to put the Library of Congress on a sugar cube, um, you could do so if they were all quantum waves. That's how big and energy dense this field is. But quantum, uh, quantum waves go on to infinity. They can also take on information from other quantum waves or particles. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. And that means that they have an infinite capacity to store information. So many scientists believe that this field out there, that energy-dense quantum field, is like a mothership of all information. And that through this, we are all connected. Through our subatomic particles, through that endless game of tennis, we are all connected. But we don't get to experience that. But what I've seen over and over and over again is that we do get to experience this with a power of a group. That's where we see it. So what I find and what we've studied with brainwave studies is when people get into a small group with group intention, people leave their own individuality and they, they enter a state of oneness. Now, I've seen that in brainwave studies that we did I was very lucky, Life University, the largest chiropractic university in the world, offered to put their neuroscientists at my disposal. So we, uh, we gathered together some student volunteers, seven groups of student volunteers. We put them in groups. We put an EEG cap to measure brain waves on one of each member of the group, of each group. And then afterward, we looked at them, and the neuroscientist who ran the study, Dr. Stephanie Sullivan, was amazed, as was I, because she was convinced she was going to see brainwave signatures 
identical to meditation. But that's not what happened. What happened was she found a global quieting of certain portions of the brain on the right side. The parietal lobes, and now you can see me here, this is where the parietal lobes are. They help us navigate through space. They tell us what's me and what's not me. And they were dialed way down, as were the parts of the brain, the right frontal lobes involved with worry, doubt, negativity. They were dialed way down. And these brainwave signatures, although nothing like meditation, were everything like, they're almost identical to University of Pennsylvania studies of Sufi masters during chanting and Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer. These people, these students we were testing, these novices, pure novices, were in a state of ecstatic oneness. But here was the really interesting piece as far as I was concerned. You know, when we think about a mystical experience, uh, a state of oneness, we think you got to suffer to do it. You know, you got to go into a sweat lodge or walk over hot coals or, you know, spend years um, in dedicated practice. Or you have to spend hours going into a certain kind of priming to get into that state. My students were complete novices who'd never even meditated before. And after they had some basic instruction from me, and that was it. Nevertheless, they entered a state of incredible oneness. And when I have looked afterward, talking to people who are in power bait groups about their experience in it, Overwhelmingly, they describe what many people, like the late psychologist Andrew Abraham Maslow, described as peak experiences, feelings of overwhelming sense of oneness, of being, of, you know, physical changes, being really out of your body, um, a, a sense of a kind of blinding epiphany of meaning. You suddenly understand what the world you know, what the world means, a sense of rejuvenation, you know, of falling back in love with your life, and much, much more. And my students, my Power of Eight groups were experiencing all of these. And so I realized that the Power of Eight, you know, you don't need a sweat lodge. You don't need hours of priming. All you need is a group and a common intention, and it's a passport a fast track to the miraculous. That is amazing. And I know that there are people watching right now and their question is this, how do I get into one of those power groups? That's right, right. What's next for them? Okay, fantastic. Well, it takes a bit of practice, but not a huge amount to learn how to be an intention master. It doesn't take, you know, years of dedication but you do need to know what I consider to be 13 keys of intention mastery. And you need to assemble a group. But here's the cliff notes for it. These are the simple ways to do this. You need to assemble a group. You need to come up with a common intention. Um, and you all, if you're in 
present together can hold hands. Somebody says the intention out loud. Everybody brings it down to their hearts. Everybody visualizes the recipient achieving that goal, whatever it is, with their five senses and send it out. Um, the recipient just opens up to his heart to receive. Ten minutes, you hold that intention, holding those thoughts together. Now, that's the simple basis of it. But And you can set these up in person or you can set them up visu- uh, virtually. I have a place on my website, my community site, where thousands of people are setting up their own groups. They can do it on our community page um, at lynnmctaggart.com. They can do it on a Facebook page I set up during COVID last year called Connecting and Healing Through the Power of Eight to, to get people together, you know, during that crisis because I realized so many people were alone. Now, here's the great thing about it. It works just as well virtually, and that's what I do on my courses. Invariably, I put people into groups. For instance, I run a year-long master class called the Power of Eight Intention Master Class where I teach for six weeks and then I put people into groups and I monitor what goes on with them for a whole year. And uh, what we've found is it's all about meeting in the groups regularly. For those people who meet regularly, week after week after week, pretty much 100% experience transformations, major transformations in their lives, whether it is their health um, or their career or finances, their relationships, even their life's purpose. You know, I'll give you an example from our last one. We did, you know, we just finished the 2020 class in January of 2021 before kicking off with the new one in February. And the 2020 class, we had some amazing stories. We had um, one woman who was addicted to sugar and so badly that she would get up in the middle of the night and binge and then be really tired and sleep all morning and get up in the afternoon. So this was affecting her health and her marriage. So her group really intended for her to, you know, to let go of her addiction. She did. She's lost a whole lot of weight. She started exercising. She started meditating. Her relationship with her husband is vastly improved. And she said this is about the best time of her life. And she had that amazing support of the group, which I think is another key piece. I think that's what's so amazing. We had another guy who had terrible chronic fatigue, healed and has gone back to work. Had another woman who was addicted to antidepressants for 22 years and with the help of her group and their intentions got off of her drugs had never been able to do that even when she tried to lower the dosage and you know on and on other people finding their dream home one of my favorite joy asked the group to do an intention to open her heart and you know to love and lo and behold after they do the intention for her a boyfriend of hers from 30 years ago, calls her up, and they're now madly in love and have got back together. It's so cute. 
So we've seen all of these kinds of things, but they are with, it's all about the week after week connection. So, you know, I think to myself, well, what's going on here, really? And I think it's a combination. There is, of course, the power of intention. It's extraordinary. You know, it's true. Your thoughts are things that affect other things. There's no question. Thoughts are medicine. You know, new studies of the placebo effect show that even when somebody knows they're getting a placebo, as long as the doctor tells them this is going to work for you, it does. Now, what is that? That's a thought that got them better. They found all of enormous brain changes. Every part of the brain involved with pain changes when you take a placebo for pain medication, you know, a sugar pill. So thoughts are, you know, thoughts are powerful, no question. But then we also have the group effect. Groups have a kind of amazing dynamic, you know, a collective effervescence, as a noted psychologist called them. There's also altruism, a huge, huge piece. You know, when I study the science of altruism, I, it demonstrates that altruism is like a bulletproof vest. You know, we are healthier, happier, and live longer lives with altruistic behavior. And this, a power of eight group, is altruistic because seven-eighths of the time, you're doing the giving, not the receiving. <laughs> but I see over and over again, people who are stuck, when I say to them, get off of yourself. Stop intending for yourself and intend for someone else that's the moment they change. I think of Lisa, who is stuck. This is this you know? is this is awesome. We're we are believe it or not, almost out of time. You have just reinforced almost everybody who's been on this program, who basically said that the healing that they're after is almost a side effect of the consciousness that starts it. And, uh, and and I'm sorry I interrupted you in the in the process of your closing there. It's just that I, w- I don't want to miss this part. Do you have something to give our folks as far as uh, your website or some things that are happening? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lee. Yes, well, we continue to run intention experiments, and the latest ones we've done are ending polarization. We've been doing some with Arabs and Israelis, and most recently Republicans and Democrats. Uh, right before the American inauguration. So you can take part in our intention experiments on our website, lynnmctaggart.com. Plus, we're, re- we're running a number of new courses, one just for practitioners called Become a Better Healer with the Power of Eight because practitioners don't realize it. Thoughts are everything when it comes to healing, not only your patients, but yours. Yours and your words that you use. So I work on that and as well as showing how to do power of eight groups. And we've got an amazing new course called Intention Mastery, Backward and Forward in Time. Because I've been doing a lot of intention out of time, both healing the past and designing the future. So everything is on lynnmctaggart.com. You can check it out. Awesome. Fabulous. We just love everything you have said. You are looking so vibrant. You are walking your truth and guiding. It's so simple. That's what I love about what you have to offer. 
It's so simple. We're going to take a 10-minute break and I encourage you, go and check out her website, lynnmctaggart.com. See you you soon. Thank you. (laughs) Again, I want to reflect on uh, the profundity of what Lynn McTaggart has done on this planet. She Mm -hmm. was a forerunner as far as, I said that before, but I'll say it again. Of all of these things which are now being scientifically proven, thank you, Lynn, once again for, for who you are. Absolutely. Power of eight. What a beautiful, beautiful concept. And so many are being healed. So healing has many shapes and forms. Again, I love your answer to the questions earlier about being discouraged and being open to compassion. Compassion was what generates the healing. And so I'd like us to now move into the short meditation before the circle of 12. However, this time, as we prepare to enter the circle of 12, let us begin by giving some statements of intent. I will say each intent three times and you are invited to say them silently or aloud. I release all expectations and I am willing to be open to the energy of compassion in my life. I release all expectations and I am willing to be open to the energy of compassion in my life. I release all expectations and I am willing to be open to the energy of compassion in my life. I accept the perfect love of God. I accept the perfect love of God. I accept the perfect love of God. I give permission to experience the grandness of my soul. I give permission to experience the grandness of my soul. I give permission to experience the grandness of my soul. I am ready. Greetings, dear ones. I am Cryon. Come a little closer. You're going to hear that expression many times. It's not an expression that I used necessarily in the last 30 years. It's new because this is a new energy. The energy that is new is an invitation. An invitation energy to discover that that you're really truly made up of. 
And in order to do that, the metaphor is to come closer to the other side of the veil. There are many who have asked, well, well, Kryon, who really truly are you all? Are, are, are you a, a human? Are you somebody who used to be a human? And what is, what is the energy of Kryon? It's an intellectual pursuit, dear ones, for you to try to understand and figure out an angelic energy. That is who Kryon is. If you even use the word who? It is the 3D of you who wants to identify in three dimensions everything that is. Who is God? The very question would, would make you logically say, well, well, if you say who is God and give an explanation, will you say, well, then who is next to God? It's a very 3D question. The energy of the other side of the veil is one energy. All of us who give you messages of any kind, especially those who have never been human here on this planet, bring to you the same energy. It's the same energy from the creative source. Indeed, if you want to call it angelic, do so. Well, that is the definition for some of you of compassion and love, understanding. And that's what sits before you now. I'm crying. But in that, not just one entity, I represent the multitudes. The energy of the other side of the veil when it looks upon you and knows your name. I represent every healing that has ever occurred on the planet. I represent every epiphany that has ever occurred on the planet. Because when those things happen, there is a coherence. Have you heard the word before? The coherence is a mingling of consciousness. And if you wish to intellectualize it, you will not understand it. Mingling of consciousness is what you feel when you're in love. It's the best example I can give you. Those who have, have, have fallen in love, as they say, have fallen together into coherence. And what they think about each other often is the same thing. One will have a thought, the other one is thinking it. A coherence of compassionate love The mother who looks in the eyes of her child for the first time at birth. The welcome to earth moment. The love, the compassion. It cannot be described. There is a coherence immediately between the mother and the child breathing the same air in the same space. As one. This is one. This is, it's when the magic happens when you cross the bridge. Now, there have been those who would say, well, I'm not feeling that magic yet. It's a setup, isn't it? Indeed, a 3D moment 
When we're on one side of the bridge, then we cross the bridge and we're in the portal. A 3D moment, meaning there's the A and there's the B, there's the crossing, there's not the crossing. And you expect that when you go through the mist, everything will change. Perhaps this is the first time I have said it. Why not do that now? Why not cross the bridge in your mind before you do it in 3D? Why not drop into your heart at the moment and just sit and think to yourself, this is a magic time and a magic place. I deserve to be here. And you do. You've given some affirmations a moment ago. Truly, that's what they were. Permission you've given. If you said the words, you know where we're going. It's your willingness to think out of the box. It's your willingness to not be then focused or connected to one certain thing that you come for. But rather to think, what if all of me is going to change? What if I could have coherence, you might say, with the other side of the veil? And if you have thought of that, then I don't have to tell you anything more, because that is Healing Wednesday. It is when you develop a coherence with your soul, the bridge you cross becomes something that you are. Brian, what do you mean by such a statement? How can the bridge become something we are? What if there were no bridge? If you wake up in the morning, what if you're in the portal and you're also on the planet? If you have that experience, dear ones, you are in coherence with your soul. And that is the goal. That someday, when these programs are not produced as they are now, you still have the experience of crossing the bridge. And that can simply be all the time, even when you sleep, because that is who you are. It's more than a change of life. It's a, it's a paradigm change of your existence. When you change your mind and a, a paradigm of who you are then moves away, you change perhaps what you do for a living because you're no longer happy with one thing and you do something else or, or you have an epiphany of of consciousness that says, well, I want to help people more or do something like that. Do you understand just how remarkable that is? It's like you move to another layer and your reality is different. How many of you have looked back on your life and said, that's not me? And I'm not talking about looking at yourself when you were, for instance, in school. I'm talking about as an adult. Ten years ago, maybe, maybe less. And you look back and you say, that is not me. I am different now. I think different. I act different. I am different. Some of you have even changed your name. You're so different. That is a change of coherence. You are now resonating at a higher level with the other side of the veil. 
you've crossed a bridge. Let's do that. Let's do that now for all of you. We'll do it again in what you will call 3D, and I will walk you through the potentials. But here's an invitation. Why not do it before you cross the mist? What if the mist simply was a a demarcation point so that you can feel a 3D journey is at hand? But in reality, you're already there. Let's go. Come to the bridge with me right now, as you do every single time. If you're new to this, there's a bridge between that which you know and that which you do not. And we're going to cross it now. And in the middle of that bridge, a mist. A mist that keeps you from seeing what's on the other side of the mist. And that is on purpose. It's not to create uncertainty or fear. It's not to create a test. It's because when you cross that mist, all of you will see or feel or experience something's different from this side. Now, for those who say, well, I have trouble feeling or seeing or all of that, I say to you right now, what if you don't need that? What if instead you simply sit and feel the incredible caring for you that the creative source has? That's all that we're asking. You go to a place that changes you. Come across the bridge with me now. To the middle of the bridge you are, the mist is there. For those of you who visualize, who see, who feel, and want to do this, come with me. Let me take your hand. And before you cross in the mist, we'll do something we've done before. All of you watching, Take all of your hands. Why don't we cross together, all of you? There are a lot of you. You're going to have a lesson today in coherence. Let's go. Crossing the mist is a metaphor. For going to a place without expectations. Going to a place where you're not saying, well, I'm going to go there and I'm going to a theater that in the round that we always go to and I'm going, I'm going to be healed there. Instead, you step into a new consciousness paradigm where everything is so different, where every cell of your body is so different. And you float over if you wish to or you walk over if you wish to to that doorway when we're going into the theater together. We always go to this theater. It's a metaphor, dear ones. The doorway is a metaphor. It's an opening and entrance between what is and what's going to be. And you go in and you see this theater in the round. And the expectation, of course, is there's an audience or not, but the potential of one. In other words, you're going to be on stage and there's watchers or participators. That's the metaphor. It's always the same. Come with me. Through the door, if you wish. Down the stairs in this sunken theater of the round, up onto the stage and into 
this chair. We always go there, dear ones. We've said this before. The chair itself is a symbol. And it can mean so many things to so many people. If you stand and you're examined, that has a connotation of judgment, does it not? Stand and deliver is an expectation that you're going to have to do something. But when you sit down, it's comfortable. You sit down with a friend and you discuss things. You don't stand with a friend necessarily in your house for a length of time and discuss things. You sit down. In that sitting position, we've said before, it allows your feet to be washed. <laughs> Hard to do when you're standing up. It's a metaphor. Relax. Sit in the chair. The audience tonight is already there. But this particular audience is different. This is an audience of those you've never met and you may not meet. It's an audience that represents those from all cultures all over the planet. Some cultures you know of, languages you've heard of, and ones you don't know of, and languages that are impossible to you. But in this multidimensional space of soul discovery, you're meeting their their soul level parts. So there are no real differences in language or even in culture because the soul is the soul and all souls are identical with that kernel of love and compassion at the center. All things earthly are dropped away. And you look at them and they look at you and there is a feeling of exuberance. Truly, the audience is electric. Something is coming. And then you start to feel it. And here is the invitation. I want you to have a coherence, not just with the souls of those people, but with those people, with those countries, with the fact that all of them have family, just like you. I want you to have a coherence with them meaning a two-way feeling that they may wish to have a healing as well. It's a tough time on the planet, dear ones. It still is. There are fears and anxieties. Question. If two groups of people are in coherence together, have you learned that it starts to lessen the fear? Make it less. Have you learned what else happens? that there is far more compassion and love in a coherence than anything else it's required. That's the energy that creates coherence, heartfelt energy that passes between souls, between those of consciousness. Science is starting to show this is real. I want you to sit right now, not just in coherence with the rest of those in this program, but with the planet. Is that too much to ask? 
they have souls just like you do. Don't, don't, don't mind that there's so many of them. It, it's meaningless. Think of them as one coherent group. And you step into their group and they welcome you. And they say to you, you are as loved as we are. And then they remind you that the more you can have this wonderful singularity, coherence with the other side of the veil and your soul energy, the more that happens, the more the 3D experience is translated right to yourselves and the healing that you came for comes with it. Are you understanding this? You practice a coherence with everyone around you, even stretching across the oceans, and you will find you are dearly loved. Go from this place with peace. Is that what you came for? And so it is. I know I needed that. I hope everybody else did too. I can't imagine why not. I will say that this is the singular most important issue. We're going to play Hanan, who is a faction three white knight, and she's talking with Afshin Ratansi about what Israel did to the Palestinians last week. So let's put all that good vibration into holding the accountability for Israel's basically murder of children, women, men. That was major war crime. Yes. Here we go. Absolutely, when you have hundreds of innocent civilians killed, 
and adopting a statement from the Security Council. Not a resolution, just a statement from the Security Council. He delayed meetings of the Security Council, saying that we are engaged in, in silent diplomacy. What diplomacy? I mean, they, they, they said there's a fourth-level civil servant. They can't talk to Hamas anyway, and they think that this is diplomacy? You have to address the real issues. You have to address the root causes. You have to address the uh, the um, war crimes and, and the crimes against humanity that are being committed against the Palestinians. Well, Israel denies uh, all of that, and um, it appears that uh, the secret evidence that uh, the United States gets is not permitted to come to the media or to the public. I mean, what what do you? How do you rate Tony Blinken? Biden's uh, Secretary of State, who said he hadn't seen the evidence that uh, there was a need to uh, destroy the Associated Press and Al Jazeera in uh, in Gaza. But now, intelligence sources have briefed him. No, actually, there is no evidence, so how can he see it? They brief them by saying that Israel thinks that there is an office for Hamas in that building, and so they have to destroy a building that houses Hundreds, actually, of officers, uh, doctors, lawyers, and of, of uh, media stations. They totally demolished and destroyed this whole building because they suspect that there is an office for Hamas in that building, even though there is no proof. And actually, Hamas has many offices everywhere because it's not military, all of it. Hamas has... has uh, Information offices, has human rights offices, has NGOs, has all sorts of things all over the place. You cannot go around bombing and shelling huge high-rise buildings because you think that Hamas may have had an office. It, it could have been even health services or a daycare center or whatever. These things Hamas has everywhere. But this is disingenuous. It has been exposed. This kind of propaganda, this kind of spin. I don't think Tony Blinken thinks he's lying. Only, oh yes. Are you shocked? (laughs) (laughs) They've been lying all along. I mean, I'm shocked when they're not lying, frankly, when they're not manufacturing an alternative reality to blame the victim and play the role of victim. So is is the quartet dead if the United States and Britain, which also affirmed the right of self-defense of Israel. Is the quartet dead if people like that are involved in the quartet? The quartet has been dead for a long time. And actually, the whole issue of self-defense is not only to distort reality, it's not only to justify Israel and uh, buy it more time to kill more Palestinians and destroy more homes, but it is also to prepare a smokescreen in order to shield Israel from investigation and indictment by the International Criminal Court because Israel constantly uh, attacks, kills, destroys massive uh, destruction and then says we are in a state of self-defense or we are in compliance with international law, both of which are, of course, blatant lies. And yet they're saying this to prepare the case because I'm sure that these crimes against humanity and these war crimes will be investigated, and they have to be. Well, you know, you've you've said this many times, as thousands and thousands of Palestinians have been killed over the years, let alone the Hamas officials, of course, who were also killed in the recent fighting. Where is is Mahmoud Abbas, and do you think the Palestinian Authority will 
now understand that a one-state solution is what the Palestinian people uh, realize is the future. The two-state solution is dead now. I think the two-state solution is that Ahmad Abbas, who has really tested not with the international community, with the international law, with the negotiated settlement, but let's, you know, work and, and show how peaceful and nice and cooperative we are. That agenda has been destroyed by Israel, by Israeli actions, because Israel did not comply with any of its obligations. Well, it really was destroyed by the... But surely it was destroyed by Fatah and the Palestinian Authority as well, who kept seeking the two-state solution whilst all the settlements were making that impossible. Exactly. That's exactly the point. That Israel felt that it can just say we are in the middle of talks or we are negotiating or whatever, and at the same time continue to steal more land, more resources, build more settlements, which are war crimes in accordance with the ICC, the Rome Statute, and continues to kill and demolish and carry out a comprehensive ethnic cleansing plan in Jerusalem and around it, attacking Al-Aqsa Mosque, changing reality on the ground, all these things, thinking that it's okay, we will negotiate sooner or later. This is not the case. That's why they undermine their uh, counterpart in Palestine. The PLO negotiation strategy has certainly been undermined and has certainly lost any kind of credibility by the Palestinian public, and that's why as the whole world sat back, including the U.S., including uh, Europe, and so on, and watched while Israel destroyed the two-state solution and acted with full impunity outside the law, as still committed to the two-state solution, well, tough luck. You enabled and allowed Israel to destroy the two-state solution. So what is left? I don't think a one-state solution has become an agenda, but it is the outcome. When you blur the divide, the green line, what Israel has succeeded to do now is to unite all Palestinians everywhere, frankly, because this, this relentless assault, this policy of discrimination against Palestinians and Israel, and they are not Arabs, as they say, because they want to eradicate the identity of the Palestine and Palestinians, the Palestinians in the West Bank, including Jerusalem, in Gaza, in 48 Palestine, which became Israel, in exile, in refugee camps, along with the Solidarity people, are coming out in force. They are you saying, just finally, on, on that force, because uh, I, I have to ask one thing about how, obviously, the narrative here is the, the whole recent uh, war began with uh, Hamas rockets. Of course, it began with the alleged ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah. But also that, that came just after the Human Rights Watch report about uh, apartheid, uh, comparing Israel to apartheid. Nelson Mandela was unequivocally explicit about, the, uh, about how white South Africans, civilians, could be targets in militant struggle. Do you believe that now an ANC-style struggle is on the cards against Israel? I think you are beginning to see a state of self-defense by Palestinians who are saying we are not going to be the, the victims. We are not going to continue to accept this kind of horrific violence exercised against us and not lift the finger. Uh, and because if you try to defend yourself, even though international law allows you to defend yourself using all means, including obstacle, you are immediately labeled as terrorists. This is what Israel has done, labeling all Palestinians as terrorists, labeling everybody in, in uh, Gaza as Hamas, 
And of course, Hamas by Israeli and American standards is described as, as a terrorist organization. Therefore, it's legitimate to target all of Gaza in case anybody is implicated with Hamas. And you see that, that logic there, or illogic, lack of logic. So in, in a sense, yes, I think that uh, there is a new dynamic now. There is a dynamic that says you cannot continue uh, putting pressure on the Palestinians using blackmail and threats and so on, and then asking the Palestinians to accept this state of injustice. No. Now things are changing. The Palestinians are saying, we we will not be passive victims. There are things that can and should be done. We are challenging the international community. We are not disappearing. We are not committing, you know, collective suicide or amnesia. We are not going to surrender. And therefore, it is up to the international community to maintain its so-called rules-based system and to develop some backbone and, and role, political role to stand up to Israel and to provide Palestine with protection. Dr. Alan Ashrawi, I'll stop you there. More from the former member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization Executive Committee after this break. And why would you... Hold on, everybody. Nation bombs... Executive. Welcome back. I'm still with the first woman to hold a seat in the highest executive body in Palestine, Dr. Helena Shrawi. I should just ask. Uh, will uh, all the damage be repaired from these British, uh, uh, American, and EU nation bombs? Unfortunately, they will give Israel more bombs, and they will also try to compensate Israel for what it used against the Palestinians. The repair will take a long time. Look, there were several assaults on Gaza. The last in 2014 killed thousands of people and demolished whole neighborhoods. So who is going to be, and the, the, the rebuilding has not even been finished. So now they are going to have to rebuild and renovate and so on, on top of previous uh, destruction, one layer after the other. In addition, of course, to, as we said, infrastructure and other vital needs, including uh, medical needs, health centers, and so on. So I think ultimately, yes, people will rebuild, but the issue is not to keep destroying, allow Israel to keep destroying and then help the Palestinians rebuild. The issue is how do you stop Israel from destroying? How do you hold Israel accountable? How do you make your cooperation agreements with Israel uh, link them to Israeli behavior and Israeli human rights violations and Israeli use of these weapons? The EU has all sorts of stipulations and conditions in terms of their agreements, including their agreements with Israel. They have never implemented their own legislation vis-a-vis Israel and holding it accountable. The same thing with the U.S. On the contrary, the U.S. even gives them more and enables them more. So this, this uh, I don't want to say logical, but it's a very weird, surrealistic equation has to stop because you cannot keep supplying the aggressor with weapons. And you cannot keep saying, well, tough luck, you're going to have to rebuild. How do you build it? rebuild the lives of families whose members have been being destroyed? How do you rebuild the lives of children who are traumatized, who have seen their parents, siblings killed? Whole families, whole families 
have been obliterated. Ninety families were taken off the population register in 2014. Anything in this that uh, Israel is de facto weaponizing coronavirus? So Israel does say that it had to inoculate its own population first, but uh, uh, that all this boring, the uh, impact on sewage infrastructure, water, uh, may contribute yeah. to uh, coronavirus variants. Who knows? There were several clinics, several buildings that were rendered inoperable at that time due, uh, due to the bombing. And of course they killed two doctors, including the, the head doctor who's in charge of the coronavirus uh, campaign, you know, to, pay, to stand up to coronavirus. Israel did not, uh, I mean, has excess uh, vaccine, but refused to uh, give any or sell, or sell any even to the Palestinians particularly in Gaza, the doctors were killed, the clinics were, the one coronavirus testing clinic was also destroyed completely. And then when you have 110,000 people at least displaced, where are they going? They're going to schools, under schools. You have three, four, five families. You have 50 people in one room. And you don't know, you don't test them, you don't know what's happening, they have no vaccines, they have no protection. They have no medical services whatsoever now. And then you have the others, around 50,000 went to Anwar schools, but others went to relatives, friends, and so on. So you have congestion among those buildings and, and homes that remain standing because there are people who are displaced, people who are taking refuge there. How do you protect all these people from uh, coronavirus? It's become, you know, off the map. You cannot even keep track of how many people are contacted contracting the disease and how many are dying. This has become just minor in facing all the death and destruction that is raining on them by sea, by air, by land. Israel has created a system of, of sheer uh, victimization in every aspect by its occupation, by its siege, by its violence. And it continues with impunity using this and compounding the injustice. So if you want to solve it, Go to the root causes. All this are to account. Stop this occupation. Engage in a positive way to provide the Palestinians with protection. Well, but don't keep reacting to the latest violation and the latest tragedy that the Palestinians have to face. Dr. Nanashrawi, thank you. Israel does say it's in talks with the Palestinian Authority about vaccination distribution, but thank you very much. Well, when arms sales were briefly banned to U.S. proxy dictators in Guatemala, it was Israel that filled the gap as today a local former Coca-Cola boss is inaugurated as Ecuadorian president. A new book looks into powerful corporate elites and Washington's so-called backyard. It links U.S. coups in Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Panama, and El Salvador to Joe Biden's caged children on the U.S.-Mexico border. Joining me now from Salem in Massachusetts is Professor Alina Chomsky, author of Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. Thanks so much for coming back on, uh, Aviva. I should just say, you know, uh, the Mexican president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, said uh, he had to complain to the Biden administration because he accused him of promoting a coup ahead of the uh, ex-California prosecutor, uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, uh, meeting with him. Somehow emblematic of, uh, of this new book of yours, Central America's Forgotten History? Clearly one of the things that you see by looking at Central America's history is that the United States supports certain types of governments in Central America, um, whether they were democratically elected or not, has absolutely zero relevance. Um, but 
if a Central American government is willing to bow down to U.S. economic demands, um, the United States will always support it. And if it isn't, it, the United States doesn't care whether it's democratically elected or not, but is very willing to overthrow it, as we've seen over and over again. At the present day, Boris Johnson's government, Joe Biden's administration, are trying to overthrow the government of Venezuela. Venezuela comes up uh, again and again in the book of how the uh, influence of Hugo Chavez's administration in terms of aid uh, countering U.S. efforts uh, towards neoliberalism. Just uh, tell me about Venezuela's role in Central America. Not so much right now, but certainly during the Hugo Chavez period when Venezuela had a lot more money to, to offer, Venezuela offered Latin American countries a potential path away from the neoliberal policies being imposed by the United States and the international financial institutions by offering low-cost petroleum, um, setting up trade relations, offering them a, a kind of an escape from the debt trap that they had so long been caught in. Um, which makes, uh, that, that is the debt trap makes them completely subject to the United States and the international financial institutions in terms of what kinds of domestic economic policies they can impose. The United States has a very clear demand for Central America that its domestic economic policies be favorable to U.S. corporations. And that generally means that the policies are going to be unfavorable to the poor of those countries because the very policies that U.S. corporations want are things like low wages, no taxes, no environmental regulations, no unions, um, police repression of any kind of protest, oh, and access to land that is military police aid in dispossessing um, peasants from their land so that U.S. corporations can have access to them. That's precisely the opposite of the kinds of policies that would be beneficial to the poor majorities in Central America. For millions of people around the world, they can they can see one emblem maybe on their kitchen table of all of this. Um, I don't know, maybe you should have had the front cover of the Velvet Underground's first album on there. Uh, bananas. Well, I would say bananas mm. and coffee. <laughs> um Historically, bananas and coffee, starting in the 19th century, have been the, the primary exports of Central America, although that's diversified a lot now, and I would say that U.S. consumers also will find Central American products on their bodies. So if, um, people who are listening to this in the United States, if you look at the labels on your clothes, um, probably every one of you is wearing an item of clothing that's going to say made in Honduras, made in Nicaragua, made in El Salvador. Obviously, uh, you mentioned trade unions. The United States' successive administrations would deny any malign influence, of course, south of the Rio Grande. Uh, as for trade unions, the AFL-CIO unions, uh, they don't come off very well in this new book and their uh, American Institute for Free Labor, Labor Development that they set up, let alone uh, USA. How have... Uh, how has the United States and its intelligence, military-industrial complex, uh, inserted itself in trade unionism? So I think there's been a real transformation over the course of the 1990s and up to the present day in the U.S. trade union movement, but certainly the post-World War II U.S. labor movement, official labor movement, that AFL and later AFL-CIO after 1955, really bought into the Cold War ideology of repressing and um, eliminating the left within the U.S. trade union movement and supporting U.S. foreign policy to eliminate the left in trade unions around the world. 
And that went right hand in hand with the policies towards Latin America, towards Central America, to try to promote what they called free trade unions. Um, and that's why the AFILs, the American Institute for Free Labor Development, was basically an anti-communist push to try to de-radicalize labor movements and um, often with very high degrees of repression, including murder against trade union activists who sought the kinds of, of, of economic changes and reforms that the United States opposed. Although in Central America, when we have revolutions going on in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and the United States is adamantly opposed to those revolutions, and AFIL plays an important role trying, in trying to undermine those revolutions. However, I should also say that it's really, I think, during those Central American wars in the 1980s that we start seeing resistance from below within the trade union movement against the leadership. The book has such a huge range. Obviously, uh, anyone who votes, uh, voted for Trump will say uh, NAFTA was abolished under his administration. But just skipping over, at least Trump didn't uh, overthrow any countries directly like uh, President Obama appears to have done in uh, Honduras. Um, do you think uh, Biden will go back to the old playbook of over? That was Hillary Clinton, everybody, just in case you didn't know. I'll go back to the old playbook of overthrowing uh, countries uh, in uh, Central America, given he was vice president when uh, Manuel Zelaya was removed uh, in Honduras in 2009. I wouldn't say that the United States directly overthrew Zelaya in Honduras, but it certainly supported the overthrow of Zelaya in Honduras. I don't actually see a very big difference between the Obama and Trump administrations or between Democratic and Republican administrations in general. What we've seen from the Biden administration so far is an absolute commitment to um, the same kind of pro-foreign investment economic model and also to uh, supporting the militaries and police in those countries on the pretext of trying to slow and stop migration. So there's sort of a humanitarian veneer to both of these, that is, Biden, like every U.S. president, claims that this is a model that's going to help eliminate poverty in Central America. It's been followed for 500 years, and it hasn't eliminated poverty yet. Right. Um, and the militarization is kind of covered up by trying to get us to focus on what they call the border crisis. So there is a crisis at the border, um, but the border crisis is not going to be stopped by moving the repression into Central America itself. Professor Viva Chomsky, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And that's it for the show. We'll be back on Wednesday, the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Until then, if you're watching this online, get in touch via social media or comment below on YouTube to let us know what you think of what the U.S. has done to its so-called backyard. <laughs> Okay, everybody. Um, that is number one, accountability. And that quartet, I believe, is Israel, uh, Rama, Israel, the United States, England, and France. Yeah. That's right. And very naughty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, may the force be with us. And we'll be back in a very short while, and we'll have our brother Richard and uh, have a little listen to songs from 
and uh, I'll look at the stars and uh, our sister Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha's got lots to say today. So we'll see you soon. Big hugs. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. I thought you might be doing that. Doing that. <laughs> well, good evening, audience. It's the 29th of May, and that's puts the position of the sun at about 8 degrees, 9 degrees of Gemini. So we're almost a third of the way through Gemini already. Uh, let's see, my observations uh, for the week. From, from my position... Lots and lots of downloads. Uh, lots of information showing up in the in the cosmic ethers, and I think it's going to continue. Right? This is this is an information explanation zone we're in. Right, starting from the from the new friend that Rama made, he told us about the beginning of the call, right? We got lots of revelations happening, going to happen, in the process of happening, right? Oh, I brought Cryon was great. That was such a, a great review of Esoteric healing, let me put it that way. That's yes. the, I guess the old term, esoteric healing. Energy yes. healing. And uh, so for a lot of us, you know, we were into this stuff 30, year, 30 or 40 years ago. Yes. But it, was, it, was a, it was a great, well-done summary mm-hmm. of... Uh, the way it works. So yeah, yeah, that was that was yeah, that was that was a, a good review for me anyway. I I enjoyed it. Me too. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Oof. Yeah. All right, let's go listen to uh, Kaipacha and Tanya and see what see what they're up to. Okay. Here we go. Here we go, everybody. Guy Pacha with the weekly Pele report, baby. Look at those roots, man. Look at those freaking roots. Ah, she's a beauty. Uh, you can't really get her magnificence from just a stupid little video, but. He's looking <laughs> at a big tree. With a 
waterfall in the background. Coming down to the river. The Paley Report for what? May 26th. The lunar eclipse was a couple hours ago. Aha! Yeah, baby. Five degrees, 26 minutes of Sagittarius. That's the moon opposite the sun in square to Jupiter over there. One degree something over there in Pisces. Close enough. I'm going to be talking about that. What else am I talking about? Well, Venus is in square to Neptune, conjunct Mercury. Those two are just like on top of each other these days, mm-hmm. right? Mercury, I talked about going into his uh, storm period, slowing down, slowing down. It's going to be going retrograde, station retrograde on Saturday. Good friend Mercury joining Saturn, retrograde, retrograde. Anyway, (laughs) what else is happening, you might ask? Mars in trying to Neptune. I mean, it's not exact until next Monday, but you may be feeling it coming on. Also, of course, coming into an opposition with Pluto. You may be feeling that coming on a little bit, too. Mars in Cancer, stirring up the past and the feelings and the emotions. And the moon, of course, on her own south node. Okay, it's an emotional time. Oh, my God. <laughs> moon moves into Capricorn on Thursday. And then, uh, you know, bops into Pluto, opposes Mars, goes into Aquarius on Sunday, hits Saturn, squares Uranus. Anyway, I don't know. The sun actually conjuncts the north node of the moon next Monday. Yeah. So, like I say, we're in the eclipse uh, season here. This is a season, right? So we're going to have a solar eclipse uh, in a couple of weeks. So hold on to your hats. This is all part of a, a bigger, deeper, life-changing process. Right? Let me look at the camera. I don't know. I'll find someplace. Hopefully not too noisy for the sensitive ones. <laughs> Talk at you. All right, everybody. I'm back to shouting at the camera. <laughs> got the little waterfall uh, over there. I got another little waterfall over there. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, it's just my phone, man. Uh, so what's going on? Well, <laughs> there is a lot going on. I mean, I, I, mostly today. I will be talking about the fact that the planet Jupiter, which is not only the ruler of Sagittarius, where our lunar eclipse just happened, and the moon is right now, but is also the co-ruler of Pisces, the original ruler of Pisces before they discovered Neptune, and... 
It is square to the moon's nodes, which is where the eclipses happen. It is square to the sun. It was exact a little while ago, last week, right? You remember? And so it has special, special significance. Yeah. Evolutionary astrology, Jeffrey Green, once again, planets square the moon's nodes. He calls them skip steps. I call them the missing piece to the puzzle. I call it a detour. So let's just look at this. Okay? I've been going on quite a bit about Sagittarius Gemini being the thought axis. Sag being the right brain, intuition, old books, higher mind. Gemini being left brain, lower mind, you know, ego kind of thinking, whatever. But, let's not forget this is a mutable cross. Kaboom! We cannot forget, whenever you're dealing, okay, with Gemini and Sagittarius, you're dealing with squares to Pisces and Virgo. And in this case, it's called a T-square, Sun Moon, Jupiter, happens to be on the moon's nodes even more intense, and it's kind of leaving a little bit of a void over there in Virgo, but that void actually is the completion of the diamond, let's not call it a grand cross, let's call it a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> In our yeah. new age, uh, you know, positive kind of uh, outlook on things. <laughs> oh, man, baby. So, what this has to do with the south, the moon conjunct your own south node in Sagittarius. The moon has to do with our feelings, mom, our childhood, okay, our past. The south node of the moon brings in past life karma, past life relationships, past life, in this case, <coughs> belief systems. What we believe in, who we have believed in, to give us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a point to all of this madness. Why bother? Sagittarius and is the philosopher, the wisdom keeper, the seeker of natural laws, on the quest for the meaning of life, the Holy Grail. So this is a time where, of course, with Mercury retrograde, and with Saturn retrograde, where we are definitely, it's coming up from the past. Our conditioning, our patterns, our beliefs, what used to give us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. For me, it could be astrology, okay? 
I always got an identity and a sense of purpose, and you know, I'm here to you know uh, uh, turn everybody on to astrology, and that gives the that gives my life meaning. <clears throat> that gives me a sense of identity, maybe a sense of importance or whatever. I mean, we've all got, okay, you know, these beliefs tied into what we think is valuable, what we think is important, what we think is, you know, the cat's meow, baby. And guess what? Uh, life goes on. <laughs> Check out the river, man. It moves. It flows. It changes. What was our purpose, what was maybe meaningful to us, job, relationships, belief systems, geographical locations, uh, political parties, whatever. As we evolve, and hopefully we are evolving, <laughs> they get old particularly now with the great reset with all the bullshit coming down the pike we are not going back to normal it's gone 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 down the river so we are all facing loss Pisces Jupiter this is the end of the way it was, the way we were. That could be a <laughs> Barbara Streisand song for today, but I have some better ones. It's history, baby. And we want to go through all the feelings, all the grief, all the sorrow. It's not coming back. What we used to do... <clears throat> who we used to be, where we used to go, who we've been with, whatever. This is all coming up now, and it's time. That needs it's a mutable cross. Mutate, adapt, change, move towards that north node. Sun coming up to the North Node next Monday before, you know, the next Pele report. And then the moon coming around through Aquarius, through Pisces. She will conjunct Jupiter and then conjunct Neptune. On her way around to a solar eclipse. So we have two weeks now. And this two weeks is pivotal. This two weeks is a time to review, to reflect, to go deep into not only who I was and what I believed and who I trusted and da 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 and all, you know, go through what is honest, what is truth. Sagittarius Gemini is the bullshit axis. <laughs> Exaggeration, lies, deception, confusion, you know, purposeful or not, intentional or not. You know, people can lie unintentionally. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, if you're really messed up. <laughs> oh, boy. 
Which we all are. I mean, you know, I'm not not on a soapbox here, man. <laughs> Just as screwed up as everybody else. But oh, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, oh, yeah, well, gosh, uh, I really thought that uh, that, that was right. Uh, <laughs> you know I mean, whoa. How do we know? How do we know? I'll tell you how we know. Jupiter... Jupiter knows. And Jupiter is in Pisces. The sign of unconditional love, forgiveness, compassion, unity, oneness of being, of heart, 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 heart. That's the song for this week. I know it's, it's, it's kind of sappy, kind of sentimental. I'm showing how old I am, okay? But it is without love, where would I be now? I think. Just without love. Anyway, it's Tom Jones, man. Now, there's a lot of people, like, I, I, I give these links in the notes and uh, I get comments, you know, people don't know where the notes are, okay? Uh, so you have to go down below the Bailey report and it says show more. And if you click on show more, you'll get all the notes of things I forgot to say in the Bailey report. <laughs> oh, and then I have a newsletter, okay, that I write after that of more things that I forgot in the Bailey report and I forgot to put in the notes. I put them in the newsletter. <laughs> you can sign up for that sucker. Get that in your, in your uh, inbox. But yeah, I have a couple of songs in there. <clears throat> uh, today I'm going to post uh, a message from the lunar eclipse. It's a poem that I wrote. Check it out. You might like that. But what I really want to get to here is, and, and someone turned me on to this, I went back to my Facebook page and I could not find her name. I'm very sorry, but... She turned me on to, I gotta say, it is one of the most powerful, uh, uh, series of lectures by Rudolf Steiner given in 1917 about the electronic doppelganger. He foresaw the electronic doppelganger, Araman, A-H-R, I-M-A-N, the old devil, yeah? Kind of like Satan. There's Lucifer and Satan. Well, there's Lucifer and Araman. Back, look at Zarathustra. Go back to the Zoroastrian mysteries before the Bible, before the devils. Okay, this is ancient Sumeria. I mean, this goes way back. Armin goes way back. And he is the electronic, internet, materialistic, ice-cold, capitalistic, billionaire. Super intelligent, super powerful, but absolutely amoral, absolutely about materialism. And here we have Gemini, the twins, Castor and Pollux. Here we are dealing with what? Spirit and matter. Yeah? 
one brother of the twins was celestial, the other was mortal. We've got this whole kind of thing. I was even looking at Cain and Abel. Yeah, Cain and Abel. Okay, as you know, again, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Okay, you know, Beauty and the Beast. There's a, we've got all this duality going on in many different ways, in many different levels. But what Steiner talks about, and he, he goes far ahead. It's, it's phenomenal. I will put the link to the book uh, in the notes below. You can buy the book. And I want to suggest that you buy the book where? From the Anthroposophical Society. Not from Amazon. I would like to boycott Amazon. I would like to, you know, really encourage people. And this is my main message for the, for the day. It's about love. And love is a feeling. It's not a thought. It's not an abstraction. It's what makes us human. And I want to encourage us, and there is a big, this great reset, and this whole World Economic Forum, and all these billionaires, you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to get every single person on planet Earth vaccinated. Besides that, they want to get them on the Internet. They want to get them on the internet. They want to get them on the phone so that they can track them, so that they can manage their money and yeah. close them off from the bank if they don't obey. This is a whole world controlled scenario that is unfolding on us, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. Yeah. Okay, this is definitely a pandemic. Yeah. The guy that uh, actually uh, worked on uh, creating this freaking thing in the laboratory uh, came out and uh, acknowledged it recently. Anyway, I don't want to get my YouTube channel censored, so I won't get too much into it. <laughs> but I will say that the you know Uber Eats, you know, and you know Amazon, and let's not go shopping. It's convenient. It's convenient, folks. Let's do our online banking. Let's not get out of the couch. Okay, let's not get any exercise. Let's not talk to any, you know, breathing, blood-filled uh, people. Okay, let's not have any relationships. You know, let's wear our masks and do our social distancing, you know, and, 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 and not, you know, like basically kill the feeling life. Look at all the pictures of all the aliens, all the greys, great big heads, little spindly freaking bodies. Don't let it happen. Don't let it freaking happen. Make connections. Make love. Make conversation. Touch. Share experiences in real time, real time. Do not get sucked into the electronic double. This is, this is, this is the, the call of our day. <laughs> what a freaking roll, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
I mean, this is so, it's, it's so uh, amazing how Steiner goes into the whole cerebral spinal fluid, okay, you know, and how, uh, you know, our electronic, we are, we are electronic, and, and it's just like, yeah, this is, I, I can't go into the whole thing, you know, on this little Pele report, but I really want to focus on this idea. And I, I get, you know, there's a lot of uh, controversy out there. I don't really listen to any other astrologers, but I posted something and people go, you know, a lot of the astrologers are talking this jargon and I'm talking that jargon or something. I don't know, but all I want to say, you know, really is that, you know, this comes down, okay, you know, so much... It's, it's not a matter of that we are in spiritual la-la land, okay? You know, Jupiter and Pisces is, you know, about love. It's about imagination. It is about reaching, you know, to divine intelligence. And, 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 it, and it's beautiful. And I, and I don't want, you know, us to get this sense that if we focus on love, we're somehow avoiding the reality, okay? And we got to get our heads out of the clouds in order to, you know, rebel against, you know, the bastards or whatever. <clears throat> no, 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 let's let's not separate ourselves into two camps. Love is the medicine. Love is the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this is, you know, to focus on consciousness and love is not avoiding or denying. I mean, it can be. If you go too far, you know, and you want to escape or numb out or just, you know, stay high or whatever, it, it can be. I'm not saying that, you know, the extremes are always messed up. But focusing on love and focusing on human connection and feeling and the heart space and expanding our magnetic field of the heart space, you know, this is, like I say, it's healing, it's medicine, it is the skip step. It's what we need to do right now and not get caught up too too overly you know, become, uh, you know, radical fundamentalists, uh, you know, uh, fanatics. There's enough fanatics out there. <laughs> yeah. We don't need any more fanatics, man. Like, chill out. <laughs> get laid. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, it's just like, you know, get, make love, not war. Right? You know, yeah. I mean, come on. We can go on and on and on. I'm not saying ignore, okay, you know, like I say, we can definitely take steps against, you know, uh, the, the radical, you know, billionaires. There has been since the beginning of COVID the, the most uneven upward suction of money into the pockets of the very elite, okay, which is a very Saturn Aquarius uh, energy, okay, as well as Pluto in Capricorn, 
Make no mistake about it. Okay? There is, there's a whole bunch of people in cahoots. And they are not 1%. They are point oh one percent of the population, baby. <laughs> so I'm not saying ignore it. But I'm saying there's so much you can do. And don't get... Don't let it bring you down. That is my second song for today by Neil Young, my mm. old buddy, mm. my old favorite. Got me playing the guitar to start with. I've got a song that I I wanted to play today, but I got to get this sucker uploaded. Maybe I'll make it a separate thing. Anyway... Don't let it bring you down. It's only castles burning. Just find someone who's turning and you will come around. Come around. <laughs> Ow! I, I tell you, I feel like Iron Man. I feel like my DNA has been upgraded. My freaking natural immune system, you know, has been strengthened and I am like ready to freaking rock and roll. <laughs> oh man, I feel you know, and I, and I feel very blessed to have been cared for by my beautiful wife Laura, to be able to drink clean water and wash up and have access, you know, to vitamins and be able to exercise underneath the the rays of the sun and get my vitamin D and blah 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 blah. And my heart really goes out to all those people who are not as fortunate and are really getting wiped out. So, yeah. If I am to... Uh, yeah. The importance of a spiritual life <clears throat> cannot be stressed enough. If I am to live and die in peace, it will come... By sharing my love. Really. When it all said and done. When it's all gone. Only love remains. We wanna, we wanna focus our priorities, our values, our time, our energy, our attention on what is Fertile. What is going to, you know, grow peace and harmony in our lives, in our in our psyche, in our consciousness, and a spiritual life? Oh man, I could talk for freaking ever, but I don't want to go on for too long. <laughs> but uh, Steiner talks about just what is a spiritual life, and I want to say. It is really connected, and we are really connected. You know, I want, I want to, uh, I could, I could do more videos on breath work, our breathing, <clears throat> our lungs, which are being attacked, and the oxygen in our blood, which is being attacked. Okay, this is connected. Our breathing, you know, stimulates the cerebral spinal fluid. Our breathing is definitely intrinsically connected. When we do breath work, when we do meditation, when we do pranayama, okay, 
you know, we're not just, you know, whistling Dixie. <laughs> you know, and when you do the breath of fire, you're, you know, you're not just hyperventilating and getting a buzz, okay? You know, you are energized, you are, this is a spiritual life, and it opens portals. It opens our consciousness. It expands our freaking reality, our sense of self. We start to channel. We start to receive transmissions from the sun and the moon and the planets and the spiritual beings, the angel, the archive, the angeloid, the curiosities, the dynamies, the spirits of form, the spirits of time. There, there is a spiritual world. And you know what? We're visiting this planet, baby. We're visiting these physical bodies. And what we want to do is we want to be getting in touch with the spiritual, eternal, not the temporal, not the temporary. You work on your spiritual life to prepare for the afterlife. And he talks about in this lectures how we get together with groups of people, right? We get together with groups of people on this plane in these physical bodies. You know why? So that after we die, we can find them. We can find them, those souls. So that we can carry on our evolutionary process outside the body. Yeah, baby. It all ties in together. <laughs> it's a big picture. So when you isolate and you separate and you go into lockdown and you, you know, go onto your phone, guess what? You're screwing up your afterlife. After you die, you're going to be out there going, hey, where is everybody? <laughs> Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> Looks like I blew it. Uh, kind of missed my chance to make those connections. Make the freaking connection. <laughs> oh, God. That's the spiritual life, baby. Freaking love. Ow! One more time. The importance of a spiritual life cannot be stressed enough. If I am to live and die in peace, it's, it will come by sharing my love. Yeah! I like, I like this one. <laughs> Namaste. Aloha so much. Love.
pass the talking stick back to you, Richard. Well, thank you, sir. He was uh, in a good mood today. Oh, for he Wednesday. Was, yeah, he was I know. Hot. I think he's got some good smoke down there in Costa Rica. Um, yeah. yeah, I've got, I've got no, I've got no particular comments at this time. I mean, you know, uh, the energies are high. The veil is thinning. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good growth going on. So, uh, keep your, keep your seatbelt snug. I guess is what I would say. I had a heck of a ride this week. Anyway, take it away with our next Astrologers. Okay. Here we go. Hello, everyone. It's Tanya Gabrielle here, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, where we look at the forecast in the stars and numbers and how to use the coming events to grow and expand and just come closer to the source energy that we all come from, which is love. And in today's episode, we are going to dive into the second Mercury retrograde of the year. All three retrogrades that Mercury is embarking on in 2021 happen in air signs. And Mercury loves air signs because air is aligned with intelligence and information. And that's what Mercury specializes in. And this Mercury retrograde is happening in its own home sign of Gemini. And in fact, the whole retrograde occurs in Gemini. There's no other sign that Mercury is going to touch on. So when a retrograde happens to any planet, it appears like the planet is moving backwards from our vantage point here on Earth. And it's not actually moving backwards. It just is an appearance. It's it's an illusion. But it still impacts us because visually that is what we're seeing. And Mercury turns retrograde about three to four times a year, lasting around three weeks every time. And so when a planet retrogrades, we get a, a deeper perspective on the nature of the planet and the nature of the sign that the planet is retrograding in. And often there are adjustments that we make. And so these result in us deepening our experience of that planet and sign. When Mercury is at its slowest, meaning when it's about to retrograde and, and slowing down, or when it's about to turn direct again, moving forward again, those are the periods when Mercury is at a standstill that impact us the greatest. So the key dates for this particular retrograde are May 29th, when the retrograde begins at 6.34 p.m. Eastern Time, and it starts at 24 degrees in Gemini. So 24 is the number of home and family, also home business and abundance. It's the number of love, of nurturing. So all those topics will come into your awareness over those next three weeks. And the Mercury retrograde ends on June 22nd. Now, the impact of 
having the retrograde in a mutable sign and an air sign, which is Gemini, ruling the mind and communication, a very mentally active sign that's focused on ideas and plans and sharing what you're thinking and slowing all that down is that we may fixate on certain ideas or fixate on certain plans, um, becoming like too engaged to the point where we then lose the thread or become scattered and confused or lose our concentration, getting stuck in the minutiae. So the double whammy of Gemini and Mercury coming together, and it's really a triple whammy because we have the Gemini solar eclipse as well, means that we may need to take a step back and a break from the overthinking, overanalyzation, so that we don't get overwhelmed. And so we're going to look at five beautiful ways to think that will help us stay away from that sense of overwhelm and overanalyzation in a bit. But Gemini likes to keep us busy. It's an air sign. It moves quickly. And so we may find during this retrograde that we either get really, really busy and possibly overwhelmed, or we feel this restless energy because we want more to do. Either situation, whether it is that we get super busy or that we feel restless because we want more to do, can lead to anxiety. So the key is to find some middle ground and to keep yourself busy enough that you don't become fidgety, you know, always looking for something to do, but not so busy that you become disoriented and unable to handle things. You know, Gemini really likes to share ideas and pass things by and explore. And there's a lot of humor with Gemini as well. So because it's the communication sign, there may be lots of news coming in and facts and information coming in and flowing. And so we need to stay in a place where we can handle what's being conveyed and what's being heard and read and then share a message that is actually proactive and uplifting as opposed to focusing on those items that are not important, right? So the other thing is to guard against being overly sensitive about what others say to you. Try not to take everything you hear or read or, or somebody conveys to you as, to, try not to take it so personally. And just use common sense and use reason and take a step back, right? So stay reasonable, and with Gemini ruling the mind, this can be an excellent period for learning something, taking a course, reading some important books, doing research, teaching, writing. It just serves as a positive outlet for those mind-centered activities. And you may want to pick up on something that you were interested in before and now dive into it again. Refresh yourself share the knowledge you have, or pursue some creative writing. Gemini is aligned with Mercury. So this Mercury retrograde slows down the process of 
how we communicate and how we think, which is a good thing. So we actually can take a backseat and look and become very aware of our words and our thoughts. So because it happens during a Gemini solar eclipse, which heightens the energy even more, and that's really the important story here. On June 10th, we have this eclipse in Gemini, a new moon eclipse. And that, you know, any kind of new moon event gives us a new beginnings energy. And so this retrograde is giving us a second chance at something, something you know, all retrogrades are like that, where we reflect and look at things and, and have a second chance to peruse and pursue something. So with the solar eclipse energy, you feel more enthusiastic, more energetic, excited to pursue new, new opportunities. So after this June 10th event of the eclipse, that's when things will actually start moving, even though the retrograde is still ongoing till the 22nd of June. This is such a strong energy to have everything happening in Gemini at the time of the Mercury retrograde that you'll really feel a sense of a second chance and new opportunities. And so you don't want to miss out on that energy. Now, there are a couple of aspects that Mercury makes, that means geometric connections to other planets. Uh, Mercury will be conjunct the sun and moon on June 10th during the solar eclipse, very powerful. And that's a very positive time in the retrograde itself. So look for that in, you know, starting around the 10th, moving forward. Uh, You can really use that energy for the next couple months in in a beautiful way. So all the way through, you know, early August. And then there's also a square that Mercury makes to Neptune on June 5th, uh, where they're both at 23 degrees. And 23 is the freedom number. It's the royal star of the lion, and it gives you the courage to set yourself free. And June 5th is a five as well. 23 reduces to five. June 5th is a five. 2021 is a five universal year. So that's a very powerful time as well, the five days preceding the eclipse. And this is likely when you're going to be focusing more on what needs to be looked at. It may be a little bit more challenging because you're like fine-tuning things. And you may feel because of the Neptune square that you'd rather live in your imagination and dream world than be in reality. So just focus on common sense and, you know, don't trust any everything at face value, like really do your research. Now, the moon, as I said, was also conjunct to this Mercury retrograde during the solar eclipse. And the actual moon in Gemini moment starts June 8th. That's when the moon enters Gemini and it leaves it very early on June 11th. So this is a very powerful moment during the retrograde itself where the sense of feeling and the mind, the heart and the mind can be fused together. And then the retrograde ends on the 22nd of June at 16 degrees Gemini. So it's gone from 24 degrees to 16 degrees. And so 16 is about using your intuition to offset anything that may come 
out of the blue and you've already been aligned with your heart, with your intuition. And so you can manage anything that comes your way by tuning in. And there could be some unexpected things that occur around this time with that 16 degree marker. Remember when a planet slows down before it changes direction, that's when it is at its strongest. So this is around the 22nd of June. Now, in your own chart, if you know how to read your astrology chart, you want to always look where the Mercury retrograde is happening, which house it's in or houses it's in. And that will also give you some feedback as to what is impacted and how it impacts you personally. But in general, with Mercury and Gemini, we're talking about how we think, how we express ourselves verbally and in written form. And so let's talk about what remains in the mind when the negative thoughts have been cleared, when the egoic identification with your mind has been cleared. First of all, when you're rarely identifying with that thought stream, that ongoing record, right? When you're not identifying with that, you feel a lot more carefree. You feel more like the positive expression of Gemini, which is you you sense the humor in life. You feel fresh. You feel buoyant. You feel alive. You embrace life. This is all the positive side of Gemini. And you're a happy and genuinely nice human being, not because you want others to like you, but because you really feel that love. Not because you want something from people, but because something's bubbling up inside of you and you want to share it through kindness and through attentiveness on others. The shadow side of Gemini and Mercury is to identify with that thought stream, with that egoic mind. And this retrograde gives you the opportunity to end that identification. The fear that the ego has is a loss of identity. Right. Who I am to others, how I come across. But even with very little identification with the egoic mind, you still have a personality. You still have a unique style. You still have personal drives. So it's not like all that disappears. It's just that you are not self-serving and controlling and manipulating in order to get what you want. So it's for your Good only, you know, the egoic good, but not for everybody's highest good. So on the surface, if you don't identify with that, with that egoic thought stream, right, you appear as unique as ever. Although really in your essence, you've never really been unique. You're the same divine spark that you've always have at one with everything and everyone. The point is when the thought stream, that mindless chatter that keeps going and going, your programming basically is no longer paid attention to and thus no longer believed, the ego-driven human being becomes divinely inspired. And that divinely inspired human being resonates to a new force. And that's what this Mercury in retrograde Mercury and Gemini retrograde is really bringing into our awareness. And what remains then when you've extricated yourself from that thought stream are five kinds of thoughts. We're in a five universal year. So five is the freedom number. It is the middle number between one and 10 and it pivots left and right 
when you draw it on a piece of paper, you can see it faces left and right. It sits on a pivot point and it is completely engaged in the present moment. And so those five thoughts are, the first one is you may have residual thoughts that you once identified with, but which you now disregard. There are always going to be some egoic thoughts that lurk in the thought stream, but those remaining just don't have an impact on you. So the effect is minimal. So if you give your thought stream attention, that radio station that you're giving attention to will awaken the station itself, in this case, egoic thinking. So the only thing to know is you, by ignoring it, you tune it out. The station then, you're not dialing in the egoic way of thinking. So those residual thoughts are there. We cannot just say, oh, we will never have egoic thoughts again, but they are residual. And so the point is not to give them your attention. Then there are neutral thoughts, and these are just the normal things that you think to comment on what is going on in your life. And it's the stuff you actually already know, but that your mind <laughs> feels like it needs to let you know, even though you already understand them. So things like if you're out of a particular uh, food item, you know, we're out of lettuce or I need to brush my teeth or it's getting dark outside. I need to turn on the lights or this person didn't hear me. I need to repeat what I said or it's time to feed my pet. You know, that those are thought, those are things you already know, but these neutral thoughts are totally harmless because they don't stir up drama. And that's the point. They don't stir up your, your negative feelings. They're just telling you what's happening and what you need to remember, but you, you already have that knowing. So they're just simple things that people share to just to communicate or be, or to be social, right? And then we have positive thoughts. Those express love and gratitude and happiness, and they just flow from the divine self. So they're things like, isn't this a gorgeous day? Or I'm so grateful, I'm so happy that I just discovered this. Or what a perfect pair of earrings. Or something like, I love how you said that. Or I can't thank you enough. Or that was the best apple pie ever. Or I love this. So these are exclamations that are basically sharing joy, right? And we just are in a place now in our own lives where joy is just so important to always tap into. And when you are grateful and joyful, filled with joy and filled, filled with gratitude, and it's measured, then by measured, I mean it's grounded. It's not over the top because keep in mind, it's natural to express the joy and love that the divine self feels, but even positive expressions can be used by the ego. And the way that happens is you're thinking, oh, am I not so cool for being so loving? Or am I not so amazing for having created such a great life for myself? Or, you know, anything that, that you spin into this high that sort of separates you from others or is not a natural loving 
expression, that's probably the ego. So the sign of a non-egoic thought, one that is divinely inspired, is when you feel balanced, when you feel at peace, when you feel grounded, while you feel it, while you express it. It's more subtle, and it doesn't need to necessarily even be conveyed to others. There doesn't need to be a declaration of it. So that's the key to also remember. And then there are thoughts that are humorous. So these are a little different than positive thoughts. Humorous thoughts is when your mind is not so filled up with the thought stream and is emptied out more, you're more light. You feel a lightness of being and you enjoy life more. So you make, may make funny observations, <laughs> silly observations about life, about the ego itself, making fun of it, right? Um, basically, when you point out that people are funny to others, you're expressing good-spirited humor. And this is another lovely way to use the mind. And then finally, the fifth way is purposeful thoughts, to actually have a purpose behind the thoughts. You're consciously choosing to think this way because it serves a bigger purpose. Rather than the egoic mind using you, you're using the mind. Okay, we've got a few more minutes of this. We'll have to play it when we come back. Yet, Richard, we thought we'd pass the talking stick for your comments at the end. Pass the talking stick to you. Richard? Oh. Are you not there anymore? Okay. Well, everybody. I'm sorry. I was across the room. Oh, okay. All right. Well, here you go. You've got about a, about a minute. Yeah. I don't know. You know. Yeah, that's it. It's going to be tricky for for the next few weeks. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, okay, so we, we just, we just did this full moon. And before you know it, we're gonna have a, a new moon eclipse. And, uh, we're in Gemini, so, as information carrier wave. And it's about that, right? Mercury is an information carrier wave, and so is these, and so the rest of the planets uh, that are emitters, right? If a planet is an emitter, then you're getting something, and each of these various planets have their own specialties. So by now, you know, Mercury is mostly mostly with pictures. The sun, right? They're just like power. Just like power. And and some hold in the sun. Even though we know the sun has checked the solar weather lately, someone might want to do that. And, and give us a report. 
But, you know, Jupiter is just, I don't know what's going on with Jupiter, but it's, it's one of the things that Jupiter has. Jupiter is nearly, nearly uncontrolled, right? Wants to make it bigger, you know, more and more and more and more. You know, it's like it's like the the possessive instinct. Yeah, uh, instinct thinks that there's a you know there's a moral instinct. We have we all have a moral instinct. We know innate, inside, unspoken. We know the difference between good and bad, right and wrong. You know, useful. Useless, right? So we we know this stuff, right? So I guess we're we're gonna put it into practice, right? Practice, so that kind of like between utopianism and illusion. There's something that's called balance in the middle. Yeah. See, when 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 you. Uh, in the past, let me put it this way. In the past, we've had seasons of Jupiter conjunct Neptune. Oh, boy. And we do, check your history. It's always a fun one to do. <laughs> check your history. Every 12, every 12 years behind the current position of Jupiter, right? Mm-hmm. So in 2009... Jupiter was in was in uh, was in Pisces, right? In oh, two thousand, just prior to that, two thousand eight, we had a worldwide economic slowdown. Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah, these things repeat themselves, right? Hopefully, at a at a higher turn of the spiral each time we have to go through this again, right? It's like, oh God, how many times have I gone through Jupiter and Aries, for example, right? I, I've been through Jupiter and Aries five times, right? Okay, and Richard, we kind of got to go. I know, but you know, it's like. We'll get through it, you know, just stay sharp, you know. Try not to get too sloppy out there on the road. That's yeah. right. That's right. Drive safe, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Richard. Namaste, everybody. So, Rama, the number. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353 353- Eight six three pound. Yes, we can. And BBS Radio, the best radio there is. We will be back in an hour to reinvigorate ourselves. <laughs> and in the meantime, join us. Um, the conversations we get to have in a small <coughs> group uh, really move many things in the perspective way and in the global, universal, and collective-mindedness 
of the heart. See you there, and namaste for now, and then right back here in an hour. Aloha. Okay. You're consciously choosing to think this way because it serves a bigger purpose. Rather than the egoic mind using you, you're using the mind the way it is meant to be utilized as a tool for intelligent thinking. The rational mind is an immense gift, actually, because it's a great pleasure to exercise a rational mind and enjoy what it brings. For example, you can explore many things with a rational mind. You can explore a feeling more deeply or examine whether something is true or study something more in depth, right? You can explore an idea. You can explore a possible way to go, a decision. You can consider how you do something. You can wonder why something is the way it is. And you can find a solution to a practical problem with your rational mind. So the difference between these practical and exploratory types of thoughts and Ego-driven thoughts is that thinking them serves a purpose. And also notice that thoughts that are devoid of the word I, meaning me, are the ones that are more aligned with the divine, whereas the I thoughts, not overall, but very often have an egoic agenda. So you can feel the difference between the practical or exploratory thoughts and the ones that belong to that thought stream, that voice in your head that's just regurgitating beliefs and basically is is there to serve you and no one else. So for any reason, what you're thinking about makes you feel low or bad or not bring a sense of of beauty and goodness and joy, you can be sure that the ego is behind those thoughts, that the ego has hijacked your rational thinking process. When the mind is being used intelligently and for a function, right, it is actually the divine self that is using the mind in a practical way. The divine self has done this so many times in each of our lives, throughout our lives, since the divine self is actually what is living our life. So the divine self isn't separate from us. And this is how life is being lived. So it is life itself that is living through us when we allow it to do so. And when we're aligned with the divine in this way, we are following our heart. So the Mercury retrograde in Gemini, coupled with the solar eclipse in Gemini, they're awaking the use of the mind for a purpose, for a highest good, in a positive way, aligned with the divine. So it's a very important Mercury retrograde, like I said, in its own home sign with that eclipse. And so an incredible moment in this five universal year of 2021, the year of truth and joy to set us free from the egoic way of thinking. There are a lot of fives in this code, as you know. There's also the 24 degrees that begins it, which is about love and home and family. And so it's a very exciting Mercury retrograde. I really hope you enjoy it and discover some 
beautiful ways of using that extraordinary gift that you have, the practical mind, the rational mind, to create something beautiful in your life. And also remember to discover your own star code at starcodeclass.com, which is where I have this free masterclass for you, where you just have to plug in your birthday and your birth name and you discover so many beautiful aspects of who you are at soul level. And that's what we all want. And that's how we understand others as well. So go ahead and discover your soul code at starcodeclass.com. Have a beautiful Mercury retrograde, and I'll see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Bye-bye for now. Mercury retrograde, everyone. That's especially for Dougie and Don. They're going to be moving. And we're going to send good vibrations and good communications and clarity and uh, safe travels and um, uh, let's say movement with fluidity through whatever comes up. Uh, yes, a stitch in time does save nine, but <laughs> mm-hmm. as you gotta go, you gotta go. All right, we yeah. love everyone. All right, well, this is our Chris Hedges, and he's got some, some, uh, interesting, uh, situation here for us to listen to. So here we go. We start her up. Welcome to Uncontact. Today we're going to discuss why liberals are liberal about everything except Palestine with the author Mitchell Plitman. Asking specifically the Palestinians is asking the Palestinians to say Zionism was correct. We had no right to be living in the land that we have lived in for centuries upon centuries. And they were right to dispossess us and drive us from our land. And isn't it wonderful that they're being so nice to us now that they're actually willing to give us little crumbs from their cake? <laughs> Those who oppose aggressive policies on immigration, racial justice, gender equality, LGBTQ rights, and the crimes of empire often draw the line when it comes to Israel. There they remain silent or mouth tepid bromides about the war crimes the Israeli apartheid state carries out against the Palestinians. These liberals, some of whom, but not all, are Jewish, are known as progressive, except for Palestine or peace. But is it actually possible to define oneself as a liberal or a progressive while making excuses for Israel's occupation, religious chauvinism, anti-Arab racism, selective application of human rights standards, and flagrant disregard for international law. Mm. Isn't there a deep connection between the militarized police in American cities, many of whom have attended Israeli training courses, which act as internal forces of occupation, and Israel's brutal subjugation of the Palestinian people? Is it accidental that corporations such as Caterpillar 
provide the equipment to Israel to demolish Palestinian homes, and also provide the barriers between the United States and Mexico? Is it accidental that Caterpillar equipment, ubiquitous in the Israeli-occupied territories, destroyed the sacred sites on Standing Rock tribal land while building the Dakota Access Pipeline? Doesn't holding fast to one side and unwaveringly pro-Israeli policies foster the truth-bending grip of authoritarianism and the evisceration of the rule of law? Is it accidental that as civil liberties are revoked in the United States and Israel against its most vulnerable, each country is plagued by a growing crypto-fascism, disdain for democracy, and unchecked militarism? Mark Lamont Hill and Mitchell Plitnick in their book, Except for Palestine, the limits of progressive politics argue that this disconnect is as damaging to our liberal democracy as it is to the democratic traditions in Israel. Once rights become privileges, then they are easily revoked, not only for poor blacks and Palestinians, but eventually for us all. Joining me to discuss, except for Palestine, the limits of progressive politics is Mitchell so let's begin with this disconnect, which I think you uh, and Mark quite uh, presciently uh, focus on in your book. Uh, explain how it works. Well, you know, I, I think what we're looking at is um, we're trying to look at this sort of on the political basis. So, you know, one of the things that we avoid trying to get into is, is getting into people's heads and how people individually uh, come to these spaces and think of it more in terms of politics. So we look at, for example, the way uh, when Trump uh, started imprisoning children on the border, really militarizing the border, uh, you know, building the wall, and particularly the separation of families. How there was a massive outcry. There was protests. There were, there were sets of protests in this country that had not been seen in many years, um, and. It was, it, it, there was a basic moral outrage, uh, over what was happening. Yet, at the same time, um, or at least around the same time, the Trump administration decided to cut off funds for the UN Relief for Works Agency, under, which is a tiny, tiny piece of, um, U.S. foreign aid, uh, in general, and certainly the U.S. budget. Um, but it provides, UNRWA provides crucial services to Palestinian refugees, not only in Gaza and the West Bank, but in uh, areas around, uh, you know, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria. Um, there was no really good strategic reason to do this. This was a move of, of spite that hurt innocent people. But this passed without almost unnoticed outside of people who are already active on the issue. Um, so we compare, we, we open the book by comparing and contrasting those two things, uh, intentionally to say, look, you know, how is it, how do we live in a system where we, where the, one thing happens and people get outraged, um, then something that true, you know, and, and we grant, you know, we, we make sure to grant that, that we understand that unrest is not happening, you know, the undercut is not something happening here. It's not happening to people here. It's not happening to our direct neighbors, uh, in the way that, that, you know, the, the border crisis, um, worked. But still, um, there was just nothing. There was just not a peep. There was no, uh, virtually no objection from people who are generally interested in what happens in the Middle East. 
Um, we felt we feel that these two things cannot be reconciled uh, in, in any way other than trying to figure out politically why it is that when we come to discuss Israeli actions, uh, they seem to pass without scrutiny. Uh, we're seeing right now uh, a, a really good example of this. You know, Betty McCollum just put forth a bill that simply calls for uh, U.S. law to be obeyed, essentially. That, that military aid to Israel, there are being reports by the State Department um, regularly on how that aid is used. Um, you know, the APAC, the, the, the pro-Israel lobbying group, argues against that, saying it's redundant. Well, then if it's redundant, what's the problem? Right. If you're going to contend that it already happens, which it doesn't, um, then why even bother objecting to it? Um, again, people do not want to discuss the uh, entire the implications of our policy in Israel-Palestine, and that's where we, we have a problem. So, you know, politically, the dynamic is that Israel can do what it wants, um, and it's politically virtually poisonous to even bring it up. Uh, here in Washington, that's starting to change a little bit. But for you know, for the mainstream liberalism of the United States, uh, you know, it's okay to speak out about all sorts of other things. But again, not for Palestine. Well, this is what Chomsky calls worthy and unworthy victims. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, these liberal uh, human rights groups uh, calling for uh, calling on China uh, to uh, uh, stop the repression against the Uyghurs. And I just want to give an, an egregious example of this kind of cognitive dissonance or mindset. So uh, during Operation Protective Edge, uh, in which Israel killed about 550 Gazan children, um, and uh, one Israeli child was killed from rockets, Nobel Peace Prize laureate uh, Elie Wiesel wrote that the crisis in Gaza and Israel is between, and I'm quoting, those who celebrate life and those who champion death Jews rejected child sacrifice 3,500 years ago. Now it's Hamas's turn. Uh, now, first of all, as someone who has spent months of my life in Gaza, the notion that Palestinian parents don't care and love for their children as deeply as we do is not only wrong, but racist. Uh, but here you have uh, Elie Wiesel, who traveled the world. He was in the Balkans when I was there, and quite courageously I've spoken about uh, the uh, Kosovar Albanians who are, became driven to refugee camps in Macedonia. But this, this, this massive uh, disconnect, I think, uh, typifies exactly what it is you're speaking about. Uh, and I think you argue quite correctly that what it does is undermine uh, just the credibility of those of us who do care about the rule of law and do care about human rights because um, it, it's clear that that's not true in the case of Israel-Palestine. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I think that is one of the points that we're making, and I think also that when we're talking about, you know, we're talking about Elie Wiesel's statements, and, and I've had over the years a lot to say about Elie Wiesel, um, somebody who I read uh, pretty much all of his works as a child, as a, a young teenager, and then saw his, later on, saw his complete inability to uh, to apply that humanity to the Palestinians. And it really was only the Palestinians who were an exception, although occasionally he would also make some really mind-boggling statements about other groups if it had something to do with Israel. So uh, the Armenian genocide was, was another uh, place that he was a little bit weak on from time to time. But... Um, 
But that's, I think, to some extent at least, an example of NIMBY, right? Not in my backyard and, and that whole concept that it, it's very easy to stand up for human rights when it's not your group that is the oppressor. It's, it's easy to, to, to point a finger at China, to point a finger at Russia, to point a finger at, you know, <laughs> make a very long list of human rights violators around the world. Um, it's not so easy to do it when it's your own people, and I think that's really the test of your your ethical ability. Having said that, I think um, you know for for Mark and myself, this was less about uh, figures in the Jewish community than it was actually just a, a much more generalized Jews certainly included, but a much more generalized message to liberal Americans, Jewish or otherwise, um, who who seem to be okay with policy. I mean, I, I think again just. To bring up a very current example, uh, you know, we are quick to talk about, you know, uh, uh, in Venezuela, uh, we are, there, there's always this, this big, oh, look how the election was stolen and what a horrible thing is going on there. Um, so much so that the more radical right wing was able to marshal support from fairly mainstream sources for the idea of regime change there, uh, even though you know, many liberals did draw the line at that point, but still, uh, they were certainly willing to shine a great light on Maduro's uh, 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 electoral malfeasance uh, in, in Venezuela. Now, when the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, tells Israel, all you have to do is not allow Palestinians in Jerusalem to vote in our elections, and I will have the reason to cancel them because you don't want to see what will happen if these elections go forward, and neither do I. The United States and the Biden administration explicitly said, that's okay. They literally said, we understand that you're going to do this, and it's fine. Um, and when he went ahead and did it, and actually uh, the, the, the White House was asked about it, they had no comment about it whatsoever. They said, that's an internal Palestinian matter which would be great if they applied that to Venezuela as well. Um, but obviously they do not. So um, how, again, how do we reconcile this? How is it, this is not Trump, uh, uh, you know, disregarding, saying, I don't care what other countries do. At least Trump, I mean, I don't want to defend Trump in any way, but, you know, at least he said, I don't care what anyone does, what any other country does. I'm not going to police the human rights and, and the democracy of other countries. That wasn't always consistent, but... You know, for the most part, he kind of stuck to that. Um, Biden, on the other hand, says, well, America's going to engage and we're going to defend our democratic values, et cetera, et cetera. And yet here's an opportunity to do it. And they completely pumped uh, them off. Uh, they, they literally turned their backs on them. So, again, it, it's that same concept. So when we're looking at do we apply these values? Uh, we don't. And everything about our attitude toward Israel and the Palestinians, I think you're absolutely right, uh, undermines any notion that we are pursuing some sort of value-based foreign policy. Now, you know, the cynic in me says, why would you expect that? What country really does that? When it's inconvenient, unless, you know, when it's inconvenient for them. Um, and, and I understand that, but nonetheless, we as, uh, uh, as voters and as citizens do advocate for values-based policies. Um, and yet somehow that advocacy seems to fall apart when it comes to Israel and Palestine. Well, we should be clear that the Trump violations moving the embassy, the American embassy to Jerusalem, which is under international law considered occupied territory, has bipartisan support. It was supported by Schumer. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, the, 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 
Yeah, I was just going to say, as a matter of fact, we go into the the issue of the embassy in the book in depth. Uh, We point out, in fact, that what Trump did when he moved the embassy, what he did was simply not waive, not sign a waiver uh, that that essentially froze a law that was passed in the Clinton administration. Um, Clinton didn't sign the law, but he also did not veto it. Um, And it has been on the books ever since any president could have tried to fight it. Uh, instead, they simply continued to sign the waiver. Trump just didn't sign a waiver. That that law was passed with enormous, almost universal at the time, bipartisan support. Um, in 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 you know in, in, during the days of Democratic administration, so um, it is absolutely bipartisan uh, and has been for a very long time. As a matter of fact, um, if we look back since really the birth of the the state of Israel. Um, lately, Republicans have been very fanatically pro-Israel, but the actual um, questioning of our policy towards Israel back in the 60s and 70s and to some extent the 80s was actually in the Republican Party, not uh, among the Democrats. That was where Israel's had um, rock-solid support uh, among the Democrats for many decades. When we come back, we will continue our conversation about the limits of progressive politics, the Jewish state, and Palestine with Mitchell Plitnick. Hold on, everybody. Oops, that was this fast. Citizens. Welcome back to On Contact. We continue our conversation about the limits of progressive politics, the Jewish state, and Palestine with author Mitchell Plitnick. I want to talk about this point you raised in the book, where uh, Israel posits this question. Does Israel have a right to exist? Um, which isn't a question you write about the physical safety of Jewish citizens. Uh, the relevant political question is, is the dispossession and ongoing denial of rights at various levels to Palestinians justified? But they've really managed to dominate the debate with this kind of rhetorical thing. Explain how that works. So, um, this... I mean, first of all, you know, our position in the book is that Israel has as much, quote-unquote, right to exist as any other state, which is not. Um, no states exist by right. Um, and we do, uh, we, we absolutely put Israel in the category of settler colonial states. And so there are certain yeah, ethical questions that apply to all of them. And in, in this regard, the only real difference between Israel and the United States, for example, is the fact that the conflict over the settler colonial uh, uh, policies is still ongoing. So, um, yeah, we, we, we make that point, and I think it's an important one. Uh, but you know, when, when people are asking, uh, does Israel have a right to exist, not only are they asking a question that is not asked about other countries, um, but more than that, it is a question that Israel only asks of one group, and that is the Palestinians. Um, Egypt and Jordan have had um, long-standing peace treaties with Israel. The recent uh, Abraham Accords that were signed with a number of Arab states, none of these do anything other than what every country does to another country it has relations with, which is recognize Israel's sovereignty. That is what they do. And as a matter of fact, for a long time, Zionist leaders and Israeli leaders, uh, we cite in the book extensively Abba Ibn, uh, the famed... uh, 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 global ambassador, ambassador to the UN, and 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 uh, uh, leader of, uh, of, of 
Israel in past decades, and Menachem Begin, the former prime minister, both said, we are not going to ask. Uh, it's, it, it's actually insulting to us to ask that other states recognize our right to exist. We ask only that they recognize our sovereignty. Uh, that has obviously changed. But why has it changed? It has changed because doing this and asking it specifically of the Palestinians is asking the Palestinians to say, Zionism was correct. We had no right to be living in the land that we have lived in for centuries upon centuries. And they were right to dispossess us and drive us from our land. And isn't it wonderful that they're being so nice to us now that they're actually willing to give us little crumbs from their table? I mean, this is, and, and we point out that um, the early Zionist leader, Zev Jabotinsky, um, a, a very right-wing uh, person, um, recognized that this was an unreasonable demand and, and not one that was even a moral one to make. You know, his view was, therefore, we need to utterly defeat the Arabs so that they will, you know, accept our uh, our supremacy, and then we can be quite magnanimous and give them citizenship, and then all that. That was, you know, Jack Tinsky's point of view. But it, as as brutal as that sounds, it's better than this this concept that that Palestinians should grovel and essentially and say, "You were right to do this to us." Um, that is just unreasonable, and it is a way to make sure that the issue never gets resolved in any way other than an absolute Israeli victory. Um, that's well. That's by the way. But Mitchell, Mitchell Fatah, Fatah has agreed to Israel's right to exist, as you note in the book. But then explain that it doesn't make any difference. Right, because once they agreed, because the the, the, the purpose of this demand is, as I said, to make sure that no reasonable solution ever arises. So once, and, and the PLO has agreed a number of times to recognize Israel's right to exist, once that happened, um, the demand changed, and it became that, uh, it became a demand that the Palestinians accept Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. So the, the, the idea, and, and several scholars, you know, uh, Israeli scholars have pointed this out, the idea behind that is to preclude any claim of Palestinian refugees, and to also preclude any uh, attacks or criticism on the shabby treatment of Palestinian citizens uh, inside Israel. So um, that that was that that's the purpose of that. And as you know, as we quote uh, Palestinian scholar Yusuf Munir uh, in our book, he said that to to uh, to ask Palestinians to accept that is to ask Palestinians not to be to completely abandon who they are, their identities, Palestinians. Um, and that's just again, it's just not a reasonable demand. And Israel will, if you know, if 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 Fatah foolishly accedes to this demand as well. Which, incidentally, I, I just wanted to throw in there that during the Obama administration, John Kerry was quite public and, and very clear and said, I don't understand, and I think he meant it, I don't understand why Palestinians are at this demand. That's what he said. Um, and I think he was genuinely baffled uh, by that idea. So hopefully uh, uh, Mr. Kerry will read our book and maybe he can glean some understanding. Um but uh, it, it, it's obviously the, the point of this uh, of this demand is to make sure that the conflict cannot be resolved uh, in any way that gives Palestinians any uh, any sense of sovereignty or national identity at all. Let's talk about the national state law approved by the Knesset in July 2018. So this, I mean, essentially uh, codifies apartheid, and I think many people recognize that, including many. 
strong supporters of Israel. Uh, this was something that American uh, supporters of Israel, very mainstream ones, very, you know, including like the American Jewish community was quite forceful in condemning this law. Uh, and this is a group that is, is I, I would characterize as quite racist against Palestinians. Um, they realized that what this law said essentially is Israel's an apartheid state. It's who we are. It is only Jews um, who can exercise national rights in the state of Israel. Um, we will allow other groups to be citizens, but only Jews can build new settlements. And in fact, we encourage that. Uh, the concept of making the, redeeming the land, making the land Jewish again, um, that, all of that is, uh, it is meant again to solidify Jewish control, uh, and make sure that Palestinians remain second class citizens. There may be some room, uh, if Palestinians accept that for better treatment, I suppose. Uh, it doesn't make that impossible um, if, if you want to look at it that way. But that, I mean, that's the best case. That's the that's the kindest light I think anyone can look at it in. Uh, it's quite a discriminatory law. And the problem is that it is a basic law. It's not just a, a piece of legislation that's on the books. It is a basic law in Israel. The basic law is essentially the same as the Constitution here in the United States. So, you know, we're talking about something that is fundamental. In and of itself, it didn't really change much in the moment, but it becomes a basis to defend really discriminatory laws that can and, you know, quite likely will be passed in the coming years. It gives it a constitutional basis. And it, it essentially tells the world, yes, we are an apartheid state. It is not a coincidence that since that time we have seen uh, a growing trend uh, uh, among rights groups, in, including some inside of Israel, uh, state, uh, uh, you know, like calling Israel an apartheid state. I want to talk, uh, I mean, this is also I'm on a company uh, January 2020 when you're writing the book. 28 states had laws or policies that penalized businesses, organizations, or individuals for engaging in or calling for boycotts against Israel. The laws usually penalize businesses or individuals for refusing to sign a document that commits them not to participate in any way in boycotts against Israel. Some of the laws have real penalties, while others are merely declarations that the state, we're talking about American states, opposes the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Um, I want to ask, you write about Samantha Power, these kinds of, she was the Obama's ambassador to the UN. Isn't it really about the fact that if they, they will stand up for human rights if there's no cost? But the Israel lobby is so powerful. And, and what you're really getting at at its core is careerism. Uh, all sorts of people who probably even know better. Um, I don't, I don't think that there's any other way to read the Israeli state as, other than as an apartheid state. But, but this is the problem with, with a liberal or a progressive embrace of human rights and a failure to do so when there is a cost that you can bear. I'm mean, going to interview Richard Falk. Who has been, who did have intellectual integrity, uh, and of course was turned into a pariah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Richard Fox is a great example. Richard Fox is himself Jewish. That made no difference. Um, you know, if, if we go back, uh, to the, uh, the days of the Goldstone Report, uh, a report on Israel's assault on Gaza in, in 2008-2009, uh, Richard Goldstone isn't just a, a, a Jew, he's a Zionist. And, and has, was very active uh, in, in, at the Hebrew University and, and in a number of Israeli institutions. Was very strongly connected to Israel. Made no difference. Um, right. The the 
I think it's important, and I guess I want to preface my remarks because I've, I've you know, written quite a bit about this. I think it's important to to note that I, I do not believe for a minute that U.S. policy it arises as it does out, uh, because of the Israel lobby. Um, the the Israel the 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 policy the U.S. the basic policy the U.S. has towards Israel is one of self-interest and it's perceived strategic um, idea you know it's perceived strategies and, and strategic interests and um, uh, about 2014 or so I wrote a paper for the Middle East Report that explained the origins of U.S. policy. But once U.S. policy was set in place, that's where the lobby is very very effective. What the lobby does. Um, is not only, you know, primarily on Capitol Hill, but also in the, you know, the broader media world and, and civil discourse, basically precludes debate. It precludes, and, right. and it works hard to, to stigmatize and criminalize. Um, as we see BDS, you know, right now it's BDS. It used to be, you know, more broad anti-Israel activity. They really laser focused on BDS, I think, because they've identified BDS as a threat. Um, and, and I think the point we try to make um, is that, look, you know, if you don't agree with boycotting Israel, fine, don't boycott Israel. That, that, is, that is everyone's choice, everyone's individual choice. But to criminalize it is literally to attack the First Amendment. I mean, there really is no other way. In fact, you know, that's one of the reasons that whenever these laws have been challenged, they, they've lost um, because legally there's really no defense for them. Um, it's it's worth stopping to think about uh, the fact that nobody would dream of enacting these kinds of laws regarding our own government because it would so explicitly violate the First Amendment. Yet somehow, uh, when it comes to Israel, we can do that. Uh, it makes no sense. Part we're going to have to stop there, Mitchell. I'm sorry. We're going to have to stop there. That's all right. Thank you. That was Mitchell Flitnick, co-author with Mark Lamont Hill on their new book, except for Palestine, the limits of progressive politics. Which democracy is a working person? Hold on, everybody. I get this back to the beginning. This is called Capitalism versus Democracy. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives, jobs, debts, incomes, our own and our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In the wake of the attack on the Capitol, January 6th, there have been many statements from Republicans, Democrats, and others referring to, quote-unquote, an attack upon our democracy. Well, when you put that together with the questions many of you have sent to me about what exactly the relationship is between our capitalist economic system on the one hand, and the notion of democracy on the other. And by democracy, I mean a situation in which decisions that affect people's lives must be made by those people. In other words, we are entitled by right in a democracy 
to participate in the decisions that shape and affect our lives. Given that, I want to devote today to why I believe that capitalism is not a democratic system here in the United States, never has been, and that the claim to the contrary is not sustainable once you look both at the micro level of our economic system, the level of the individual enterprise and workplace, or if you look at the macro, the overall picture. And so I want to make that case today in the hopes that it answers the questions and puts an end, maybe, to constantly referring to what we would hope to be the case, but what is not, in fact, the case about democracy and capitalism. So let's begin with the micro level, the level of the enterprise. And here I will say something and give you evidence that I have said before, that is the basic idea. It's the evidence I'm going to marshal that I think will be a contribution for today's program. Here's the basic statement. When you cross the threshold into a workplace, a factory, an office, a store, it doesn't matter. You, in effect, leave one part of the world, let's call it the city, the town, the village, where you live, your area of a residence, and you enter instead the workplace, the area of your labor, if you're a working person, as most adults are. Now, when that happens, you leave whatever democracy might exist in your residence, and you enter a workplace from which democracy is excluded and always has been. What do I mean? Very simple. In your workplace, a very small minority of the people involved, the owner of the business, the family that runs or owns the business, or if you work in a corporation, which is the major form of business in the United States, it's a board of directors, and that's usually 10 to 20 individuals. The vast majority of the people in every enterprise, except a few of the very smallest, are the employees. So now the question presents itself. Is the majority the employees in a position to participate in the decisions that affect their lives. Is it a democratic system? And the answer is an unambiguous no. The owner, the family that owns, the board of directors, whoever runs the enterprise in a capitalist system makes all the key decisions. What the enterprise produces, what technology the enterprise uses where the production will take place, and what gets done with whatever profits or revenues or income the enterprise generates. Those are the four big decisions. The owner, the family, the board of directors, they make that decision. The employees are excluded from that decision. They do not participate but they are required to live with the consequences which affect them deeply. Let me give you some examples. If the people who run the business decide to close it, 
You're out of the job. If they decide to fire you, you're out of a job. If they decide to use a technology that hurts your lungs, you've got a simple choice. Take it, suffer it, or quit. And go work in another business that's running the same way. Which is why a lot of people stay when they get abused, because where are they going to go? Where they're not at risk of being abused. And abused in what way? Abused by the lack of democracy in the workplace. So when capitalist societies, like the United States, for example, right now, refer to themselves as a democratic society, what must they mean? Well, they must mean something other than the workplace, because that isn't organized in a democratic way. It never was. The people who make the decisions are not accountable. The employees who live with those decisions are not in a position to vote them in or out of office. They're not in a position to have some power over the people who have such extraordinary power over them. So whatever the word democracy means, it doesn't apply to the workplace in capitalism. And that's a very big statement because that's where most adults spend most of their lives in our society. Five out of seven days, the best hours of those days, you're in the workplace. You've got to add a couple more hours in terms of preparing for and getting to and from the workplace. It's the center of your life, as you all know, for much of that life. So if you're going to call yourself a democracy, you would have had to have a democratic workplace from the beginning. We never did. Yes, here and there, and we'll talk about that, there are workplaces that tried to organize in a different, a more democratic way. One of them we talk about on this program often, worker co-ops. But the vast majority, under capitalism, are enterprises organized in a fundamentally undemocratic way. So now let me give you some evidence of what's at stake. I begin with a professor of business in England, Leeds University to be precise, in the business school. Her name is Virginie Perrotin, French name. Uh, she's famous around the world because here's what's is her research as a professor in a business school. She systematically finds companies where there are examples of the company doing a certain kind of business, producing a certain kind of product, organized as a capitalist, hierarchical, undemocratic enterprise, and she compares that to another enterprise organized as a worker co-op a democratic enterprise where everybody makes the decisions together about what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits. So we have a comparison, and a professor who's done it systematically in a number of countries over a period of time. How do they compare? And here's an interesting piece of information that's based on her published research. The worker co-op enterprise, the democratic enterprise, is more efficient, more profitable, and lasts longer than its hierarchical 
parallel. So for those who might think in response to me that somehow a democratically organized enterprise is not workable, is doable, is a fantasy, none of that's true. And we have in Professor Perrotin's research very clear, documented, empirical evidence. Number two, there are some exceptions. The most famous one, which I have mentioned on this program, is the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation of Spain. It is now the seventh or eighth largest corporation in Spain. It started in 1956 when a Catholic priest in the north of Spain decided that it was too hard for his parishioners to wait for some capitalist employer to come in and make jobs for people. Let's do it for ourselves, he told his parish, and they did. Six workers, with the priest's help, started a co-op where everybody together made the democratic decisions running the business. Fast forward to today, 2021. It's an enormous corporation. More than 100,000 people work there. And the bulk of it, not all of it, but the bulk of it is run democratically. It's actually a family of a couple hundred co-ops come together under one corporate entity. But each of them is operated democratically. All the workers together decide. Their level of income, top and bottom, much narrower than in most uh, companies in the world, much less inequality, and I could go on. But they've succeeded for 70 years. They've grown. They've outcompeted their capitalist competitors. They show, too, that the notion of a democratic workplace is not a fantasy and not a utopia and not a distant possibility. It's a reality, and it has been for a long time. Next, I want to quote to you Winston Churchill, the great wartime leader in England. He's famous for the following remark. Democracy, said Churchill, is the worst form of government except for all the others. How cute. How nice. Unfortunately, Churchill couldn't imagine what I'm trying to explain now. That what applies to politics, his remark, applies equally in economics. Democracy may be a clumsy, maybe a messy way of running an enterprise, but it's better than all the others, just as in politics. Next, some people seem to think, well, you couldn't run a business like that, but don't some people have to do something and other people have to do something else? Isn't the division of labor how we get to be efficient and productive? My answer to that is simple. Yes, we need to divide the labor, but that's not the same as dividing the laborer. You can concentrate on a particular task if that's more efficient than doing lots of different things during the day. But it stops being efficient if that's all you do in your life. You need variety. You need have different muscles, different parts of your brain engaged, or else it isn't good for you. So we can divide the labor but we can solve the problem by rotating people around to different kinds of work so that they have a variety of skills and a variety of activities. It's more healthy and in the long run more productive. And again, the Mondragon Corporation has wonderful records showing 
exactly that. And here's the last point. A democratic workplace gives people the appetite for democracy. It gives people the experience of democracy. They run the enterprise. And you know, if you're in charge of the enterprise and not just a worker there, you have a demand and a sense of yourself as having power. And you're not going to let somebody else dictate to you in politics either if you have developed the taste and the competence for democracy in the workplace. We don't have democracy in the workplace, and that's a contradiction between democracy and capitalism. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. Before we get to the second half, I want to remind you about our new book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. That book is available at democracyatwork.info slash books. I also want to thank our Patreon community for their ongoing and valuable support. And if you haven't already, please go to patreon.com slash economic update to learn more about how you can get involved. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update, devoted to the relationship, a contradictory one, between capitalism on the one hand as an economic system and democracy, understood as an arrangement among a group of people in which the decisions that affect people require their participation in making those decisions if the system, if the community, is to deserve the name democratic. In the first half of the show, we talked about the micro level, the individual enterprise, and why it is organized in capitalism in a way that is clearly and fundamentally undemocratic. I want to shift the focus now to the macro level, to the economy as a whole. And so let me show you why there's a contradiction between capitalism and democracy there as well. So let's begin. We know from decades, centuries of observing capitalism, culminating in a wonderful book published in 2014 that some of you may remember by Thomas Piketty, a very famous French scientist, uh, economist, who works uh, with his counterpart at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, Saez. It's called Piketty and Saez. They're known around the world as the leading authorities on the distribution of wealth and income in capitalist systems. They maintain a website freely available to you, Piketty and Saez, uh, and you can go there and get the documentation and the statistics if you are interested. Here's what the research of the book Capital in the 21st Century by Mr. Piketty would found. That in every case around the world, now, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, capitalism as a system produces a widening inequality of income and wealth. Periodically, when it goes somehow too far, in quotations, people react and stop it and even reverse it sometimes. But then after 10 years or so, typically, it resumes. The basic underlying tendency for capitalism is to produce inequality and keep doing so. 
Nothing illustrates that better than the last 70 years in this country, more precisely the period since 1970, when inequality, which had been reversed by the Great Depression and the immediate aftermath, once again the underlying tendency resumed, inequality continued, and literally since 1980 for sure, the line has been a straight line to greater inequality, reaching a situation now where we really had levels of inequality that remind folks of ancient Egypt and the pharaohs on the one hand and the mass of the slaves on the other. So we have great inequality. What's the issue here? Here's the problem. We live in a society that has an institution called universal suffrage. That is, after long struggles, everyone is entitled to vote. You know, in the early days of the United States, only people with wealth, considerable wealth, were entitled to vote. Women could not vote. Poor people could not vote. Black and African American people couldn't vote, etc., it took long struggles to get all of that stopped and finally get to the point where everyone who's an adult nearly uh, is allowed to vote, at least in theory. So here's then the simple problem. If you have universal suffrage, as for example, we more or less do in the United States, we do exclude felons in certain parts of the country, and so on, and there are debates about that. But in general, we allow nearly everyone to vote. When that's the case, here's the problem for capitalism. The employer class is a small, indeed a tiny, minority. The vast majority of us are employees. If the majority rules and we have universal suffrage, then it's always a possibility that we, the majority, the employees, will use the fact that we're the majority to vote for politicians and laws and rules and regulations that favor us. And for example, if we don't like the level of inequality that our society dumps on us, and by the way, poll after poll in this country indicates that Americans overwhelmingly want less inequality than we in fact have, wow, we could use our majority politically to undo the inequality that capitalism produces and imposes on us. How could we do it? Easy. We can pass taxes that tax people at the top much more highly than they do now. Elizabeth Warren introduced very recently the senior senator from Massachusetts a wealth tax on stocks and bonds and people's wealth above $50 million. It's only 2 or 3%, very small, but it's a start in that area, isn't it? And of course, as every rich person knows, it may start at 2 or 3%, but um, where might it go? So yes, in all capitalist systems, there's a problem. The minority becomes wealthier and wealthier over time. 
That's how capitalism works, and it always has. Yet the majority are therefore given an incentive, if you like, over time, to do something about the inequality of wealth and income by using their majority position politically. You know who understands this best? The rich. They understand their vulnerability. They understand, that's one of the reasons why they weren't so enthusiastic about universal suffrage over the years, it had to be fought for. They know. And they're not passive. They figured out that the only way to be secure in their wealth, given universal suffrage and the risk that the mass of employees will use it to their advantage, the rich understood they have to prevent that. How are they going to do that? They have to use the one thing they have. Money. They have to buy the political system. They have to make the political system depend on their money at least as much as it depends on the mass of people's votes. And that's what they've done. They've made the political parties dependent on donations, not on the mass of people mobilized. That's old politics. Money. You need to dominate the airwaves, the TV, the social media. You need an army of people to do all of that work, to monitor all that, to put out the tweets, to do, you know what it takes because you are living it just like I do. An army of people paid for by money from the rich. Like the campaigns are donated to, the parties are donated to, as if that weren't enough, the rich hire lobbyists, people who work full-time all year round, working with the candidates that get elected, providing them with support, raising money for them, literally writing the bills that go through Congress for the congressmen and women who are supposed to be doing it. In every way possible, the rich corrupt the political system so it doesn't respond to the mass of people. And you should know that if you don't already. The polls indicate the mass of Americans want less inequality, but in fact it gets worse. The mass of the people are interested in a, in a proper medical care system. Overwhelming majorities. Well, we don't get one. The only country without a comprehensive national health care, health insurance program. I could give you many, many more examples in which you watch the majority feeling one way, but the politicians don't do it. And the reason they don't is they don't have to. Because the money they need for their political careers is more important to their survival than the votes. Or to say the same thing more precisely, they can use the money they get from their donors to manipulate the voters. That's what's called advertising. The exact same companies that show you how and why you want to buy this soap or eat that cereal or drive that car are working to get you to vote for this woman or that man by telling you this story, that story, this image, that image. The rule of our politicians is this. 
Do what you have to to get the money. With the money, you can buy the advertising to get enough voters on your side. That's the only strategy that works. To go against the donors and appeal to the workers, the voters, that's the long shot. Only an occasional politician will dare to do that. And you have to have an extreme situation in a society that will get people to understand and resist all of the PR heaved at them by the well-heeled politicians to go with the ones who don't have the money and give them a few bucks so they have the money. Bernie was one of those. And that's why he was so exceptional. He could appeal to the mass of people. It is possible, but it is not the norm in our system. And so what happens? A tiny group of people, the rich, use their money to have an outside impact, an outsized impact on our politics. That's not democracy. Democracy has the idea, one person, one vote, that we all have an equal say on the decisions that affect us. We don't. You who go into a voting booth and move the lever and vote for someone, that's a very different level of influence compared to Rockefeller or Bezos. When they want to influence people, they use their money. Jeffrey Bezos purchased the Washington Post that gives him an influence that you and I can't even dream about. That's not democracy. That's not equal influence, equal access, one person, one vote. That's all thrown aside. And so democracy is not the way we organize the big picture. Capitalism, by concentrating wealth in the hands of a small number of people, contradicts democracy, makes a joke out of democracy. You know, we have the forms of democracy, but they're paper thin. And the minute you go behind to see how it works, you, you find Mr. and Ms. Moneybags in control of this situation and using more and more money. If I have my numbers right, the 2020 election saw the expenditure of in excess of $13 billion spent on that election. And that's probably an underestimate. Those $13 billion were not equally contributed by everybody. They were overwhelmingly contributed, as all the documents show, by a tiny core of very rich people and corporations. So no, what was attacked on the Capitol on January 6th was a political regime trying to outthrow, overthrow another one. A serious question, important, very bad, very scary. But an assault on our democracy, the biggest assault on our democracy is the economic system we do not question enough and that we don't change. Because it is the underlying sickness, that system. It undercuts democracy, not just at the workplace, but everywhere else. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate your interest. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week.
Barb from Pennsylvania. I just wanted to say real quick that the energy of this fiery full moon over the past few days and the fact that it is a super moon, meaning the moon is particularly close to the earth and a full lunar eclipse means its energy is that much more intense. Eclipses are always harbingers of breakthrough and transformation, which is what Richard Wolf was just telling us, that if we're going to keep on doing the same thing over again and expect a different result, we are sadly mistaken. And so this is the moment. This particular eclipse in truth-seeking, prophetic sag makes us question what we believe, what we value, what we teach others. Generous Jupiter comes into the equation with a harsh aspect to both the sun and moon during this eclipse. Uh, one of our sisters was saying this whack-whack therapy here, energies here, but Jupiter typically bears gifts and luck, and that is no exception now. However, the issue may be an overabundance of experiences, choices, indulgences, etc. Staying grounded will be the challenge, especially as Jupiter is now in mystical Pisces. Yeah, la-la land, in other words. Yet a little indulgent daydreaming is allowed. Just don't let it sidetrack us too much from the present. Okay, we'll just stay with that. Uh, and Rama has something for us here. Want to share that with all of us? Um, this is uh, um, Jaime Musan, John De Sosa, Mark D'Antonio. Got to be really loud, Rama. Johnny Enoch. All talking about the different craft that have shown up over the Pentagon and over the Kremlin. Jaime Musant. Rama drove him from the airport to the Prophets Conference in 1999 and back. Yeah. And he's a main anchor person in New Mexico City. And just remember, Mexico City's got 40 million people, just like all of California. And just like all of Canada, think about those three realities. Uh, Jaime Moussant. Yeah, wow. Haven't heard his name for ages. Here we go. Here we go.
for a moment that intelligent beings from other planets have arrived on Earth and have observed us for at least the past 75 years, and probably much longer. Consider that their presence was more evident from the detonation of atomic bombs in 1945. Since then, dozens of unidentified aerial phenomena have been reported around nuclear facilities, where, according to these reports, they've manipulated and even neutralized the operation of nuclear missiles. Consider the possibility that they're concerned about humanity and what could happen if an atomic incident occurred. If this is truly the case, then might the events that transpired on December 9th, 2009 at the Kremlin and again on December 19th, 2018 over the Pentagon be a warning to humanity about the direction we're heading. December 9th, 2009, three young men, Dmitry Kazatse, Irakli, and Robert Baltek, were driving in a car around Red Square, close to the Kremlin in Moscow. Between the hours of four and five in the morning, they observed something extraordinary. A pyramid-shaped object, several hundred meters long, was hovering over the Kremlin. Этот объект был в форме пирамиды или, как я позже узнал, тетраэдра. То есть он был равно как-то равносторонний, что ли, с разных со всех углов. Он был черным, то есть он был очень темным. Его Since then, dozens of unidentified aerial phenomena have been reported around nuclear facilities where, according to these reports, they've manipulated and even neutralized the operation of nuclear missiles. Consider the possibility that they're concerned about humanity and what could happen if an atomic incident occurred. If this is truly the case, then might the events that transpired on December 9th, 2009 at the Kremlin, and again on December 19th, 2018 over the Pentagon, be a warning to humanity about the direction we're heading. December 9th, 2009, three young men, Dmitry Kazatse, Irakli, and Robert Baltek, were driving in a car around Red Square, close to the Kremlin in Moscow. Between the hours of four and five in the morning, they observed something extraordinary. A pyramid-shaped object, several hundred meters long, was hovering over the Kremlin. Этот объект... That object was shaped like a pyramid. Это был в форме пирамиды, или, как я позже узнал, тетраэдра. Or how I, it was in the shape of a tetrahedron. То есть он был равно как-то равносторонний, что ли, сразу со всех углов. Он был черным, то есть он был очень темным, его очень сложно было заметить на небе. Мы даже попытались сделать Иракли, который вел машину. 
Iraqi, who was the person driving the vehicle? No, I just got to see what they did. Mm. Oh. 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 He tried to record it with his phone. The videos look very bad. Okay, and don't turn it on while you're talking. I think they knocked it down. I'll see if I can fix it. We got some kitty pies making a lot of noise here around here. Go ahead, Rama, but don't don't talk while it's playing, okay? Turn it off and on. Поэтому нам очень повезло, что у Роберта была с собой камера, и мы вот засняли эти, эти вот редкие кадры. This incident was covered on YouTube, the Russian media, and made worldwide headlines after it was seen. Самое обсуждаемое видео сейчас, по крайней мере, в интернете, НЛО, которое заметил... The most commented video, at least online, is of a UFO. The Kremlin has been circled by The prestigious daily The Telegraph of England published the news with the title A UFO Pyramid Reported Over the Kremlin. According to the article, a giant pyramid that appears to be a UFO caused a frenzy of speculation in Russia that it was an alien ship. Witnesses claimed that it was over a kilometer in size and that the police declined to comment. The Telegraph also reported that witnesses stated that the object remained in place for several hours and that the Russian aerospace experts had no idea what it was. They didn't know what it was. They didn't think it was a UFO. They didn't think it was dangerous. They just thought that probably was something related to, to the weather because it was announced some days before that the, that Russia was going to prove a different technology to try to control the weather. And they thought at that moment that probably this was related to that. However, since they seen, didn't see anything in the papers right away, they upload this uh, video to YouTube and then explored it in Russia. And everybody saw it and... Uh, Thanks to that, we in, in Mexico, in, in the United States, we all saw this huge pyramid, but nobody said anything. It was just curious. Another thing that is very important is that the pyramid was there for three hours. Three hours. From 5 o'clock in the morning to probably 8.15 in the morning. At dawn, just before 8 in the morning local time, the pyramid was recorded again. You can see the tetrahedron from a greater distance just as the sun's light was appearing. The daylight was a really... This looks like something right out of the movie Stargate. It's amazing. As if Ra was going to come and land. But Jaime Musant was telling us at the Prophets Conference that people in Mexico City see phenomena like this Every day, and that was back in 1999. It's All the time. The main media, never, not a word. Here we go. It's starting to show. It was getting clear, and we have this beautiful image where you can see the big pyramid completely in daylight, 8.15 in the morning, 
also very near the, the red square. This suggests that the giant object remained over red square for at least three hours without any fighter aircraft being deployed, without any defense action having been carried out. <laughs> Considering Russia is one of the most protected and powerful nations in the world, why was there no decisive military response? We have to ask ourselves, if this was a real incident, if there really was a large pyramidal structure hovering over the Kremlin in this very sensitive airspace, why weren't jets scrambled into there? Can you imagine if we scrambled jets into that area, we would force confrontation, which I believe in this case, they didn't want to be the aggressors. They figured, let's just watch and wait. Let's just see if this is a peaceful observation. Because if they were the first ones to start a provocation, this would be international news. It would cause fear and panic. And I don't think anyone wanted that. I don't think it's our technology because there is nothing like this, not even close. This pyramid, this object didn't have engines, didn't have any kind of support. It was just floating there. No wings, no nothing, no movement, just floating. Had to be a balloon, but this was not a balloon. This was not a hologram. This was something that was hovering by itself above the most secret place on Earth. A very big What would happen ship. if this object destroys this airplane or if this airplane crashes in the middle of the Red Square? How could the Russians could explain that? Uh, they decided just to keep quiet. They never said anything. Оно висело на высоте полтора километра в небе над российской столицей в течение нескольких часов. Both of them were presented at the television in Russia, and I believe they still think that this was a real event. Как я помню, тогда произошел инцидент с баловой над Норвегией, если правильно помню. И тема русского оружия, какого-то русских, русского нового оружия, каких-то русских испытаний, которые теперь уже русские скрывают от иностранцев, была очень популярна в западной Да, да. Я, я уже сказал про западные. Я имел в виду, что... And also a spiral that um, showed up over Russia. Было странное явление во время, по-моему, выступления Обамы в Норвегии, и поэтому эта тема очень очень сильно мусировалась про то, что русские что-то экспериментируют, как какое-то новое секретное оружие русских. Я такое слышал из западных СМИ. Журналисты сообщили об НЛО, но никаких комментариев из официальных источников сделано не было. In addition to the presence of the giant tetrahedron over the Kremlin, on the morning of December 9th, another mystery presented itself. In northern Norway, an extraordinary spiral appeared in the sky. Many people suggested that the bright light pattern might have been a UFO. 
until Russia finally admitted to the accident. They confirmed that a Bolivar ballistic missile test launched from the White Sea had failed. And it happened the same day as the pyramid over the Kremlin, both things at the very early hours of the morning. This is no coincidence. It is very clear that both events are connected. It's very clear that this uh, uh, pyramid somehow was trying to, to send a message, a warning to the Russians that the space couldn't be used for military purposes. Yeah. And uh, that is why for the first time we saw a spiral so perfect, so incredible that it was uh, considered one of the most strange events ever. The very next day, on December 10th, 2009, President Obama is in Norway to accept his Nobel Peace Prize. In a 36-minute speech, he discussed the tensions between war and peace. The absence of hope can rot a society from within. And that's why there's little scientific dispute that if we do nothing, we will face more drought, more famine, more mass displacement, all of which will fuel more conflict for decades. This is very hard to dismiss as a coincidence. President Obama delivers a peace speech for his Nobel Peace Prize commemoration in Norway when just the day before that spiraling missiles on display at the same time that the tetrahedron object appears over the Kremlin? When I look at all these three events all occurring... I just wanted to remind everybody that Obama is from Andromeda. Yeah. In his galactic suit, as you might say. And the Andromedans that uh, came to Sirius... Uh, I think they, the crystal people from Andromeda came to Sirius B. Yeah. And they have been monitoring us from Sirius B. For and, many millennia. And, uh, and but remember, Obama is our galactic ambassador, and he attends the Ninth Council, Syrian Council. Right? He's the or he's Yeah, the, the Council of Nine. Is he the ninth member? Yes. Oh, my God. And I think he's gone for from some some jaunts with the King of Swords star, starship. Yeah. Um, back and forth numerous times over the whole period that he both terms in his presidency. So this is, I didn't know this. This is very interesting what he's just talking about. Go ahead, honey. In the same 36-hour period, uh, practically, I, I never see coincidence. I believe in a lot of things, uh, a lot of things, because I've seen them. Uh, but I don't believe in coincidence. Uh, these things, I believe, are connected somehow. We need to see patterns, clues, real clues, regular clues, dispositive clues. And we need to connect these and see the patterns and see how they could all be connected. What if the rotating tetrahedron appearing over the Kremlin is of unknown extraterrestrial origin? What might the significance of this extraordinary event suggest? This cannot be ignored. I believe this is a communication to promote world peace. This is what the extraterrestrials yes. want. And this is what humanity desperately needs. Yes. Nine years and nine months later, 
on December 19th, 2018, the same pyramid-shaped object was observed and recorded by at least four witnesses from three different locations, hovering very close to the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. How could a pyramid hover in the airspace above the two most sensitive and secure political military establishments on this planet? If real, these two cases could be amongst the most significant events in the history of unidentified aerial phenomena. The implications are extraordinary and raise many questions. Alex was one of the witnesses from that night. I saw something covering over the Pentagon, far away. I didn't understand what is this. It was a black, uh, big object. Uh, I tried to film it with my iPhone, but it didn't see it. Uh, it was just uh, pitch black skies. But with my camera, Nikon, uh, I, I could uh, make some thoughts. And so that's the story. But uh, my wife became really scared. She asked me, come on, go away. We shouldn't be here. Well, well, basically, I was afraid to, because I didn't know what is this. He was working on a photography project around four in the morning at Arlington National Cemetery when he captured this video. Alex estimated the size of this tetrahedron-shaped object to the best of his abilities, which was somewhere between 300 to 600 feet at the base. Two other witnesses also recorded the incident. Richard and Nick were at a party that night with friends. Around four in the morning, they were driving in a taxi when they observed a large object floating above the Pentagon. They thought it was a joke or a hologram. However, they decided to drive around the area several times to take a closer look at what was in the sky. These are the remarkable images they captured. So my first reaction was, this is very strange. My second reaction was, we've got to record this. And my third reaction was, why is it just around the Pentagon? Why did I not never see anything like this before? And why am I only seeing it now? And yeah, there was this in the Pentagon, early in the morning, not too many people around. My first reaction was, what the hell is this? I work in the music industry, so I've, I've seen a lot of light shows. Um, but this is the Pentagon. You know, it's not it's not my house or your house. It's not somebody's neighborhood. It's the Pentagon. So when you see this, uh, my first reaction was, oh, it's got to be a joke. Uh, but then oh, I, uh, I thought, it can't be a joke because... The morning, it's four in the morning. Who's going to do a joke? And why? You do a joke uh, because you do something, you do a joke because you want people to see. You don't do a joke at four in the morning. So. Uh, but I, I don't believe, I try not to believe in anything strange. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, what the purpose was of this. I don't know. The second video of the object was recorded a few minutes later, very close to the Pentagon, 
as they were traveling under Interstate 395. They eventually had to exit on Washington South Boulevard to avoid reaching the Pentagon's restricted area. The Pentagon is one of the most highly secure institutions on the planet. Why there? Was it a warning? Was it a message? Was it a communication attempt? And why over the Kremlin and the Pentagon in the two countries with the greatest nuclear power in the world? We have another witness, Faru. Faru comes from the Middle East. Faru uh, is married to an American woman. He was walking his dog three o'clock in the morning at the Air Force Monument. From there, he saw it. And this witness, Faru, is the first one who was able to record it with a cell phone. And I was squinting because it was very difficult to see because there were a few clouds in the sky, but I could make out the shape of a pyramid. There's a three, uh, three-sided pyramid. The, the bottom of the pyramid was lighter than the sides, and it was rotating on its own axis. It was floating. So it, it wasn't moving left or right, up and down, just, it just rotating on its own axis, like above the Pentagon. Uh, so I took out my mobile because I was, I was very surprised, of course. So I was like, wow, what the hell is that? So I took out my mobile and I tried to film it. The image is good. You can see it's further away. You can see the, the pyramid is uh, smaller. You can see the river, the Potomac River. You can see one airplane coming down and probably landing at the National Airport in Washington. You have so many details in the la this last video. They recorded this with a camera. We have four different videos recorded from four different angles. These people don't know each other. They were in different activities. I mean, this is the most important sighting in the history of UFOs. And considering this is a hologram, would you do a hologram above the Pentagon? What could happen to you? Would they accuse you of terrorism? Could they put you in jail for years just because you did a hologram? And again, the holograms don't reflect the lights from the city. Mm -hmm. You know, a hologram, you can see through them. Even though they are good, the holograms, you, you see through them. Here we have this large pyramidal structure that's all black. It's got this really low reflective surface to it, and it's just sort of hovering there and moving around in this circuitous pattern. And the witnesses that are seeing this thing, they can't believe their eyes. It's absolutely shocking. Due to the poor quality of both the Kremlin and Pentagon videos, there are a number of people who suggest that this is nothing more than a CGI hoax. Mark D'Antonio is the Mutual UFO Network's chief photo video analyst with a degree in astronomy. These videos purport to show a pyramidal UFO over the Pentagon. If you can get past the problem with anything appearing over the Pentagon not being responded to by jet fighters, which to me is a very, very long shot, then you have to look at just UFO and say, okay, is there anything in this UFO object that shows that it might not be real? And in one of those videos, I could see 
when you when the pyramid rotated, you could actually see how a, a light hot spot, that is a bright spot from a light, was traveling up the side. Well, you'll get that if you take a a, a piece of metal and reflect it through light and you know, diffuse light down here. You, you'll actually see it, uh, the the light spot moving along the face of this. But that's not what we see in the video. There's many lights everywhere. So at the very least, the light should have been diffused and even as it was rotating. Generally, it would fade. Generally, it would brighten. There wouldn't be hot spots on it. That's what I noticed, and that's a problem. And what that does, unfortunately, is it puts a shadow over all the other videos that we saw, from America anyway, as possibly being generated from the same fake object. Um, are they all in cahoots with each other? I can't say. I do not believe for one second that the government would just sit idly by while there's a threat over our most secure installation in America. Just my opinion. This is not a, a CGI hoax because here's the reason why. Do you know how much trouble a person would get in uh, to, you know, just messing around with the military, the military structure of the two biggest nations on the earth? I mean, just think of the uh, idea of just having FSB, uh, which is KGB, uh, and FBI on your doorstep, you know, just arresting. It just makes it much less likely that this is some kind of CGI hoax. It just, it just isn't. It just isn't. People would not mess at this level with the kind of trouble that they would get in. That's, that's the first thing that jumps out at me. If these were CGI's, if these were people trying to make money, Or, or fame, you would find that right away. It's very easy to find that. When, when you have so many witnesses, witnesses that don't know each other, that they tell you their own story, and that they are in very sensitive situations. If you were coming from the Middle East and you are trying to find your residence in the U.S., you are going to host something like this? about the Pentagon, and you are hiding in a very important military cemetery. Are you going to host something from there? One of the things about becoming an experienced investigator, having done so many of these investigations over so many decades, is that you develop a good sense for what's called the nature of things, how people act. There's never a graphic artist that takes credit for it. Says, hey, you know, I did this. I did this. Well, that's against human nature. It's not, that's not real. That's not true. Because it, hoaxers, uh, these are people who are artists, who would be artists. They would want credit for the work they do. So that's how we know that the pyramids over the Pentagon, over the Kremlin, you know, that would be a significant piece of art and a significant piece of work to be done if it were done by hoaxers, and they would step forward to take that credit. They would. That's absolutely true. If this is not a hoax, one of the more compelling questions remains. Why was there no military response in either Russia or the United States to protect the most sensitive airspace in the world? Would you bring combat planes? Would you attack this object above the Pentagon or the Kremlin? Just think about it. 
Could you imagine an F-15 or an F-35 encountering a craft more than three times its size? What if the pyramid crashed in Washington, D.C. or Moscow? Can you imagine the scenario then? I don't think they wanted that. It was so much better to just respond in silence and let it go. If we don't do anything, it'll be a non-event, at least to the public. I've written about this extensively. 1952 over Washington, D.C. was the last time in the Western world that an entire Air Force was sent out after UFOs. And the reason is because these instances occurred over 14 days over some of the most protected airspace in the United States, right over the Jefferson Memorial, the monument area there in Washington, D.C. And they were buzzing all over the place. Our entire Air Force, many jets were sent out after those UFOs. These uh, UFOs embarrassed, terribly embarrassed our entire Air Force, but did not destroy them, amazingly, did not destroy them. But what they did was they uh, received every jet plane that came after them, and the UFOs did loop-de-loops around them. They did over and unders. They did backwards, forwards. They played with every one of those planes, and they showed them that they could easily have destroyed every single one of those planes if they had wanted to. And it was such an embarrassment after 14 days that the Air Force was just called back. And that, in, that instance was never repeated anywhere in the Western world ever again, where a bunch of planes were just sent out. People have sent out one or two planes afterwards, but never again just a massive wave of planes. And that's because we realized that we cannot, we really can't control those skies when the UFOs show up. They have technology that we just cannot deal with. And I think that realization is remembered even today uh, because there's a lot more caution with dealing with those. Beyond the tetrahedron appearing over the Pentagon in 2018, another significant event took place. Later that very same day, President Donald Trump signed a memorandum officially creating the United States Space Command. Is this a coincidence or a meaningful message? When I learned that on December 18th, President Trump had signed this uh, document creating the U.S. Space Combat Command, then I knew that I had this piece of the puzzle to be able to understand what was the meaning of this cycle. This is beyond coincidence. I think now we're receiving a complete picture of both events. It means that it's really a warning. It means that they are telling us that we shouldn't use the space for military reasons. And that is the reason for me. We have to respect that and we have to understand this because that's something else. That's, this is amazing. Only a few weeks after the Pentagon incident, there was an elaborate attempt to discredit this sighting. A video at the United Nations featuring Alia Prokofieva, CEO of a Moscow-based space initiative, was released to the public. 
The video was allegedly captured via a hidden camera, depicting a UN closed meeting with NASA, confirming the presence of an extraterrestrial pyramid-shaped object over the Pentagon. <laughs> In the video of a supposed speech at the United Nations, Alia announces that a large object, about 100 meters in diameter, flew over the Pentagon at no more than 500 meters high. According to warnings in the video, copying was prohibited. The sound is very defective and cannot be compared with the genuine voice of Miss Alia. The English subtitles are a faithful copy of the speech. This video was released on January 29, 2019. However, the identity of the person who originally uploaded the images deleted all of their personal information. It was only possible to obtain the information of the first YouTube user who copied the video. Just two days later, on January 31st, another user claimed to have discovered that it was a forgery. According to the researcher. The figure of Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan was replaced with that of the Russian CEO in an exceptional piece of computer-generated imaging. Here we can see the original recording of the speech from the Prime Minister of Turkey. It is a very sophisticated manipulation of a video demonstrating a high level of expertise. When carefully comparing both images, the deception is clear. Without actually knowing that this is a manipulation, the new version is almost impossible to detect. It is evident that this extraordinary work was done by highly skilled professionals. But why? Is it possible that the UN video was created as a hoax to generate confusion toward the authenticity of the event that occurred over the Pentagon? I've seen this in other places. There's two levels of this. This hoax video at the United Nations was created by a psychological operation from the cabal, and they had the cooperation of this lady, this Ilya. And the reason that they do these operations,、uh, number one, is to try to take control of the agenda because they believe that the pyramid appearances are going to continue、yeah. into the future. Perhaps over other military installations in other nations. The second level that I know of is that if it is found to be a fraud, then they will qualify the entire phenomenon as a fraud, even though there's no other indications that the pyramids are a fraud. By connecting this United Nations announcement, which is a fraud, to the pyramid phenomena, then it makes people believe the whole phenomena qualified as a fraud. Whether the pyramid-shaped object in these videos are proven to be authentic is yet to be determined, but the UN video announcing extraterrestrial contact is definitely a hoax. How could someone could knew every single speech from the UN and be able to change one character for another character? It's almost impossible. It means. That the same person who did the hoax did the finding of the hoax.、Yeah. Nobody knows who 
did the original video, the real hoax, and who demonstrated that this was a hoax. There is no names of, under that. It means that they wanted to discredit not just this hoax, this video, but they also want to discredit any video related to this. And that is why they did it. This video of the UN reminds me of another occurrence that was very similar to this whole operation. On January 11th, 2011, I had a, a task force operation that was going on in Israel. There's nothing secret about it because it came to nothing. The reason it came to nothing was because suddenly our operators on the ground told us the operation's over. We have had the arrival. The same thing this uh, woman is saying about the pyramids, that alien visitors have arrived in Jerusalem and everybody is going nuts. Well, what occurred is we had this sort of, it looked like a plasma UFO. And it came down at, it was one in the morning in Jerusalem, a residential area. So there were lots of civilians out and tourists. You can almost hardly look at And so we have lots of genuine videos of this phenomenon from different angles, from many witnesses. And it really happened. Whoa. Well, I had a visit from a, a senior government official. His name is Milsud. He said, by the morning, you'll have a bunch of fake videos that will be uploaded to take over the algorithm. At that time, we didn't even know what that meant. To take over the algorithm of these millions of people going to look up Dome of the Rock UFO. Dome of the Rock UFO. That's what everybody was looking for. And he said, there will be lots of fake videos and this whole thing will be quashed. Holy shit. And he told us that he is from people who oversee this sort of things, that he is someone who takes care of things because people are not ready to know truth about alien visitors. By the next day, it happened exactly as he said. All the original, the real videos were taken down oh. and fake sort of CGI looking crappy videos were uploaded oh. under the algorithm Dome of the Rock UFO. And in the same way, I see this operation, cabal operation, over at the UN. Then again, they declared the videos a hoax. And the great part about that is you could just dismiss it all, deny everything, and it didn't happen. I can tell you categorically that as, a, as an FBI agent retired uh, who's done 25 years of investigations, uh, who has investigated numerous UFO phenomena uh, found both authentic and found frauds also. I can tell you categorically the pyramid incidents over the Kremlin and over the Pentagon appear to be absolutely valid, authentic UFO phenomena. That's what it looks like to me. I've been journalist, investigating reporter for 50 years. And what really convinced me about these two cases being real is that in every one of those cases, there were more than one witness, more than one video. I was the only one who has approached to the witnesses in Russia 
and in the United States. They were surprised. They never thought that this was a UFO. They thought it was something else until I made them think that this was probably something extraordinary. When you look at all the events going around, these two separate UAP incidents over those symbols of world power and force, these are the extraterrestrials sending us the signal to say, we know you have advanced technologies and you really need to go the way of peace. I think the takeaway message is that we are watching you. We are, we are maintaining uh, stability on your actions and we may interfere again, depending on what kinds of missiles are being sent uh, over what types of countries in the future. And so I think that's a, that's a good message. I think it's a very positive message. And I think missiles interfered with, missiles stopped. My first thought is benevolent alien visitors, interference with this in a good, positive way. That's what I see. I think it's so important, this case. It's even more important than Roswell. This is the most important case ever because it involves the Kremlin, involves the Pentagon, involves a huge UFO that was there not just for a few seconds and sending a clear message. No one, no one is talking about this. Why not? This case needs to be investigated, needs to be presented to the American public, needs to be really find out what the hell means this. The events that occurred on December 9th, 2009 above the Kremlin and on December 19th, 2018 over the Pentagon may be related to the safety and security of the world. As world tensions escalate and nations race to levels of military technology we have not seen for decades, is it conceivable that we might find ourselves facing the possibility of a warlike conflict of great proportions? Might the pyramids appearing over the two most outstanding symbols of power on the planet be a message for humanity? Is it possible their presence suggests more than ever humanity must evolve, lift our eyes to the sky, and create the peaceful future awaiting us? In the next episode, we explore the pyramids from a different angle. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Next time. Yeah. That was enough mm-hmm. of that for one night. Um, Heidi Massant really got uh, aged, didn't he? Yeah. He has definitely been in the middle of this for 50 years, everybody. Dr. Richard Hoagland presented that night, too, for about two and a half hours, just his own presentation. Oh, my goodness. This is called uh, Activating Earth's Kundalini with Matthias about Atlantis. Sounds good, Rama. That's a good blend. Good good balance. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can see what happened to the 
to the trampoline by two mm-hmm. little kitty dickens. What they do? Coming. Coming along. <laughs> it's finally cooling down. serious people increase consciousness of earth. I am your host and guide, Matias Estefano. In this episode, we will explore why it was important to keep the Kundalini flow on the planet. There have been two races of Syrians that came to earth. Both races were from the planet Gludok, located near the star we call Sirius A. My memories from a life I lived as a Syrian on Gludok were in the northern region of the planet. We were tall, with a large cone-shaped head and five fingers. In the southern region of Gludok, there was another race that was similar to us in the north, except they were much shorter, and they only had three fingers, which were longer than ours. While living in Gludok, I don't remember coming to Earth, but several members from both species came to Earth to help rise the frequency of the planet, which some members of the Confederation referred to as the Blue Pearl. Long before the civilization of Atlantis began, the race from the south of Gludok were responsible for working with the physical location on Earth. They would locate powerful energetical portals within the lakes and the mountains around the planet and deposit small gold disks that we also call solar disks into these locations to activate the portals so that energy from the galaxy could flow more powerfully into the planet. Members of my race, the ones from the north, came to the Earth several times to teach architecture and structure design to early humans, the 12 families and the architects and builders of the growing Atlantis civilization. All of us from Gludok had the same brain structure. It was one piece of skull and the information within our brain was connected in three parts. Two of the parts were used to relate to the third dimension, and the other one was connected to the higher levels of vibration to remain connected to the energy, information, and guidance that was being sent from the Confederation. We barely used our mouth to talk, so that's why we had a very tiny mouth, and we don't even use much our teeth to eat. We all had big eyes with the shape of a seed and very big pupil because we had much connection with the light around us. So our eyes were able to see 
other realities. That's why we were more connected to the fourth and fifth dimension than humans here. My race from the north of Cluduk were more connected to the sun. We were dealing with higher energy patterns that were not in the physical world. The race from the south of Cluduk had only three fingers because they worked with the patterns of the tetrahedron. Long before Atlantean times, they would work with the early humans on Earth to teach them how to handle higher forms of geometric energy to connect with the water and plants. These southern Glodokians were mainly in charge of connecting the eyes of the planet. Those eyes are the North and the South Poles. Together, both of the species from Glodok work with the flowing energy from the poles to activate a stronger Kundalini flow through the planet. The main structure of our our bodies were to be able to connect with the magnetical field of the planet and become ourselves like this planet. So we could read the patterns of vibration, we could read the patterns of energy of the planet and understand how the stones and how the nature could have the flow of energy so we could understand how to build, how to create, which stone to use. Syrian people came to this world in spaceship with the shape of a triangle. These machines would spin and create this vacuum within to create a pattern between the four dimension to go through every realities. So what they did to some of the main priests that were the architects of this world was to put them inside these machines and they would be able to see the timelines moving through the space. So they could see the different vibrations and the different movements of the civilization, of Earth, of realities. So they could see where were the temples, how they are going to be built, and they could see everything not only from above the third dimension, but also from the fourth dimension. That helped them to recognize and realize how to build properly and to see every problem that they would have after so they could solve it before it would happen. When I was living in Chem, the colony of Atlantis, 12,000 years ago, Chem was visited by the fathers of our civilization. They would come in these triangles of light and they would come cover with this. It was like silk. So nobody could see their own faces, their, their, their bodies, and the sun wouldn't touch their skins. And priests and priestesses would receive them in front of the Sphinx, and we would present them as this is who we are, and this is what we have become. I was able to leave one of those meetings, one of those reunions. When I became one of the Arsayan Idilian, I could receive them. For us, it was like the heavens getting united with earth. And that was a whole ceremony in which the gods and the ancestors from the skies would come to see us every 20 or 22 years. Every planet in the Confederation, they have a lot of interests 
into bringing their knowledge to this planet. And I remember that the importance was not humans. The important process of this project was Earth. What we needed to do was to put Earth in the same level of consciousness that our planets were. So what we had to do was to prepare the whole body of the planet. And to do so, we would bring that information from every spot of the of the planet towards the consciousness part of it, which was humanity. Humans would be the ones translating the information, the energy, the will, the love, the wisdom of this planet. So we needed to prepare the planet to realize that humans were now the cells able to transmit the information through time and space and to make this planet aware of who she was. In order to do so, before taking care of humans, what other species did was try to get in touch with the planet. First of all, we needed to make the planet accept other species from outside in the, in the underground. The underground is very important for every species, not because is the place where every record goes, but it is because the mineral, the crystals that holds the information, that holds the vibration, the information of the very beginning of this planet, the seed of the creation of this world, they are all there. So that's why it's important first to be in touch with all the diamonds, the gold, the crystals the, that are below Earth. So all the information accept the star's information and from there they could breathe out in the surface of the planet all this knowledge, this wisdom. That is why the first settlements were inside the planet and after that the the other beings from Sirius came to program the mathematics and the structure of construction in this planet. The first pyramids built, it was in an other level of consciousness. And the first pyramid was not made by stone, but it was made by energy surrounding the octahedron of the whole planet. Creating this structure of octahedron around they established the self. So the North Pole and South Pole would be the main uh, structures in the physical world to hold the information through the four dimension in the settlements of the four pillars of time. That would mean that one pyramid goes over the top of the world and the other one down. And to move this energy we needed the flow of the energy goes from the top in the North Pole to the South Pole, moving in a spiral shape. So all the information in different dimensions could flow in the surface of the planet and download all the programming from other constellations. This first structure would allow the Kundalini of the planet be activated and then the beam would spread all the chakras so the chakras of the world would be activated and the information would flow in the surface of this planet. This structure 
of the Kundalini being alive would be the structure of the Merkaba. So two tetrahedrons within the octahedron that would be moving around the planet according to the north and south magnetical pole. These two main structures that were being created in different levels of, of consciousness in the fourth and the fifth dimension would allow all the network of Manik, the big spider, the network, to be downloaded into the core of the planet. So what serious people did was to create the main spots geometrically in every part of the planet to allow the Kundalini, the process of the soul, to move around the world. And in order to do that, they needed to attach that information from different levels into the physical world. So they had to reach the connection between the North Pole and South Pole through the magnetical poles of the planet. This magnetical poles, it was connected through the North Pole to the South Pole through the lines that connect all the mountains of the planet. This important connection would go from the islands of North Pole in Greenland, going down to the volcanoes in Iceland, in Iceland to go to Azor Islands, and going through the lines of Iberia, crossing the whole Mediterranean Sea, and entering in Anatolia. When they enter Anatolia, the energy of the snake awakes, and from there it comes all the planet, all around the planet, in what we call the horizontal pattern of the snake. The horizontal pattern of the snake would help us to reach the information around the planet and to move the information in the surface of the planet from east to west. This would be from the Atlantean region of Azores and, and Canary Islands going through northern Africa and south of Europe and entering in Anatolia, crossing the Ararat mountain, all the plateau where Iran arises in the Sagros mountains, then from the Pakistan mountains going to Mongolia through the Altai mountains and by Tibet to Siberia in the Himalayas and then the mountains till Chukotka. This connection from east to west was the one connecting the information of the snake that allows us to, to contact the information of the ancient snake of the planet, the Sophia. All this process would allow the information of the planet to be arise and then the process from north to south would be the one to open the doors in between the pyramids. While the horizontal process of the snake would, would help humans to contact the information, the, the vertical information from Alaska to Patagonia would allow the planet to contact the information of the, of the consciousness in every dimension. So connecting the mountains of Alaska through the Rocky Mountains in North America, the plateau of Central America through the islands from Cuba 
to Venezuela and from Mexico to Colombia, creating the connection to the Andes till Patagonia in Tierra del Fuego, those connections of the mountains would allow the information from north to south to south to connect all the pattern of wisdom and keep the information of other levels of consciousness aware and and physically connected in this planet. The ones that came to do that were the people from South Gludok. South Gludok was the southern region of the planet in Sirius. They were the workers with the energy of the planet and the patterns outside the planet, which would be the pyramids that were built in different dimensions, like the subtle consciousness of this planet. So the main goal of them was to create this anchor of the energy from north to south, as they did in our planets in Sirius. These people would be connected to the idea of how to balance the purpose between the North and the South Pole, because they understood that the planet was the creation of just one cell divided in two cells that magnetically connect the reality. Every reality is held by the positive and the negative. And in order to make a cell activate its own power, the, the, the power of the DNA, the power of the blood, the power of the inner self that this planet, this, hell, this cell has, you need to balance north and south magnetical poles. And in order to do that, what they did was to bring the minerals from their planet and put it in some lakes and some mountains along the spinal cord of the planet. This spinal cord from north to south would be the regions that keep the chakras working. The spinning information would allow the snake, the vibration through the plateaus of the planet to move forward, to, to go through all the physical part of the, of the planet, activating it like a machine. It was like creating a big magnet so the information could be attached to this planet. The serious people, they established settlements along the three Americas. And what they did was to put these gold discs in the lakes and some mountains to keep this energy rolling. And the main energies were attached to what we call now the Salt Lake in Utah, the Nicaragua Lake in Nicaragua, and the Titicaca Lake in Peru and Bolivia. The third one was the place where all the information of love and wisdom would be attached to the planet because it this region meant the third eye of the planet. So at the moment, we have to think in a different way to reestablish a new civilization. The Lake Titicaca would be the, the place where all the information would be downloaded. As I remember them, they first came to Lake Titicaca because this portal was the one aligned with the process of Sirius. That is why the desert of Chile, Bolivia, and Peru were the places where the Syrian people used to come 
to open the portals to create a new civilization. They would download the information there and they would share this information with the settlements of humans and Mu people. And after the Atlantean people that came to the same region, because whoever ruled the Titicaca would be the civilization to understand the purpose of humanity on Earth. If we take the main pyramids of the planet and the structure of the biggest portals of the planet, we would see that in Africa, we have the portal of uh, Orion. So if you see Orion in the middle of the planet in the, in the core of Africa with the three pyramids of Giza, what you will have is in China, the pyramids that represent the portal of Pleiades. So the spiritual path of Pleiades coming through the Taklamakan and Gobi Desert. And from that perspective, you would see that in the other side, you will find Sirius. So the star of Sirius is aligned with Peru and Bolivia, while Orion is in Northern Africa. And in the core of Asia, you have Pleiades. This line of connection would allow us to understand that people from Pleiades used to use the portal of Tibet, Taklamakan, and China to get inside the planet, the Orion people, Africa and Middle East, and in the Sirius people, would come through South America in Lake Titicaca. This portal would allow them to come easily to this planet and to anchor the information of the Kundalini so the main structures of the planet could be built. Because of all this connection was along the spinal cord of the planet, the, the second race of Syrian people, we came to this planet, to Atlantis, to help them to understand how to build the same structure the other ones were building around the planet, but how to do it inside the planet through architecture. All this process was before Atlantis was created. While humans in Atlantean times were beginning to work, they were trying to, to create this Kundalini path so all information of the planet would flow through the mountains and, and taking benefit of the natural flow of this energy, they would create these centrals of energy along all the Andes, Andes and, and Rocky Mountains so they could hold this information in different levels of a dimension. That was the moment when the serious people took the information of the Mu people in the Pacific Ocean and they brought those Mu people to take care of the information of these centers of energy. So they divided the chakras of the planet along the spine of the whole America and they said America has three different energy. And when they would arise to the world, that would mean that the new civilization has to begun. When this spinal cord was created, it was the moment for Arturian people to create the new civilization. The confederation started to take the power over the surface of Earth. And that was the moment when the 12 families of Atlantis were, were 
the ones chosen to bring the consciousness through the blood and through the DNA in this planet, bringing all the information from other planets and other dimensions. So this planet could become one of the main spots where the consciousness and awareness of the whole system could resonate and open the portals to the divine through time and space. So that's why they took the Atlantean people that were created in Middle East to the center of the Atlantic North Ocean. This region there, the three islands of Azores, Canary Islands and Green Cape, those islands there were in the middle of all this first information coming from the North Pole. So that is why they settled the first civilization there so the first energy coming from the North Pole would reach them and they would receive this information from the natural source of energy so they would understand and receive the codes of this own planet while they were creating the pattern of the of the conscious network around the planet. That is why Evno, the Azor Islands, and Ekaron, the Canary Islands, were the first settlements for Atlantis. They were at the doors of this information. Before it touched any other region of the planet. So that would make that the planet start to think like Atlantis people. When the consciousness of the planet was downloaded, the Atlantis civilization started to go to all of those portals. So they were the rulers of the Kundalini. So they took the information of every spot in every part of the planet. And when the war came, when they forgot that they were cells of consciousness in this planet, and they just shut the system off and they they forgot what they have to do and start to establish a civilization based on power, the whole network start to, to collapse itself. And that shut the portals down. So nobody could get in, nobody could get out. So that made that some of the beings from other stars couldn't go back to their own planets and they had to die in this planet, in this world. Some of them try to reproduce with humans and some of them just hide themselves in the underground. But what they left here was the legacy for humans to keep and take care of the mountains and the, and the holy regions and the holy gold plates that would allow the energy flow through consciousness from north to south. The path from north to south was something that we in ancient times had to keep uh, moving because we said if this energy doesn't flow, it's the kundalini like stalking in the body and that would create so much energy without a purpose that everyone would be mad, crazy. And that's what really happened. What we in ancient times in Egypt call the Harewifuatme, the Harwitum, it was the path from north to south to keep that energy of the chakras moving along the planet as the serious people did. 
But what happened with these people was that they all were lost and they lost the connection with the planet. So that created different regions, different countries, different cultures, different beliefs that they start to fight each other because all the Kundalini energy is this snake that if you don't know how to use, it would kill you. So that's why from that time when the system shut down, the planet started to, be, to leave a nightmare and what we are living today, which is like a kind of planet that is thinking in a very schizophrenic way in which nobody thinks the same. Everyone is, is fighting their own demons because the flow of energy of the Kundalini in the planet is not flowing properly as it should. This is why from the serious part of the Confederation, one of the main things that we have to do is to keep that flow going. Thank you for joining me in this journey. I am your host and guide, Matias De Stefano. In the next episode, we will dive into my memories from Kim through the eyes of Shiu, the woman I was around 12,000 years ago. Twelve thousand years ago, huh? Mm -hmm. That was ten thousand BC. That was when the shift happened back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, At, just after that. Yeah. Wow. So, what are we going to do, Rama? We can do that radiant rose for thirty. You want to do that? No. What else is there? Is there another one? Mm, not really, because they're all kind of long. Oh, I thought you had a, just a half hour or something. How, mm, what do you got? Let me see. Can't really lollygate, though. Well, my goodness, everyone. If you want to do that one, that's fine. Yeah. Or I can do a little Max Kaiser. Uh -huh. <laughs> sure. That's okay. Yeah. You want me to do that? Yeah, we have any, We might have something good to say. Oh, he had plenty to say in that little short paragraph. Yeah. Okay. From the... I get this ready. All right. There's two songs. Um... Well, now, wait a minute. What happened to the one from... <sighs> Huh. I don't see the one from tonight. I don't know. <laughs> oh dear. Just a second, everybody. Uh two eight zero.
since it didn't record, that's... Mm. I know I recorded it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that new device didn't come, dear. Mm. Well, what do you got there? Who? You. Oh, I was just getting the music ready. Yeah, well, I'm just asking you, there's... What else? There's there's one or two more there. Um, real quick like a bunny, because this is... Um, not the new ones. This is... Uh, it's, uh, telling me I'm offline. And I don't know. I'm trying to... Momentito, everybody. While Rama's looking, I will read Caroline. Yeah. And that's good. So let's do this. Greetings, dear ones. This is from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics, Earth Elements, Base Elder, Fairy Elders, Angelic Legions, and Archangels, known as the Collective. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this opportunity to speak with you again today. We see so many now asking to understand why such great numbers of people are leaving the planet. You can get Max Kaiser on there if you don't have anything else. That's what you can do. Get it right on there Um, from this morning, from Saturday morning. Yeah, I'm trying to get the music ready. No, you can do that. Uh, I won't have it ready. Well, I'm having trouble, so I need to get it ready now. Okay, well, then I'll read this, but, okay. Uh, after you get it ready in a few, ten minutes or something, then we can play the first 15 minutes of today's Saturday morning max. That's what we can do, honey. Yeah. So we are very pleased to have this opportunity to speak with you again today. We see so many now asking to understand why such great numbers of people are leaving the planet through one means or another, and asking as well to know why it is that these things appear to be getting worse, not better, despite much talk for a very long time about new earth and higher energies. And again, we will simply say that much must be dissolved and other situations and beings must move to a higher vibratory level before anything so idyllic as what we have envisioned can come to pass. It is so that we have already journeyed far and are tired many days, tired physically from not only the demands of work and or family, and the ongoing pressures of life on a planet that is not quite sovereign. Sovereign yet, 
yet also from the ongoing infusion of higher energies. These are requiring every cell, every particle of our being to rise to a new and higher expression, that of our true selves. We are, of course, also tired mentally and emotionally, not only from the news, turn the page here, not only from the news uh, that reaches us through our media channels, rather from the old trauma and energy interferences we still carry from many centuries of earth lives. We are understandably tired from the ongoing shifts and apparent interruptions to normal life that have to do with our ascension journey and the dissolution of the old order. Yet for each of us, the greatest change of all is our witnessing all that is not our authentic selves, letting go and releasing us as we release it. We cannot emphasize enough that these pressures are taking their toll, all the more apparent in these pre-solstice days, as the powerful energies of the May 26th full moon lunar eclipse are still being felt. It is important to take more time to rest, to restore ourselves now, in this time of powerful rebirth and transformation. At this time, our spirit and psyche are coming into their own in ways we have never quite bargained for, one might say. We want to say, in fact, that we are now lighter in our travels, though we may have assumed that that was always the case, that our etheric travels have always been fluid and filled with endless potential. Yet this is new. Our increased etheric presence and connection to that etheric aspect, the spirit aspect that travels at night to varying dimensions, earth kingdoms, planets, inner earth, and elsewhere. That aspect that communes with varying kinds of beings in different environments, depending upon our purpose and our earth mission. Many of us are in fact sea beings, in human form. That, I'm going to say that again. Many of us are in fact sea beings in human form. We mentioned this many times, the first evolution of human beings. Did you get the music ready, Rama? Yeah. Okay, so go and see if you can cue up Max and we'll play the first 15 minutes from on on there. Unless you find another one that you want to play, but the time is gone already now. Just the first 15 minutes of Max we could do. Many of us are in fact sea beings in human form. They're called the Trititarians, the first human evolution. We were uh, the uh, mermaids and mermen from the sea that made a free will choice to come to embodiment on the land. And our names at that first evolutionary stage were called Trititarians. So Caroline's picking up on that. 
so. So many of us are in fact sea beings in human form who travel to speak with sea animals, the mer people, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, under the earth's seas, whether to assist in their development or in their healing and detoxification from the waste and excesses of the modern world. Some of us are beings of the air or the earth, and so to speak with the rock and mineral nation, or to meet with high councils of crystal beings, or to fly with dragons around or inside the earth. None of that is new to us, and all of it powerfully layered now, with even higher intent and purpose than before. We have seen no people so determined as ourselves to rise up to where the impediments of the past, including war, famine, and overt control over modern life, are no longer being tolerated. Is that Max? Yeah. Yeah, it looks like the one. (laughs) Well, let's see here. These Those higher frequencies are not so much intrusions in our day as they are reminders of our true selves and our true home. All of us who have volunteered to come in at this time have experienced Earth and other planets at far higher vibrations than where Earth now resonates. So that with our very presence, we are called her forward and with her all of her many beings and what of the others here we may ask those who are not fully human Mm. those who are descended of the fallen angels or descended from the invaders who long ago came to earth and decided to make it a slave planet a place of loss, death, and shortened lifespans. Those who have exploited her being so as to worship their own false sense of power. Shall they also ascend? And how much longer are we to labor under their madness? We are often asked how much worse things will get or will humanity fall into extinction? before the long nightmare is ended. And will we say, you are not headed for extinction as a race or a planet, as this will not be permitted, despite appearances at times. You have many times been held separate from what would have most assuredly spelled the end of this planet's life by nuclear arsenal, which in the case of Earth's current timeline has been prevented from deployment or taken away and detonated well outside of Earth's atmosphere. We have never been alone in this, dear ones. And as always, we must point out that all of you did not come in to be rescued, yet to actively create the sort of autonomy and exercise of free will, of empowered consciousness, that could only be dreamt of in previous times. 
Yet you look too often outside yourselves from some help to, for some help to arrive from the sky. Uh, that last video before Matthias with that pyramid object across the, over the pen, Kremlin and the Pentagon, uh, that's saying straighten up your act. That's what I say that is. They tried to cover it up. And yet, you are yourselves, the captains and commanders of these. Turn the page. Of these vessels that we look to the skies for a glimpse of. We simply lack conscious memory of those roles and capabilities. True? Yes? Mm. Yes? Mm. Yes? Mm -hmm. Mama? Yes. <laughs> right? What is it you're asking? Well, what Carolyn is saying, uh, she's saying um, that we, and yet, we are ourselves the captains and commanders of those vessels, the starships, that we look to the skies for a glimpse of. Yeah, I could say that we're in both places at once. I mean, you've been a navigator on the bridge of the New Jerusalem. You have some... Too many years to count. Yeah, so you have a connection where there's a, a at one minute there. Uh-huh. Yeah. We simply lack, lack conscious memory of those roles and capabilities. And yet increasingly, yes, we are beginning to remember. So perhaps, do not so quickly curse the incoming energies, though they may some days cause headaches, dizziness, tiredness, or a release of old grief as we detach from old earth trauma, old earth roles and constrictions. That light now, arriving and permeating our being, is exactly the assistance we ourselves chose to receive. The energetic codes we are now downloading into our human systems are supporting us perfectly in our new growth and realizations. Despite the outer roadblocks thrown in our way to hold us back energetically or otherwise, they cannot for us have chosen as a race of beings to ascend to where those attempts are utterly incapable of deterring us from that which we designed before incarnating. And so, as we next board our favorite ship to convene in council or private discussion with soul family members or travel to a healing temple in inner earth, or our favorite planet, or commune with the creatures of the wild in our sleep state, or as our higher selves. Yet, we are there, nevertheless. Recall that this 
is what we chose. That the day for denying what is has well passed. And that even in this moment, all of all moments, apparently full of despair, treachery, and the ongoing of an age, there has never been such a beautiful world. Namaste, friends. We are with you always. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do this real quick. Max Kaiser, we'll do the first 15 minutes, everybody. Mm-hmm. He said the gig is up. Let's see what he thinks here. Coming. Uh, Max Kaiser, this is the Kaiser Report. You know, just because we tell you stuff five years in advance before it happens or four years or three years or six months doesn't mean that you actually use that information to your advantage. Some do, but the fact is we usually tell you what's going to happen years before it does, as in this story, Stacy. Yes, of course, Max Kaiser was right again. Ray Dalio said he would rather own Bitcoin than a bond. Ray Dalio is the manager of Bridgewater Capital, which is the biggest hedge fund in the world, operating out of Connecticut, where he is the number one taxpayer as well. Um, so he, you said he would uh, find his way to Bitcoin. That's right. I said he would capitulate. It was guaranteed. And when he started to bash Bitcoin, I said that this is a capitulation waiting to happen. It's an interesting statement because he also bashes bonds while simultaneously lauding Bitcoin. So he's another one that's now jumped into the end of the 40-year bull market and bond camp, uh, clearly looking for inflation, clearly looking for bond uh, yields to start going up. That is to say, bond prices going down and and now he understands, as Paul Tudor Jones, his neighbor out there in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, has said now for a couple of years, if you're trying to get a inflation hedge, the fastest horse in the race is Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's the remarkable thing. Uh, again, this is the bond market is something that we've been watching for the entire over 10 years of Kaiser Report. It's often the widow. It, it is the widow maker, right? Because it, they, um, it's in the biggest bull market in history for the last 40 years. And um, so you have Ray Dalio, biggest hedge fund in the world. You have Paul Tudor Jones. You have Michael Burry. You have Stan Druckenmiller all in the past year saying, like, essentially getting to the position where they're shorting U.S. Treasuries, which is remarkable. Um, and this is in response to all the money printing that is going on, that, that just the historic levels. Yeah, exactly right. There is uh – an ability of the Fed to monetize that money printing or monetize that debt to a point. And then you get to uh, uh, the end game where confidence in the dollar evaporates and you have a collapse. And so the U.S. dollar is going to go the way of Venezuelan Bolivar uh, or other currencies that have suffered hyperinflation. What the price of Bitcoin is telling us right now is that the U.S. dollar is already in a hyperinflationary collapse against Bitcoin as are all fiat currencies. So Preston Pish is looking at this announcement from Ray Dalio that he would rather own Bitcoin than a bond in an inflationary situation and then now announce that he owns Bitcoin, which is to him saying, like, it's it's time to uh, seek safety. Of course, the issue that we keep on talking about is the price signals and the absence of them and how the Fed 
as, you know, claim they're trying to do good for everybody by destroying the price signals, by massacring the bond vigilantes. So Preston Fish says, quote, I'd rather have Bitcoin than a bond. Ray Dalio, sound familiar? CPI is broken. That's consumer price index. QE, quantitative easing, equals asset price inflation. Additional UBI checks, universal basic income, equals even more QE. Because remember, Preston Fish is the one that pointed that out here on this program. And that he said that uh, the, the more fiscal stimulus you have, you have to have more QE to balance it out. But also the Fed is buying more all of those treasuries, of course, that are the bonds that are being issued in order to feed all the stimulus packages. Well, you know, as Tom Waits once said, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. And uh, that's where the Fed finds itself right now. It's effectively it given itself a frontal lobotomy by... <laughs> performing unending quantitative easing, gutting the underlying economic dynamism of the U.S. economy, and now the country is effectively brain dead. Thank you, central bankers. You killed us. Well, thank you, Fed, and thank you, ECB, of course. Now, of course, you might look at my elegant gold-laced top and think, hmm, that looks like something from luxury maker like Louis Vuitton or something like that. Well, you know what? Uh, he, they are in the headlines, and this is, again, Max was right. You pointed this out, and what's his name? Jimmy Dore. No, 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 no. Bernard Arnault. Bernard Arnault. <laughs> he has become the wealthiest man in the world, overtaking Elon Musk, Bill Gates, all those guys. Um, Jeff Bezos, he's now the wealthiest man in the world. But last year, or a few months ago, when Max pointed this out, like uh, Bernard Arnault was only the wealthiest man in France. And, uh, you know, he is the boss at LVMH, which makes all sorts of luxury brands they owned. But, like, why we knew this was coming? France's richest man gets a free lunch from the ECB. This was back from February 2020, so a little bit over a year ago. And Bernard Arnault, the boss of LVMH, Moet Hennessy, Louis Vuitton, exceeded even his own incredibly low-yield expectations in his company's giant bond sale this week, which included the biggest corporate issue in euros since 2016. The luxury giant raised 7.5 billion euros, which is $8.3 billion at that time, and one5 5 billion pounds, which was $2 billion at that time, over a range of maturities from 2 to 11 years to help finance his $16 billion purchase of Tiffany and Company. Right. As you pointed out, that uh, the cost for that acquisition is effectively zero. So the European Central Bank gifted Tiffany's, an American luxury goods maker, jewelry maker, to the richest man in the world. Yes. And it, the fact that it's a luxury brand, like it's Louis Vuitton, et cetera, it, it's so uh, uh, ironic or iconic in terms of we're right back to the incredible neo-feudal times uh, where the aristocracy is taking bubble baths in, you know, extracted snail urine at $50,000 an ounce made by <laughs> this guy, Bernard Arnault, who gets hundreds of billions of free money from the central bank to perpetuate neo-feudalism. And just like we had the Enlightenment, we have the new Enlightenment with Bitcoin, 
And just like we had the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Russian Revolution all coming about to end the era of aristocracy a couple of centuries ago, we're getting ready for the new era, the new insurrections, the new revolutions, and Enlightenment and Renaissance 2.0 aided by Bitcoin. Right. And at the time, February 2020, it's just at the very beginning of the pandemic it was just hitting China at the time. But again, the article in Bloomberg points out there, they're like, oh, the ECB couldn't have imagined like they you can't imagine that they actually want to help somebody like Bernard Arnault. That it's just for the ordinary people. Really trust us. Like all these programs are supposed to be just for the ordinary people. Really, we need to help the people. Right. And when they did this, OK, I pointed out on this very show that in real time when it was happening, that it was just the ECB handing over Tiffany's to the richest man in the world now for free. And that's why interest rates are so low. It has absolutely nothing to do with helping out people. As a matter of fact, low interest rates are causing feudalism to reemerge in Europe and in America at the same time. Like we fought the Revolutionary War for nothing. The Declaration of Independence was for naught. The Constitution has been shredded. We're right back to where we were in 1776. And either this country wakes up and realizes that the central bank, which we resisted for 100 years until 1913, when the Bank of England came over and instituted the central bank, the Federal Reserve Bank in America, and reintroduced aristocracy in America, we are going the way of all feudal serfs into the dirt, eating dirt, America, eating dirt. So you said that the ECB gave this uh, Tiffany to him for free. In fact, they paid him to uh, take Tiffany. So it was a double gift. It was definitely in that little blue box wrapped with a, a, a $16 billion in free money. And, and in fact, he got paid to borrow the money. According to the start, LVMH gets paid to borrow. It's three-year bond issued last year has moved negative in yield. According to the chart, it's almost certain that a bond of this size will have been bought by the ECB or will be picked at some point in the near future. Often the bank takes up to 20% of eligible issues and there has been a real paucity of high quality credit since the quantitative easing program kicked back into life. Right. Let him eat Tiffany's, right? <laughs> this is a real moment in time when the aristocracy gets so arrogant that they pay Louis uh, Vuitton, uh, Bernard Arnault, to buy Tiffany's for a negative cost. And then they wring their hands and clutch their pearls and say, oh, we never intended to do this. And by the way, the kickback that we took, which was hundreds of millions of dollars into our bankers' pockets, and then we went and bought a chateau and a yacht, that was a pure accident. We had no idea how that happened, how printing trillions of dollars and making the most pernicious aristocratic in the world history we've ever seen it was a complete and utter unforeseen incident, and we don't know what to do about it. Oh, wait, we do. We're going to print more. Channels. Wow. So in the second half, we're talking to Michael Pento. You know, in the beginning of, you know, leading into our summer solutions, we're doing a week of summer solutions. This is why I'm wearing my summery shirt. And I just noticed looking at you from here, you were speaking like an Italian-American with a lot with your hands there. So that was quite good. But this, this is what Ray Dalio at the top of the show, he's, you know, runs the biggest hedge fund in the world. He would rather own Bitcoin than a bond because, <laughs> by the way, like because the ECB, because the Fed are buying up all the bonds and make and trying to remove your reward for being paid for the risk. You're not being paid for the risk. 
they're, yes. that they're, that's the price signal they're destroying. Like they're, they're trying to tell you that there is no risk in the economy and destroying the price signal of interest rates. So that's why he says, I would rather own something that's not rigged, not manipulated. Right. Bitcoin is the bladeless guillotine. Bitcoin is the nonviolent reign of terror <laughs> that we saw leading up and immediately preceding the French Revolution. I think My it was favorite. just after the French yes. Revolution. Pro- proceeding. Proceeding. After. Pro- proceeding? Okay. And proceeded after the re- <laughs> Not pre. It depends. You know, um, prefixes are key <laughs> in the English language. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, much more coming <laughs> your way. Hi, I'm Max Geyser. I'm with... We're just going to let it be there because of the time, everybody. Um, so, let it just be. Speaking, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And... Uh, as we learned on Thursday, Mother Mary, along with Raphael on the Emerald Green Ray, is with us here. Uh, there's a scene up here where there's a gentleman taking a nap by a river and this bear just sat down right next to him. <laughs> Very big bear. Okay, so with lions, tigers, and bears here, and angels, fairies, and feathers, and rainbows, I pass this talking stick with the spirit of Quetzalcoatl with it, too. Here it comes, Rainbird. It's all yours. All right, I got it. With (laughs) bears. (laughs) My son's working out. My son's working at a construction job where there's bears. He has to he has to hide his lunch all the time. But <laughs> he's this the bear shows up every day and there's it's big. Well, and there's more than one. So So where is this is this up in the mountain somewhere? It's in Asheville. <laughs> Asheville? There's bears in the town of Asheville? Oh yeah. There's bears. You know that place we went to in Asheville, Bo's house. There was, she woke up from a nap on the porch with a bear oh, on the porch yeah. with her. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. yeah, did I? I thought Bo got a little bit of trouble there for a while, didn't he? Uh, no, Bo, no. Uh-uh. Oh, so. no, that but was there that were bears. Time. That, that was that. Yeah, doctor. well, Yancey is the one who's working, working in bears. He's having to, because he's the help. It's a help that's there. There's, they, they don't know how to not open a can of sardines for lunch. <laughs> 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 or, or even dispose of the things properly. It's a construction worker mentality, I guess. Oh my God. Yeah, sounds dangerous like, to me. <laughs> yeah, well, it is dangerous. I mean, they're they're not only dangerous about lunch; they're dangerous about their work. It's crazy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, so, may we yeah, all pass every test, Freebird? Yeah, all pass every test exactly. So, well, he's planning on quitting soon because he's not handling 
that level of mentality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and <laughs> that's about the crazy out there. It's my connection to what's going on out there. And uh, otherwise, I'm just up here on the mountain. <laughs> and it's fairly yeah. peaceful. And I appreciate everything you all brought today. I know we all did. And it was good conversation. It was real interesting hearing about those pyramids. It was a Pentagon in Washington. Before. Yeah, and to see Jaime Mossant, uh, the uh, host of that show, um, after 1999, 2009, 22 years, 22 years ago, Rama. Mm-hmm. What's his mom, name again? Pardon? Say his name, name again. Jaime Mossant. Jaime Mossant, okay, got it. He was like the, uh, um, what's the main anchor person? Uh, Walter Cronkite. Yeah, he's like the Walter Cronkite of Mexico City. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was good. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> he's a very interesting character. All right. So, Robert, so, got yeah. one for us. There's an echo here. Let's see what we do about that. Maybe we say. Rainbird mutes up. Okay, let's do this, honey. Okay. What have you got there? This is Alan Watts calling the others. Calling the others? Oh, this ought to be interesting. Here we go, everyone. Existence is a rhythm of waking and sleeping, eating and moving, and that's all we're doing. And just consider what we do every day. What's it all about? Does it really mean anything? Does it go anywhere? It's just because we want to keep on doing this kind of a hoopida. So you can get a certain vision of life where everything is seen to be a complex pattern of rhythm. Dances. The human dance. The flower dance. The bee dance. The giraffe dance. And that's what this all is. It's jazz. You see? This is a big jazz, this world. And what it's trying to do is to see how jazzed up it can get. How far out this play of rhythm can go. Because that's what we all come down to.
Kind friends all gather round Something I would say What brings us together here Has blessed us all today Love has made a circle That holds us all inside Strangers are as family Loneliness You must give yourself to love. Love is what you're after. Open up your hearts to the tears and laughter and give yourself to love. Give yourself to love.
we're going to do one more, and uh, this one's about uh, out where we live, which is uh, the Northern California area, up at the top of the Central Valley. Our long Central Valley, the San Joaquin, that runs from Bakersfield up to Redding. Actually, Merle Haggard lives up near the top of it. He used to live down near the bottom of the San Joaquin. About halfway up are California Bends. It's a little uh, Monterey Bay area, Santa Cruz, California. And we have a pass that goes from the San Joaquin over into Santa Cruz. It's called Pacheco Pass. Real pretty to take at sunrise or sunset. What happened? That was the end. She was getting ready to play the next song. Yeah, I don't know. Ah. There's another bear and there's a lion or two. Oh, my. Well, uh, I just read one or two paragraphs here. So um, this is back again about the full moon. But it's... um, uh, Luna Joy, during the full moon and eclipse portal, we could really see some long-awaited breakthroughs. This is what two Mayan calendars, sun signs, that are linked to the full moon and to the eclipse portal could manifest for us. This will be the most introspective and enlightening moon eclipse cycle in a long while. As I read two different Mayan calendars for these days, and as we add to it to the eclipse on a full moon, these days look very powerful and compelling. I already feel it heating up in my energy field as I write this. I am sure everyone of you are feeling it too. This process could feel very emotional and a deeply shamanic experience. This time will launch a starting point. It will be mixed with the rising of some deep self-opposing reflections that have been buried for a long while. Lots of powerful yin-yang energy will trigger, revealing self-critiquing at a deep primal level. Yet it will also help us come back to balance, into balance. This time will pack a punch as we are willing to do the inner work. This is reflecting what Caroline was saying to everybody. It could feel otherworldly at times, yet it will also reveal a sweet window toward the future, giving us a renewed hope. It is very much about finding the balance in the extremes. It is about bringing into the physical world the magic of the in-between, and even multi-dimensional worlds. We are indeed, excuse me here, we just turn the page for a minute here. We are indeed awakening the mystic and enlivening our natural magic into reality. This is being empowered by the powerful and deep Mayan days signs linked with a powerful eclipse. This is a start toward receiving from the new realities and excavating the ancient or shrouded that is still viable for the future. The challenge will be in our manifestation, which will 
oscillate between the calling to start something new to feeling as though we are still in between worlds or in the creative void. Both are true. This time will take patience, loads of grounding, inner strength and perseverance. Be tenacious within the flow. And please, by all means, choose love every time, everyone. During this past year, we could not plan anything with any certainty. Because of this, living by our intuition has only become stronger and emboldened. This will become very evident in days to come. The flow will not come easy at first. Rather, at least we will see some flow return. Yet we are starting to see that some things are starting to take hold in this material world. Our visions are beginning to be realized. So namaste everyone. Let's keep this good inner energy going of the high heart. And join us with Cheryl on tomorrow and Monday evening. 10 minutes of 6 Pacific, 10 minutes of 9 Eastern. For about three hours, yes. 425-436-6260, pin code 949-7441 pound. So we'll see you there on the bridge and inshallah and sat nam. Dot nam ki. Ah, homie, takwiasin, 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, and mahalo, nui loa. See you on the bridge, everyone, and in your dreams.